wait a minute, I paid this. It was the biggest bill I ever paid. I gotta call them. That is Remy's parody of No Doubt's Spiderwebs about trying to reach the IRS. That is so true. In fact, I tried to reach the IRS a few months ago, and I had that exact experience. The endless menus, the messages that you just can't reach them, and the feeling of panic that if you don't reach them, you're going to get penalized very badly. Like you need something desperately handled or answered, and you just can't reach them, and you feel helpless. So... I'm glad someone made a song about this because it definitely needed to be brought to the world's attention. Though I'm sure everyone's quite aware at this point who's tried to reach them. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on July 22nd, 2022. The time right now is 8.40 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And this is a post-World Series of Poker show. The World Series of Poker is over. We're going to wrap things up with our final topics. And, of course, we have some other topics to discuss as well. It has been 11 days since we were last on, so we do have a number of things to discuss tonight, including some big stories. I bet you have some idea of what they might be. And I had a surprise trip to Vegas that I did not expect I was going to take. But I took it, and I went to Vegas for the fourth time during the World Series when I only had three World Series trips planned. There was a fourth one that was super, super, super last minute, but I went. So I 
we'll tell you about that trip because something very eventful happened on that trip in an event I played. I think you have an idea of what that might be. But why did I take the trip? Well, we will get to that very shortly. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That's always been our number into the show. You can also text that number at any time, 775-372-8355, and I will respond to you. And in fact, if you text me during this show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me not to. So keep that in mind if you text me. But you can text me anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I will not feel bothered. I will not feel angry that you're disturbing my sleep. I will respond to you. I will get back to you. I'm very interactive with, with all our listeners, even if you don't want to call into the show. Because some people, you know, they just don't like doing that. That's just not their thing, which I understand. If you just want to listen, that's totally cool, too. We have a free roll. The free roll began... Two minutes ago, but you can still get in there until 9.05 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time because it has 25 minutes of late registration. It began at 8.40. Right now it's 8.42. $50 are being given away this week. Once again, another fuck PayPal again free roll, just like the last show we had. This is courtesy of Eric Benzomokin, who may or may not come on tonight. I forgot to ask him to come on. We had discussed him coming on tonight, but then I didn't tell him when the show was going to be. So this is my fault, not his, that uh, we may not be able to reach him. But I did text him. If he happens to be around, then we'll have him on. Otherwise, uh, we won't. But either way, we have his $50. And we're giving that away. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. 25, 15, and 10 are the three prizes we're giving away this week on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you do need a validated account to play on there. So if it's not validated yet, then you will not be able to play tonight. Uh, Belly Buster is currently the poker room manager. You need to PM him on the forum, Belly Buster, two different words, to get validated. But pretty soon I'm going to be taking it over, and it'll be my poker room. And you'll have to have me validate you. But if you're not validated yet, you cannot play tonight. And make sure to understand the rules for the free roll by going to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Exactly as it sounds, I'll lowercase. I can send you the prizes by Zelle, by Cash App, by Bank Transfer, by various cryptocurrencies, and other methods you might be able to think about that can transfer money online. So PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. That's Dan Druff with a space in between. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. That is my email address. Or you can text me, 775-372-8355, but I do prefer a 4 p.m. We have a gentleman on now. Normally, I wouldn't take a call during the intro. Normally, I'd be mad at someone for interrupting the intro. But this person, I will forgive. Calwat, hello. Yeah, sorry. I didn't know I was interrupting the intro. No, no, no. I'm happy to have you here. It's very late where you are, and I started later than I was hoping I would. And uh, Calwat, I'm just going to jump into this here because I haven't explained yet why I took my fourth trip to Vegas. And the reason I took my fourth trip to Vegas is right here with me. That's Calwat. He is the reason. Calwat does not live close to Las Vegas. He lives on the East Coast, and it's a lot harder for him to travel to Vegas than for me or others who are fairly nearby. So uh, he took a trip to Vegas uh, for the first time in quite some time. When was the last time you were in Vegas prior to this uh, last trip you took? Oh, man, it's probably been five years or so. Yeah, I think yeah, like, something like that. Was it the last time I met you, like six years ago? Um, 
don't maybe possibly honestly i don't remember yes yeah, so I, I, I will say i'm honored that you would cross state lines for a booty call i mean that's pretty oh, okay amazing. Hey, you're not supposed to, I, 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 not supposed to <laughs> talk about that okay so i did hear with not that much notice kind of like when i start this show it's not not with much notice so i heard without much notice that cal watt was taking a trip Right after I got back from my other trip, from the trip where I played the main event and the mixed Omaha, and then I went back, and I thought I was not going to be returning to Vegas for uh, some time. But then I heard that Cal Watt was coming, and I had only met Cal Watt in person once in my life. And I knew that there weren't a lot of opportunities to see him because of the distance between us. And uh, then I heard Trader Ruski was making the trip as well, that he, in fact, was going because Calwatt was going. So then I thought, okay, you know, that's kind of messed up if the radio co-hosts are getting together. And by the way, Brandon, who already lives in Vegas, was going to be getting together with them too. So they're all going to be going to dinner. And uh, unfortunately, the one who was not going to be there was the one who actually runs PokerFraudAlert.com, which felt weird. So I, I... Really wanted to be there, but on the other hand, I had just come back, and I had been in Vegas a whole lot this summer for the World Series of Poker, so I I wasn't sure if I was going to go the whole uh, 300 miles each way with very little notice, and I was was kind of wavering on it, and then uh, I I ended up thinking, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to decide on Thursday. So I'm going to decide on, this is last Thursday, a week ago. I'm going to decide on Thursday if I'm going to go. So I wake up on Thursday. I go, I haven't decided yet. <laughs> I just couldn't decide if I was going to do this. And, it's a long uh, drive, man. It, it is. I, I I really wanted to be there, but then I had just been there, and I had just done all this driving, and I just I was so going back and forth. And I had comp rooms at uh, Caesars Properties that weekend. So that was something that was, of course, enticing because, you know, it's it's one thing to go there and have to pay for your room. But it's another thing when you can go and uh, the rooms are covered. So I was still hesitating. I should have just booked, but I was hesitating. I'm going, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. What if I decide not to and I've already booked the room and Caesars doesn't want to let me out of it and they want to charge me, which is stupid because they never do. Technically, they can. Technically, I'm agreeing they can when I book it. Even if it's comp, that they can comp me for, they can charge me for canceling, but they never have because I've had to cancel before for other reasons. I've ca- canceled like with super short notice, like with like an hour's notice, and they've let me out of it. So they've never once charged me, and I easily could have gotten out of it. But for whatever reason, I just didn't want to book until I was sure I was going. And then, of course, I went to look when I had decided to go. I was going to go, and I was going to go book the reservation at about uh, eight o'clock. And my comps were all gone. <laughs> well, then uh, Trader Ruski had offered that he would get me a comp room where he was staying at uh, Green Valley Ranch. And uh, Trader Ruski, uh, is that true? It sure is. There, there he is. He's just here with us. He just uh, I say his name like Beetlejuice. He appears. But yes, uh, he, he offered uh, very generously. Well, you guys were staying at the Chicken Ranch? Well, it's it's uh, it's a greener chicken ranch. It's a chicken ranch where there's a lot of greenery. Oh, it's like a vegan chicken ranch. All right. One one person we're missing here, and I feel bad about it, is Brandon because I 
I didn't give Brandon any notice here, and he's at dinner. And then I told him we're going to do this on the next show, but now we're all together, so now I feel bad. Um, but uh, We can me, do it on the next show, too. We can do it in the next yeah. show, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just describing what happened as far as my trip, basically. But anyway, the problem was I needed a room that night. Uh, Trader Risk was able to get me one the following night on Friday. I needed one that night Thursday if I was going to come. So I'm scrambling to see where I could book. Uh, then there were some other issues that I won't get into that where I actually booked a room. So not at a Caesars property, but I booked a pretty cheap room at a, at a different property myself. And then I found some reasons I wasn't going to be able to go that I don't want to get into. So then I had to, like, I brought all my stuff back in. I found this like the last minute. I brought all my stuff back into the house. And I'm just sitting there on the couch. And then then I could go again. So I'm got, like, I'm te- texting them back and forth. I'm going, I'm not going, I'm going, I'm not going. When it was all said and done, I did a very early morning drive, and I came to Vegas. I got there at like 7.30 a.m. on Friday morning, a week ago, but I got there. So when you were talking about that long drive, I was at first I was like, oh, man, that's a, that's a long drive. That's got to be tough to do. But then after the, the trip that I had to Vegas and back, uh, I think you had a pretty easy drive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that Calwatt was, uh, was the victim of a pretty bad uh, airline situation, which is happening more and more often this year. This is a, a bad year to fly, where there's a lot of cancellations, a lot of delays, and uh, a lot of missing your connections, which didn't used to happen nearly as much, where, where it's no fault of your own. So, yeah, CalWatt had some, some pretty bad... Uh, luck there and uh so what i decided to do was i I decided to uh you know go to sleep after i checked in and then meet them for dinner so all four of us got together and we had a nice dinner and uh they actually played a uh a little prank on me which well we'll wait to see if brandon wants to call in here because he's still eating right now he said he just got his food what i thought i thought i was going to be coming and we were going to all meet for dinner at a restaurant near Green Valley Ranch. And we're just all going to pay for our own dinner, as you'd expect, each of us individually. That's what I was expecting. So there was a prank that happened where I was the last one to be there. And while I was on my way, I got a call. And Brandon said to me, do you want to order the lobster because they're running out of lobster? So by the time you get here and sit down, they probably won't have lobster left because they've got like two or three more left in the whole restaurant. Not just any old lobster drove. This was uh, West Australian spiny lobster. That's right. right. West Australian spiny lobster. Did I want any? So, of course, you know the question I asked next. I asked how much it was. Because I wanted the spiny lobster, but I didn't want to pay too much for the spiny lobster. So then Brandon told me it was like $105, and I was like, I don't know about that, because I, I wanted it, but the 105 seemed kind of steep. So I wasn't sure. So I didn't say no. I didn't say yes. I said, let me just decide when I get there. He said, no, but if you get here, it may be gone by then. And I said, I know I understand that, but that's okay. Well, the, the, what I heard from Brandon was that he he heard, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. See, that's not true. <laughs> that's what he heard. That's, That's not true, though. What I said, I haven't decided. I, let me decide when I get there. Now, maybe I said no, no, if he says we're just going to order it. I don't think he said that, though. I think he said, well, 
so do you want to order? I said, no, just, I, I'm not saying no or yes. It's, I'll just decide what I'm there. He's, well, it may not be there. I said, that's fine. If it's gone, it's gone. So that was my attitude that I would still kind of think about it. And if it isn't there anymore, then, oh, well, I won't have it. So it was a little hard to park and find the place. So I get in there. I was told the bad news that the, they made an executive decision and they ordered the lobster for me. So now I was committed to this $105 lobster, whether I liked it or not. And they were expecting I was going to be angry about that and yell at everybody, like, why do you make this decision for me? I told you I'm going to decide myself. They, they really thought that was going to be the reaction. However, I didn't give them that reaction. I, I said, oh, okay, that's fine. Like, I, I thought they were trying to do something nice for me. I believe that they really had ordered it and had to make that decision because they were told that it was just about to run out. And that my statement of wait till I get there, like I, I, I thought that they were thinking of me that I might want it and that uh, they're just going to decide to order it for me. So I'm not feeling left out. So I was shocked. I was shocked. It was because this I, was being done like I, I felt that it was being done like with me in mind in a good way that you guys didn't want me to be the only one without the lobster or something. So I, I thought, okay. Oh, man, I was, so we were all hoping there was going to be a scene, and you're going to be like, what? You did what? And then you're going to run back and try and catch the waitress before the order went out. <laughs> we're, we're hoping for a little bit more glory. Yeah, here. but I was just like, okay, well, that, that's fine. So Because that's really, I think, okay, I guess that's kind of nice. You know, it's not exactly what I wanted them to do, but their heart was in the right place, so good. Well, then I came to find out that this was... A half joke. They had really ordered the lobster for me, but what I was not aware of was that Calwatt was going to be paying for the entire meal. So obviously, the price that I was willing to pay wasn't material, because it's, if it's Calwatt's money, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spend it till he's broke. It's just I, I don't want to waste my own money. So take it easy. With, with Calwatt uh, agreeing that he's going to pay for, not agreeing, offering to pay for everybody. I would never have expected him to, but this was a very generous offer, and he paid for all four of us, and that's why they made the decision to order the lobster for me because they knew if it's price-related and Calwatt's willing to pay, since he's paying for everybody else's lobster, then that shouldn't be what stops me from ordering so they uh so anyway i appreciate cal why you did that it was a good attempt at the prank i understand why you guys thought i would react that way it's just sometimes you, you can't predict what is going yeah, to set we tried. me off yeah we tried. because i when, when i get irritated at these things i get irritated when either i feel money's just like outright being wasted or when like something is being done without regard of what I would want. But when I think something is being done in order to do something in my best interest or is perceived to be my best interest and it's not exactly what I would have preferred, I, I can't be mad at that because it's the, the intent was good. But then the intent turned out to be really good when it turned out that Calwatt was treating everybody. So I appreciated that. The dinner was very good. Uh, I, that, was a, that was some good food, man. So yeah, it was, was good, really very good, good lobster and... Uh, we, we took some pictures. There is a picture of all four co-hosts there, in case you guys are wondering. There's the picture of all four of us there, which we had the waitress take, which I haven't posted yet, but will be posted. Calwatt, you had a pretty uh, expensive ride over to Green Valley Ranch, isn't that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I took a cab there. It was like it was like 60 bucks to take a cab there. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that it is ridiculous. And I, I, I felt bad, especially knowing that Calwatt paid for my meal. I felt very bad. 
So what I did was uh, I said, you cannot pay for a ride on the way back. At the very least, let me drive you back, which wasn't a huge imposition to me because I was going back to the Strip anyway. But I drove him back to his hotel so he didn't have to pay the uh, return 60. And I, I would have even if I was going somewhere else because uh, that would be the least I could do there with a the, with the car. And You're, you're lucky, though, man. We're, if we had more time, we we're going to try and talk to the waitress and have her bring you out like the wrong food and have all the vegetables and everything like mixed together in one thing and I think that would have been t- th- that would have been tougher to talk her into because then that starts to be where I yell at the staff and they may not like that that's what we're hoping for I know but I think they may not want to be in on that type of prank it's one thing to order something for me where you guys make the decision and I'm mad at you but if I'm mad at them give, give her a hundred bucks I bet she'd do it maybe for a hundred bucks she would do it yeah. yeah yeah well that's a well, sorry, this didn't. You didn't get to see me tilting at wait staff or at the rest of you there. I just like okay, that's good. <laughs> Wasn't what you guys were expecting or hoping for, but that's that's what happened. And now, true or false? Were you late to dinner because you were arguing with someone on the internet? No, Is that what happened? No, I was late because I was arguing with someone, but no one on the internet. Uh, what happened mm-hmm. was uh, the place I was staying. There's only so much time you can give to a maintenance issue. And it just kept taking longer and longer. So I kept saying, come on, guys, you got to speed this up. And it was going to take like three visits to fix. So finally, I just said, you know what? I can't do this. That So I, I ended up being late because of that. And I guess I gave them some more time to plan this prank, though. So I guess it wasn't terrible. Something they just I, I couldn't, find that shocking. couldn't fix. Well, they, they, it's, it's annoying, though, when they're going to send someone to fix something and it takes like three visits to fix it when it should take one. And it just the time's yeah. ticking away. So finally, I'm like, you know what? Forget it. Just leave it this way. <laughs> I've got to go to dinner. And I left. And yeah, it's a walk to get other, to, to go to the parking and pull out of there and get in line to get out of the lot because some people have to pay for parking. So all this took time. Anyway. I enjoyed the dinner with you guys here and uh, appreciated that Cal Watt did that. I'm glad that I was uh, ultimately deciding that I would go. It was really something I was on the fence on, and I'm glad that ultimately I did come. And now tell the dr- truth, Druff. Would you have decided quicker if you knew you were getting a free meal out of it? Oh, yeah, yeah 100%. Just- <laughs> if it was a free meal, I would go, oh, this is, like, this is like going to Vegas for a comp. This is like going to Vegas uh, for a good food comp. Okay, yeah, I'm definitely going here. Yeah, that, uh, that would have definitely pushed me over the edge there as far as uh, go or not go. And if you want to see a picture, I, I took a pretty cool picture. You can see it on my Twitter, on twitter.com slash Todd Wittellis. W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S is how you spell my last name. If you want to take a look... You can see that I tweeted out a picture of the sky in the morning driving through the desert. Not too far from Vegas, maybe about uh, 80 miles from Vegas. Just a kind of cool cloud formation in the morning as I was driving through the desert. That was a nice shot. Yeah, you'll have to scroll down a little bit. I took some other pictures of uh, Dodger Stadium at the All-Star Game, but uh, this is before that. So you should scroll down and you'll find the picture I took of the desert if you want to see that. And... Yes, I was there, and I decided to play a World Series of Poker event. And this is actually going to take us to our, our next topic. So at while I was there, the World Series was still going. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to play another event. I already gave my farewell tweet saying that I'm done, that this mixed Omaha min cash I got is going to be the final thing. See you guys next year. The Dandruff Poker Twitter account is shutting down until 2023. So I, I did that whole speech. And then I see that the closer, which is a 
$1,500 semi-turbo event. I say semi-turbo because it is a fast structure. It, the whole thing is supposed to be over in two days. But at the same time, it's not like a super turbo. It's just kind of a faster structure. So anyway, the closer event, which is the No Limit Hold'em event, which has one rebuy, and it's $1,500 buy-in, and it's one of the last events at the World Series of Poker, which is why it's called the closer. It's actually not the last event, so it's kind of a dumb name. It's It's been around for a few years. It's obviously after the main. And I thought, well, this kind of ticks a lot of the boxes of the events I like to play, because of the No Limit Hold'em events I want to play, I do want the buy-in to be a thousand or fifteen hundred, aside from the main. The other, the rest of them, I want to be either a thousand or fifteen hundred. Otherwise, it's too low or too high. The fact that it was uh, one rebuy was good. I don't like these million rebuy things where the top pros can buy in twenty times to assure they're going to move on with a stack. And I also liked that it was a semi-turbo. Usually I don't like that. I like slower structures so I can wait for people to hang themselves. However, I didn't want to devote a lot of time to this because I had already taken a lot of time at the World Series. I wanted something relatively fast, but not blazing fast. So this pretty much hit everything there. And day 1B of this was going to be on Saturday. So I decided that with our dinner on Friday that I was going to go play the closer on Saturday. And I did. Well... I late regged by about two hours, which wasn't a big deal, because even though it's a turbo, it was very deep. So the first two levels don't mean that much. It means a lot more than a limit event. But still, you started with like 50,000 chips, and the first blinds were 100-100. So that's like really deep. So I started at about 2 o'clock, and these were like 11 hours of play in each of these days. So I really didn't want to play 11 hours, plus all the breaks. So I started at around... Two shortly after two, or there was a break at two, so I started like just before the break actually. So I, st- I guess I started right before two. So I sit down and I get the big blind, which you don't have to get. You can sit down and get anything. I happen to get the big blind right when I sit down. I get a full stack, but I get the big blind, which is kind of unlucky. But whatever, blinds aren't that big. Pocket queens right there, bang! Pocket queens right on the big blind. So okay, someone opens from middle position. A European who uh, has direct position on him then three bets it, and it comes back to me. I go, oh, shit, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to get involved in a big hand right here, <laughs> right in the first hand. So then uh, I four bet, and the problem here is that the Euro was already down to less than half stack. He had 22K coming in, and I had 50, the starting stack. So he already made it like 3,000-something, like 3,700, I think. So if I'm going to go over him on this, I've got to make it uh, substantially more. There's not even that much of a point to go over for a small amount because then he's definitely calling. So I uh, I want him to pay to call this, basically. And I know that I'm going to put it in with any uh, non-ace flop, for sure. So uh, I make it like 11,000. First guy instantly folds. Euro instantly goes all in. Well, he only has 22K. I've already put in 11, so obviously it's a snap call. And he has aces. And he gets an ace on the flop, too, just for the good measure. So I'm not out. He only had 22K, but I'm right down to 28 after the first hand. So that wasn't nice. Well, on the break, it turned out that a person at the table, no one involved in that hand, but a person at the table 
was someone who both listens to this show, like every episode, and posts on the forum. I won't say who it is, but it's someone I hadn't met before. And he approached me, and at first he didn't want to say who he was, which I didn't understand, but he was friendly to me. He just didn't want to say who he was, and finally I got him to say who he was, and I'm like, oh, okay. I was happy to meet him. So uh, anyway, he told me about that Euro that I lost the chips to that this Euro actually had put in like 150 big blinds with pocket fives before preflop. So I guess uh, I made the right move without knowing I was making the right move, because if I knew that guy put in that much with fives, then of course I couldn't have put him on aces there. But he happened to have aces. That was unfortunate because uh, what was sucky about that was given who it was, like if he had fives or sixes, he would have put that in just the same. It's not like he was only going to call my re-raise with aces. So anyway, we come back and uh, I was able to grind it back up to like 42-something. In, in not in a very long time. And now I didn't have any good hands. I didn't have any hands that were like uh, ones where I knew I was good. I had aces with six, seven, eight, nine on the board on the turn that I fearlessly bet into because I believed the guy was weak and was going to fold. And I didn't want to induce him to try to push me off. I won that one. I won another one with pocket threes as an underpair to the board. I get three opponents and push them off. So I, I did some work to get myself back to 42K from 28K. And I thought, okay, I'm not that far from the starting 50. I was like at 42 and a half. Well... Then, I mean, this is less than an hour of play total when you, you add all my play together. There was a break in between, but all my play at the table was less than an hour at this point. And I have pocket sevens. I guy opens. I flat. Guy opened under the gun. I flatted with sevens directly to his right or to his left. So I was the next one to act. I flatted with sevens. And then two other guys flat. And the flop comes jack eight, seven, two hearts. So immediately I think, oh boy. I don't think I'm going to be able to get away from this because uh, the pot already is uh, not that small because we had four people in it already from a raised pot. And then the under-the-gun raise are fired. So that forces me to pump the pot up further because I don't want to give anyone a cheap draw with jack-8-7 two hearts. That's uh, something. So I had to think right there, what do I do? You've got the under-the-gun razor, who I'm pretty sure I'm ahead of. I mean, yeah, I could have jacks or eights, but I'm pretty sure I'm ahead of the under-the-gun razor. So he's he fired out, like, I think uh, 4,000 or something on the flop. And 40, I think 4,000, 4,500. The blinds had gone up by then. So I was, yeah, that's what it was. It was 4,500. So I'm thinking, what do I do here? And I'm thinking, I just can't call. With these two guys behind, I can't even just call. I, I have to just raise it. If these guys behind want to chase me, fine. But, uh, you know, what if one of them has hearts? Uh, what if one of them's got uh, a pair in a straight draw? You know, like or like Jack-10, that sort of thing. I, I don't want to make it easy for them to get there and beat me. So if they're, they're going to chase, I'm going to charge them. So I made it 15. I almost just went all in. But I made it 15. And the other two guys behind me shockingly flatted. And I'm like, What? <laughs> That I didn't expect. I didn't expect both the two guys behind to flat. And the under-the-gun razor th- sat there thinking and tossed it. So I think he probably had an overpair and realized he was fucked. So then I realized that uh, if a heart hits the turn, I, I'm probably just done. Because I still have 26k left, I believe. So I was going to actually check fold to a heart that it doesn't pair the board. But I, I had a bad feeling that I was drawing thin or, or almost dead even without the heart. 
but unfortunately I was pot committed at this point because I only have 26K and there's like uh, over 50 in the pot at this point. And I've got a set. So the turn was a total blank. It was like a four of clubs. So that's that someone had five, six, which is unlikely that four didn't change anything. I just had a weird feeling though. I was screwed though. But I go, there's no way I can lay this down. So I went all in for my final 26K. Snap call, snap call. Well, that doesn't mean I'm fucked because they could both have hearts. Well, they didn't both have hearts. One had hearts, but he had the 9-10 of hearts. So he actually flopped the straight and had the flush draw. And the jack, by the way, was not a heart. So he actually had an open-ended straight flush draw and a straight. So that guy just flopped the world to my direct left. And then the other guy had jack-8 for top two pair, which sucks for me because that takes away a ton of outs for me. So now I'm really in trouble because I got to catch either the last seven or one of the remaining three fours. So I had four outs. Otherwise, I'm done. Well, the river was a blank, and I was done. So, okay, whatever. It was a cooler. What can I say? Flop bottom set against top two pair and a straight, which is also a straight flush draw. What are you going to do? So I was out. Wasn't thrilled that I lost $1,500 so fast. And I was just smacked out of that event. It was a pretty good table draw, too. So I was smacked out of that event. But I could rebuy. But I had said beforehand, I'm not going to rebuy. I said, this is going to be my one shot. If I'm not going to put 3K into this. If I bust the first one, I'm not rebuying. I was kind of shaken from this whole thing. I kind of wanted to take a little break and rebuy and take another shot at this. So I sat there in the hallway for about 20 minutes just thinking. Just sat there thinking, thinking, what do I do? What do I do? I was texting people. It's kind of deciding what I want to do. Then I just said, no, I'm going to keep to what I promised myself. And I walked out. So I walked out, got in my car, and I actually drove over to Green Valley Ranch where Trader Ruski had gotten me, uh, or he actually let me take over his room because he was uh, leaving. So I went over to Green Valley Ranch to take over his room, and Trader Ruski was already gone. So I just left the area as the bottom line. I not only left Paris, but I left the whole area. And I said, that's it. I said, I'm going to do it one time. It was gone in less than an hour. Oh, well, that's the way tournaments go sometimes. Well, the only reason I'm telling you this much about that event is because everything you just heard prevented me from being involved in something that was pretty bad. So as frustrating as all that was, it was good I did not rebuy, and it was good that I did not win that hand. And you may have an idea why, because something happened. Not involving me, but something happened. Here's what occurred that night. And I found out about this about uh, 10 p.m. when someone texted me about it. I got a text at about 10 p.m. telling me that there was an active shooter at the Aria and that everybody's taking cover. What? That's huge if true, right? There has not been an active shooter at a casino in my memory. There was the Mandalay Bay shooter, but he wasn't shooting at the casino. He kicked a hole in the window of the Mandalay Bay and was shooting down at a concert below, which was very tragic and a very, very terrible crime. And it killed 60 people and it injured hundreds more. So it was a horrible crime and one of the worst days in... uh, 
Las Vegas history, if not the worst day in Las Vegas history, and a very bad day in American history, for sure, because of one deranged individual. But the fact remains that was not a casino active shooter. Nobody inside the Mandalay Bay was in danger other than that security guard who went up to investigate and got shot as well, but he did survive. But the patrons in the casino were never in danger. An active shooter in a casino is a huge deal. So that was the first thing I heard. So what did I do? I started Googling. I started Googling about active shooter, Las Vegas, shooter Aria, things like that. Nothing came up. I saw nothing. But, you know, Google doesn't pick up these things immediately. So I thought maybe this just happened. I got I got this message that it was happening, and it seemed like this was happening live. So maybe I was hearing this like a minute or two into it occurring. So I was really, really curious what was going on. So I started to think, what do I check next? I thought, well, what about Twitter? There's got to be people tweeting about this or retweeting others' tweets if there really is an active shooter at the ARIA. There's people who are in the poker room at ARIA, obviously. So I thought I'd probably see something there. Well, I did see something of an active shooter, but not at ARIA. I saw a tweet from someone about how there's an active shooter at Paris where the World Series of Poker is and that everybody needs to be safe and take cover. Well, that's even more disturbing to me as a poker player who was just there playing that event. I was thinking, wow, did I really just miss an active shooter at the World Series because I had a cooler earlier in the day and busted? But even if I got lucky that way, I feel awful for all the players there who are getting shot at and maybe killed. So, of course, I got very concerned for my fellow poker players and very afraid to hear some very uh, bad reports of the carnage there. But then I started seeing some other reports. I started seeing reports of an active shooter at MGM. Started seeing reports of an active shooter at Bally's. People were evacuating Bally's as well. So people are running out of both rooms at Bally's and, and Paris at the World Series. People are running out of the MGM Grand. People are running out of the Aria. People are running out of the Bellagio. I heard there's an active shooter there too. And I heard there's an active shooter at New York, New York. Well, despite all of this, there was not one report of anyone getting shot. So how could this be? How could there be an active shooter at like seven different casinos and not a single person got shot? And why is this not like all over the news immediately? Well, finally, Las Vegas Metro PD broke the silence. And and pretty quickly, I shouldn't say finally, they reacted to this pretty quickly. They said that the reports of an active shooter are false. That this is a rumor that it's just simply not true. Well, that's really weird, right? So at 10.38 p.m., Las Vegas Metro PD tweeted, reports of a shooting near MGM tonight are unfounded. Initial reports are a glass door shattered, causing a loud noise which startled people in the valet area. Well, okay, that was on July 16th, 10.38 p.m. We're now six days later. I know a lot more now. Were they correct? Well, mostly. There was no shooting. There was no active shooter. Not at MGM, not anywhere. But was it as simple as they were making it out to be there? No, and there's still some questions we don't quite have an answer to. But there was no shooter. So how did this happen? Even if a glass door did shatter at MGM... 
how could that cause people at Paris and Bally's and other casinos, which aren't even that close to MGM, believe that there is a shooting where they are? There's no way that glass shattering could be that loud. How could this have possibly happened? That was what I was wondering at that point. However, before that got answered, there was a new problem. The new problem was that there's a lot of trampling. The World Series of Poker had people evacuating in panic, in absolute panic. And they didn't care who they ran over in the process. Everybody just wanted to get out of that room. They believed there was an active shooter in the room. Not sure why, but they believed there was an active shooter in the room. Everybody wanted to get out of there and not get shot. And if someone fell on the ground, you had to step on them. Oh, well, you step on them, which I think is pretty cold. I mean... I don't see how you do that. It didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter if it was a dude, a woman, whatever. People of both genders got stepped on, got trampled. Daniel Negranu was one who got trampled. And uh, his hand looks just absolutely awful. He tweeted a picture of his hand where Twitter, Twitter actually warns you of sensitive content before you click on it. And you'll see why when you click on it. It looks like it's out of a movie. It looks like just... The skin on his hand, on the bottom of his hand, got ripped off. Now, it's not his entire hand. It's probably the bottom quarter of his hand, kind of near his wrist, a little above his wrist. But it looks very, very ugly. You can see the bone in there. It's, it's uh, pretty gross. Wow. And he, he tweeted. That. That's crazy. Yeah, he tweeted how my WSOP ended with a picture of that. So that's going to take a while to heal. I don't know if he's going to have permanent damage from it. It's going to take a while to heal at the very least. So he got trampled on, his, at least his hand was. He must have gone down and they stepped on his hand. Uh, then several others reported injuries from being trampled, some minor, some more than minor. To my knowledge, no one suffered major injuries to the point where they were hospitalized or their life was in danger, but there were some who were injured badly enough where they could not walk for the time being, that their legs hurt so much they couldn't put pressure on their legs and things like that. So uh, there were a number of injuries at the World Series as a result of all the trampling from the panic of people running out. Also, as you can imagine, people weren't all that worried about their chip stacks when they thought this was happening. So some tables were overturned in all the commotion. Some tables were just kind of banged and the chips mixed together. So that was another problem. There was a photo that was released of people actually hiding under tables. There's one where there's uh, a few guys hiding under a table that is tilted up. So obviously any chips there must have fallen off unless it was an empty table. I don't know what this table is going to do to protect them. I guess if the bullets came from that direction, they're fine. But the other direction, they're totally exposed. It's just a poker table and it's kind of tilted up on the chairs surrounding it. But I've seen that picture that's been going around. Oddly enough, some people were not phased by this and, and sat at the table without even leaving. Some just sat. I don't know what they were thinking. They ended up being correct, but they there were some people, there were pictures of people just kind of sitting there throughout all the commotion. One of the people who had to deal with this is a Poker Fraud Alert listener, and he volunteered to come on and tell us about it. This is uh, Jason Lippiner, who's been listening for a while, and Jason is uh, a Vegas local. And he was there, I think, in a different event that day. And he unfortunately was caught within the whole trampling. 
So we're going to hear from him about what he went through there and what the scene was like. Now, does that prove that uh, poker is a sport because of all those injuries? That's a good question. It might be. That's true. It finally had a physical element to it, more than just a fight. All right, Jason, hello. (laughs) Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Hi, thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. So you were there at the World Series on July 16th in the evening, which fortunately uh, I was shown the door early and was no longer there. Otherwise, I would have been right there in the room with you. Were you you in uh, Paris or Bally's? Paris. Paris, okay. And uh, so you were there for something different. You were not there for the uh, the closer, right? No, I was actually um, going to go play the closer, and then Alan Kessler busted, and I asked him if he thought if it, if he thought it was worth playing, and he said no. It's a terrible deal. The the structure sucks, and he begged me to go eat dinner with him at the M. <laughs> so I had to go over there anyways because I had, <laughs> I had to go over there anyways because I had to cash out um, my. Uh, Bravo account, and I had a previous cash I had to cash, so I was planning to go over there to play the closer, but anyways, I was, so I went to eat dinner with Alan at the M, and then um, a friend of mine wanted to play the, the 9 p.m. deep stack, $200 deep stack, and so I said, well, yeah, let's just go do that. I haven't played one of those all summer, and I'll go cash out my um, stuff, so I think I got there. I got there a little bit late, like maybe around 9.30, and oh wow! So you so you just wow that is unlucky. You you got there just before this all happened. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it probably happened at like ten something, um, ten fifteen or something along those lines, right? Yeah, it was somewhere. Yeah, something a little after ten o'clock, I think. So okay, so, so you were there, and I'm you know what's funny? To, as yeah. a, and a side note here, I, I hate to interrupt here, but you you mentioned a, a dinner at Allen with the M. Allen keeps getting these comp dinners at the M Casino, which is the very southern yeah. end of Vegas. And he actually ha- puts out open invites on Twitter for anyone who responds to him that they can come down and have uh, the dinner on his comp. I- I've wanted to do this. I just have never been able to do it. Uh, it's never matched with when I'm there and when I'm available. But uh, in early June, I actually was able to make it. I just did not see it until what I thought was too late. So I'm trying frantically to get a hold of Alan and say, hey, you know, is there room for me to come? By the time he answered me, it was too late. Like by the time I drove down there, you guys would have been like mostly through the meal or halfway through the meal. So I said, forget it. Well, everybody's fortunate. I did not come that night because I did not know it, but I had COVID and I was very trans, uh, very contagious. That was like the, the highest chance you would have gotten it from me would have been that night. So it's the day before symptoms. Okay. So, so, so they were, they were fortunate. Yeah. They were, Alan was, was, was fortunate. He didn't answer me, but anyway, uh, go back. Uh, let, let's return to this story here. So, so it, you showed up at 9.30, yeah. played the deep stack, and then what happened? Yeah, so I was playing, and then uh, everything was normal. And then I get a text from my wife saying, shooting at Cosmopolitan, no other, no elaboration. And she doesn't usually text me when she knows I'm playing poker. So <laughs> I kind of looked down and saw that and was like, hmm. But I didn't really have much time to process it, maybe 10, 15 seconds. I think, I don't think I was in the middle of a hand, but I just remember, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I looked down at the phone, see the text, and then, you know, I probably was just about to say something to the table or something like that, because obviously I see shooting Cosmopolitan, I'm thinking, oh, that's not too far away, so maybe, 
maybe I need to get away from this table or, you know, not that I have any, I mean, I didn't have time to even think about that. Honestly, I just, but it was already in my mind that there's a shooting cosmopolitan. So, and I'm guessing that a lot of people in that room got similar texts. So I see the text and 10 seconds later, I see, you know, you were at the Paris room. So you would know like the deep stacks are kind of in the far side of the room where the, where the emergency exits would be. Yeah. And the closer was more towards the, the front of the room where, where you enter the room. So all those people in the closer started running towards the deep stack section. I mean, it was like, it really did look and sound like a stampede. So I actually was facing away from the closer. So I actually heard it and then turned to see the people running towards me. And my initial instinct was, Oh my God, there's a shooting. I need to get the hell out of here. And everybody just got up within moments. So, so you and, saw, no, did you see just this big group of people running towards you or were, did you get up around the same time they did? No, they were they were running towards us in the deep stacks before anybody in the deep stack section got up. So, and they were running towards us. So, you know, it, it seemed like whatever the threat was 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 towards that way, and that's why they were all coming this way. I mean, I you know, you don't really have much time to process it, but when you see people running towards you, obviously the the obvious thing to think is the threat is in the other direction. Yeah, so you, you thought they were running away from some threat over there, and you had just gotten a text about a shooter right. at Cosmo. So it does make sense in your brain that the, that some shooter now has shown up here and uh, at, at Paris, and that that person has shown up on that side of the room, and now everyone's uh, scrambling yeah. out of there. And I'm guessing other people got the, the same kind of text. You know, you said you said you got a text shooting at um, at Aria, yeah. Or did you say Aria? Right. Yeah. So everybody's probably getting these texts at the same time and then you know you you hear you see a herd of people running and obviously you just you just don't even have time to think you just get up and run and so i ran towards the uh, i'm sorry before we get to where you ran uh did you hear anything prior to the crowd getting up and running did you hear any boom or anything like that did you hear anything that would have no. startled people no nothing okay nothing that's interesting. Okay, so go on. So you started running, and you, you ran out the door. Did you get out the door? Well, I see the people coming at me, so obviously I jump out of my chair, but then everybody just gets up at the exact same moment. And people knocked over some chairs and stuff, so the, as I was just basically running away from my table, I hadn't even gotten a couple feet, and somebody knocked me like, like on my shoulder or whatever, and there was a chair that had already, like somebody had already um, tipped over and was in the middle of the aisles. Because, you know, there's there's those, the tables aren't that far away from each other. So if one chair gets knocked over, that can completely block the, the passageway. So I got knocked and I basically tripped over that chair that was, you know, somebody had gotten up and knocked over their chair. I mean, that that was probably the biggest biggest problem was that there were so many chairs that had gotten knocked over and people were probably, you know, tripping over the chairs. And So, so know, what happened to you? You, you, you tripped over a chair, you, you tripped over a chair and were on the yeah. floor. Now, now was anyone running on top of you at yeah, that point? I was on the floor, but it, I mean, I was on the floor for, you know, a split second. I mean, cause I, I know I was on the floor cause I remember falling and I had 
the scrapes all over my legs, but I got up instantly and ran out of there. Okay, so that's good. But I mean, that's good think, that you did, you weren't down yeah. long enough for them to run run over on top of you. You could have gotten much worse uh, injured. No, no, no. Nobody, no, nobody ran on top of me, and there weren't that many people in the deep stack section. I mean, it was you know very sparsely populated over there. So I, I'm, I think like in the closer, and then it looked like the the people that suffered the worst injuries were over in the five um, k no limit tournament, which was next to the closer. Um, and I, you know, I don't know exactly what the situation was, but it looked like, you know, that tape, that tournament was still pretty full. They're on day one and they have a slower structure. So they probably had a much, you know, more dense area to clear out. I mean, it, like, like the tournament I was in, there were only like five or six tables yeah. in the whole tournament. And then there was another deep stack going on, but they were already at the final table. So there really weren't many people over in the deep stack section. So you know, fortunately for me and fortunately for everyone over there, it didn't seem like anyone in that section really got hurt or trampled. Um, so so, but, so what, yeah, what happened, the, the injuries you got, so you got some scrapes, and uh, I think you mentioned uh, your glasses got broken? Yeah, my glasses just fell right off my face. Um, part of the reason might have been because I'm wearing a mask, so my glasses are already prone to just slipping right off my face easily when I'm wearing a mask, but they just flew on the floor and I didn't even have time to look for them or grab them. So my vision's actually not that bad without them. So it's not like, it's not like I was blinded when they fell off, but, um, yeah, the glasses I just left behind. So now and when I was able to get, come back later, they were all shattered. So somebody must've stepped on them or something. Yeah. Well, okay. So, and when you went back, uh, once you got out of the room and you got into the hallway, what was it like there? Okay, so it's um, so it's not like a it's not like a public hallway. It's the employee corridor. Oh, so you went right into the employee out of the door. Okay, so you came into the employee corridor. You didn't go towards a regular public hallway. Yeah, it's all those all those doors in the back side of the room lead to like a, a, a I mean, it's a big corridor. It's an employee corridor, and then there's like um, you know, I don't know. It's not really like a kitchen, but it it seemed like more of a stock room where they had a bunch of cases, of drinks, and um alcohol and stuff like that and the guy was like uh, somebody that would look like they were in um probably a certain like a cocktail server or something like that was waving or maybe a bartender he was probably a bartender he was waving everyone into his room so um everyone just went into that room i mean he just he was just waving everyone in oh so, so they were so that who, it was an employee was, was waving you guys into the employee section no, no, no. We were already in the employee section, like the the employee corridor. Yeah. But then there's like another room that's beyond on the other side of like the big hallway. Like, so you walk out of the, you walk into the employee corridor and then, then in the other side of the corridor, there's like another door that opens up, up into this room that's like a stock room where they have a bunch of supplies. And then there's also like a, like a, a big, uh, open door freezer in there and stuff like that. I mean, I'd never been in there before, but I was just going where the guy was waving everyone to go. So, Okay. And um, so, so. so was this place you were directed into? Did it have any escape or were you guys all kind of in a closed room with one door that if a gunman, if one had existed, came in there, you'd have been screwed? Yeah. So that's the thing. I was, I'm looking around this room. For, I mean, it's not that big of a room, maybe 
couple hundred square feet and there were probably about maybe 40 of us in there. Um, and I'm looking around the room and I'm not saying anything. The only thing, the old, basically the only door in that room besides back into the corridor was the, um, was the open door. There was the freezer. I actually thought about a couple people actually went into the freezer, but then I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, yeah, that's not going to do me. <laughs> that's not going to do me much good. So yeah, I'll just stay it, here. And it, then like within, within like a, a minute, um, they closed the door and then the, the guy who was, I guess was the bartender said, don't worry, this door is locked. Nobody can get in here from the outside. And I actually said to the guy, like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, it's locked. Nobody can get in. And, so you know, it's, it's, it's probably true. You know, in the, in these situations, you kind of think of a movie where they're going to shoot at the doorknob and it's going to fall off and they're going to open up the door. In reality, not only doesn't it work that way, but these active shooters, they like to go after whatever is the easiest target. So they don't want to go messing with locks and trying to bust into locked rooms and because that uh, it's a challenge they don't need when there's other people around there that they could go after who are not behind locked doors. And of course they're risking that uh, the police are going to come there or security is going to shoot them. So they, they they want to stay on the move themselves. They don't want to screw with locked doors here. It probably was safe in there, even if there had been a real shooter, which uh, there wasn't. So how long were you in there? Yeah, so we're in there for so Kevnap was in there, so um everybody was asking him, you know, what's going on and obviously he had no idea. Yeah. They think he's, he's gonna have the phone, they you know, think he's time. gonna have the info just because he's Kevmap. It's, it's like, I don't know why <laughs> he was, bothering me is like guys, I know I know as much as you do. He's like, you know, I can I can tell you about the, the structure in tomorrow's deep stack, but I, I can't tell you about this shooter. Sorry. Yeah. So everybody's on their phones getting texts. And then one guy says, Oh, I like, I tell everyone, my wife just said, there's a shooting at Cosmo. And then somebody else says, uh, okay. I was just told there was a shooting at, at, um, in front of Paris, but the guy went out onto the street <laughs> and then, or no, that was actually after I got out of the room. But then another guy says, there's a shooting at MGM. So my initial thought was, wow. Okay. There's like a mass terrorist shooting event going on all over the strip. Like, that was my worst case scenario that I was drawing up in my head. But then after like 30 seconds to a minute and I didn't hear any gunshots or anything, I'm thinking, is there really something going on here? And people started asking, like, is there, is there any, did anybody hear a gunshot? And you know, everybody's asking that there's a couple women in there that are freaking out, like, and good crying. So we're trying, you know, not to get too. Yeah. I was going to ask that next. I was going to ask what was the mood in the room? Like, was everybody panicking? Was everybody just kind of like sitting there in shock? But from what it sounds like you're saying is that uh, there are a few women crying and the, the dudes were trying to hold in there any, any emotion they had. Is that, is that a good description of what was going on there? Yeah. I mean, nobody was, nobody was, I would say was like completely freaky out. I mean, there was, yeah, at least two women I remember that were in there kind of crying and not really knowing what was going on. But, I, you know, I don't – I think, like, you know, it was pretty quickly everybody realized that, okay, we're safe. There might not even be anything going on. Whatever's going on might be far away from us. You know, it it, it seemed kind of – it seemed to kind of clarify itself pretty quickly that we weren't in immediate danger. So – yeah, I mean, obviously, if we had heard like gunshots and stuff, I'm I'm assuming the mood in the room would have been a lot different. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that I mean, that's we, crazy. We're, we weren't hearing anything, and then everybody's getting texts that you know there's a shooting here, there's a shooting there, but you know, so yeah, that that's really crazy. So, so how long total would you say you were in that room before you were let out and told that everything's fine? 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure, but I would say it was probably somewhere between like seven to ten minutes. It wasn't, it wasn't too long. Okay, so it wasn't that long, yeah. Um, no, 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 it wasn't that long, and it started to become clear that like there wasn't an immediate threat. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm in this room. There's no exit to this room. Like, even if there is something going on, maybe I should get out of this room and go to an exit. Because I called my friend who I was playing the deep stack tournament with, and he said that he was outside. He like he said he because there's a way to get outside, but that's not what the way I went. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, well maybe I should just get outside the building. Maybe that's a safer place to be. Well, yeah, for sure. If you can get there, it's the safest place. I don't know. Go to Ellis Island or somewhere. Well, yeah, where you can just okay. run down the street, whatever. <laughs> like, uh, if you're yeah, out somewhere if, where it's maybe safer. So. Yeah, if if you're outside then, and, and there's not someone chasing you outside or or shooting the second you open the door, then it's it's very much safer because there's any direction you can go. So you just look at where it looks like there's nothing going on and start running that way. Right, right, right. But then, like, I think it was. I'm not sure if it was Kevin, Kevin Math or someone else, but somebody said like it's okay, it's safe to go in there. Um, there's no shooter. Like somebody made it real clear that there was no shooter. So, and we all just kind of really, we treaded out of the room real cautiously. And then we saw other people and then it was kind of clear that, uh, there's nothing going on, but I didn't go back in the ballroom. I actually, well, I actually did what I, what I said I was going to do. I went outside and then I saw, uh, like a, a bartender or server. One of the guys in the, in the server type clothes, he was smoking a cigarette. He's like, yeah, there's nothing going on. He's like, <laughs> He's like, believe me. He's like, he's like, don't worry. Those guys with AK forty sevens in there, nothing's gonna happen. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a good point. He's like, there's nothing happening in there. Don't worry about it. He's just chilling out there, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> I'm like, okay, there's just really nothing. <laughs> well, that's, that, okay. that's really that's a yeah, that's a crazy experience there. That whole thing to go from just playing a deep stack event to that, and I'm glad I was not there for it, and. Yeah, I'm sure there was a yeah. short period of time where you were you really concerned at any point. Like, was was there a point where you thought, okay, I might die today? Well, probably like when I was running into that room, you know, like for those few seconds, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself because the thought had crossed my mind, and I think a lot of people did because of the shootings that had happened this summer. That you know, wow, what if somebody tried to shoot up the World Series? Um, you know, there's so many people in one room. So that thought had crossed my mind, not that day, but, you know, probably a month ago. And um, so for those few seconds, I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's happening. Just what I thought, you know, might happen, it's happening. But then it, it actually, I actually wasn't that scared. I wasn't that panicked. I mean, I'm not the type, I'm the type to get scared and panicked if something, you know, really is happening. But no, I was fine. I, I was, I never like. I never freaked out or anything. I mean, it, it, I, I actually think it wasn't that bad. The only thing is it sounds like the people that were in the, were in the other tournament areas where they got trampled and stuff, you know, that was probably the worst part of it was those people having to go through those injuries and stuff. Now, when you but came I out, I didn't really see any of that stuff till I went back in the room. And, when you came out finally and you were in the hallways and everything was fine, did you see anyone, who is on the floor or being treated from being injured in the panic and the trampling. So they had, they quickly set up like a first aid area inside the ballroom um, near the, how did I describe it? Um, 
kind of kind of near the hallways where you first walk into the room they set up like an area it's just kind of a makeshift area with the emts with all their backpacks and stuff and they were there was this one guy that was on the floor but he was you know he was clearly conscious looked like he just had maybe some kind of back injury or leg injury i don't know um but then there were like a bunch of people that have that were bloodied like um like um, Daniel Negrano was in there and then Yuval Bronstein had blood on his face. And hmm. there was one guy that had a shirt, you know, his shirt was, I guess it got ripped off. So he was shirtless and there was like blood running down his, his, uh, his chest. So, it, but, that, but all those people were like, it was, it was near where they were running the five. So I think that's where the worst trampling and injuries happened was actually where the five K tournament was being played. Hmm. Yeah, it, it so, sounds like it. So, uh, Trey yeah. Ruski and uh, Calwat, either of you have any questions for Jason before we let him go? I got a question for Jason. What's happening, Jason? Hey, um, did you hey. did you feel at all like um, any of the staff was prepared for something like that? I mean, I know it's hard to prepare, but you would think with everything going on in the world, maybe they had some type of direct people that way or something. Or was it was just pandemonium. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as pandemonium. I mean, of course the chips were all over the table, but, um, like it seemed like the, their, their number one priority was actually to protect the, the tables and the chips and stuff like that. And they had, um, the floor staff was like yelling at people that were walking into the table areas. But other than that, it seemed like they really had no clue what to do. I mean, it, they, it, it was clear that they weren't prepared like from a first aid perspective or anything like that. They were, it seemed like their number one priority was just to protect the, the chips and the tables. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's understandable because they knew that they're, you know, they probably had gotten the clue. They probably found out from the police and all that, that there was no threat to them. They're thinking besides treating the people that had obvious injuries, they're thinking, okay, we need to protect the tables or whatever. So, yeah, they definitely uh, need to think this. I mean, no, they, they definitely did not have like a – it seemed like they were definitely not trained to deal with that situation. They need to come up with a plan for future years, whether it is a real active shooter or even just some kind of panic situation like this. Something about how to handle all of this type of stuff. I know there's only so much they can do, but uh, something where where they have the staff has some sort of uh, – training on exactly what to do in this situation that might have made it uh, a little bit better. I, the question has been asked a lot of times to me, and I don't really have that answer, but I, I've asked it to Eric Benzamokin about whether those who were injured there could have any kind of real legal case against Paris or Bally's, you know, being Caesars, of course, if they, you know, if they got injured where some kind of negligence could be alleged. And my initial belief was no, because everybody kind of just panicked and started running and people got trampled, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, could the casino be blamed for this? I think the only way would be trying to say that either the staff wasn't trained properly and could have prevented it or that the the exits were not sufficient and that everyone exiting at once caused this problem, and if the exits had been sufficient, then 
this wouldn't have happened. I guess maybe that argument could be made. Uh, when I asked Eric, I was going to have him come on here, but uh, I guess he's not available tonight, and I didn't give him advance notice about the show. It's not his fault, but uh, uh, I had asked him, though, privately if he thought that there could be any kind of successful legal action, and he said no. However, um, I've become aware that there are attempts already in progress to actually sue Caesars over this. So I guess we'll see if this uh, ends up going yeah. anywhere. Yeah, I sent you the... Um, somebody tried to to um, solicit me into calling a, a law firm or something like that. But yeah, look, what you said again, there... I'm, yeah. I'm kind of I'm, I'm on the same page. I don't really see... Like, you, you can't just sue them because you got hurt. You have to prove that they did something negligent or... Right. It's kind of like... I, I got... I broke three ribs in Caesars eight years ago, and I didn't even think of suing them because it was because I was sick and I got dehydrated and I fainted in the room. And when I just slammed against the ground uncontrollably, then three ribs broke. And yeah, the Caesars carpet was kind of hard, but uh, yeah, I can't sue them for having hard <laughs> carpet. You know, what am I going to do? So uh, that, that was just my own body doing that to me. And it was unfortunate. It took 11 weeks to get better, but there was nobody to sue. And uh, this is, I know, different, but still, sometimes just because you get injured at a particular property doesn't mean that they have any kind of fault and you can't just uh, win a judgment against them. But it doesn't surprise me that someone's attempting to do this. And I, I saw what you sent me, and it's very possible that they'll try and Caesars will just say F you, or they may offer a very small token settlement and then say F you if the guy doesn't take it. I don't know. You know, to to get any kind of settlement though beyond like seven hundred fifty dollars you have to convince their insurance company that they at least had some fault and it would actually be the insurance yeah. company settling and I have a feeling given the number of people involved, the insurance company's gonna say no because I think they'd be afraid if they pay anybody, then they're gonna have to pay anyone else who hears about it and wants to come forward for their injury, so I have a feeling that they're just going to give a blanket no to all this, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere, and Eric said he didn't think it would. Maybe we'll be proven wrong, but I have a feeling that any lawsuit there is not going to be successful. We have some attorneys who listen to this show besides Eric, so you guys can feel free to chime in via text. Uh, just about every one of them listens in the archive, so I won't be getting this during the segment. But uh, I I will discuss sometimes like a legal matter where I kind of I'm wondering about something and then I'll get texts like in the coming days after I put it up in the archives where they comment on it. So if you guys want to comment on it, I'd be interested to hear what your take is on this and uh, what Eric told me. I so that when, was what I thought in the first place. So one other interesting thing that happened was they so actually after about an hour and a half they started the deep stacks up again. The other tournaments they bagged, but the deep stacks just kept on playing. And there were some people that left and didn't come back because so they had these dead stacks. So um, I don't know exactly how they resolved it, but I saw the guy take the, take the floor, take the stacks out of play. And then they lowered the entries by at least five people. Um, and it was just a $200 tournament, so I don't feel like making us think about it. 
I saw some someone yeah, had uh, someone never came back. I think from that final table you were talking about, and he finished eighth. I saw that they were tweeting like for that guy to come back and uh, collect his money that he blinded out and finished eighth. Like how often does someone blind out oh, and finish eighth know, in a I, live tournament? Yeah, I, so there were so there were a couple other deep stacks that started earlier. I think that one was probably already at the final table, so they knew they probably couldn't get away with that. But our tournament was still. I mean the. The registration was still open in our tournament when this happened. So they didn't let any new people register the tournament, but they we played the tournament out. But those there were some stacks that they that they didn't. Oh, actually, I saw a tweet. WSOP tweeted that anybody that had played in the two hundred dollar deep stack that hadn't like the it it said something like if you don't come back for the next five minutes, we're going to take your chips out of play and you get a refund. Yeah, so that's I, just what they did, I guess. I, I, I heard that, that uh, in in the uh, in the closer that what happened was uh, when everybody finally came back, that uh, all of a sudden, uh, men the master was a chip leader. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if anyone in those like the five Ks, I'm guessing there were some people that didn't come back just from injuries or trauma. Well, you know I, I, I don't know about the five K. I know about the closer. There were there was. Uh, some of that going on and there were some complaints that they were continuing it on day two in fact uh cherish andrews who's a fairly prominent uh, female poker player she got injured in this whole trampling from the closer and she was asking for them to not come back to day two and just to do what's known as an icm chop now, an ICM chop, for those of you that don't know, is where there's a uh, a formula used to calculate what everybody's current stack is would be worth in real money. Like, uh, if everybody was average and had average luck, uh, you know, what place would they finish? So, like, it's it's calculated exactly what your stack is worth. So, if somebody with a very short stack. Each chip is worth a lot more than someone with a big stack. Why? Because the person with the biggest stack, they can't win all the money because you know the, the best you can do is first place money and also the person with the biggest stack is not at all guaranteed first place and the person with a short stack even though they have very few chips uh they are still in it and they could still theoretically get lucky and finish in first so it's one of these things where per chip a short stack is worth more than a big stack but of course the bigger stacks are, are getting a lot more payment if you're doing what's known as an ICM chop. So it's it's a formula to determine and a computer does it of what what your stack is worth with uh, uh in real dollars at this moment. And some people were asking for them to just cancel this and do an ICM chop for everybody. One of the people asking was Cherish Andrews who claimed she was injured and uh not only couldn't walk that day but also was psychologically damaged from everything that had happened and that she just was not even in the mood to come back and play day two, that she didn't feel like she was in that state of mind. So she was asking for an ICM chop, and this was not allowed. They, this was just fell, basically fell on deaf ears, and uh, she said she's not coming back. Forever. Well, I don't know about forever, but she said she's not coming back to this event, that she'll just blind out, whatever. Oh, okay, okay. And and uh, I know some others 
chose also not to come back on day two. Now, if you had a tiny stack and you're injured, I could see why you wouldn't come back. If you're near the chip leader, it's it's <laughs> hard not yeah, to. Cool. I don't know what Cherish's stack was at the time. I actually responded to Cherish's tweet. Remember, I had busted from the event about uh, seven hours before this whole thing occurred. But I responded saying, hey, look, I'll take any refund. Thank you very much and good night. So I was uh, happy to get anything. I actually had a brief hope that they would, I didn't think it was going to happen, but like a very outside brief hope that they'd say, you know what? We can't reconstruct everybody's ship stack because everything got too messed up. Um, (laughs) We're we're just going to pay something uh, like a set amount to uh, everybody in the tournament. That's going to give a refund to everybody or something like that. I was, I had a brief hope that I'd get a refund for my earlier bust. I wasn't going to lie about it and say I was still in the room at uh, 1030 when this happened. But uh, if I would have gotten a refund, even a partial refund, I would have been thrilled, but I wasn't expecting it, nor did I deserve it because I busted before any of this happened, but I wouldn't have turned it down if it was given it to me. But anyway, uh, some people said they couldn't come back and Cherish was one of them. And some people were criticizing the World Series for making the decision to play on the following day. But I understand why they did play on. Like I don't think you could just do an ICM chop at that point, especially because the number of people injured to where they couldn't come back was relatively small compared to the remaining field. If like half the people got injured, that's when you do the ICM chop. But if it's uh, a small percentage, it's it's kind of unfortunate for them. Now, they were told by the WSOP official Twitter account to contact uh, either Ty Stewart or Jack Effel, someone along those lines, and see what could be done for them. So it's possible maybe the World Series privately done, did some things for a few people who suffered major enough injuries to where they couldn't come back. But they did... Yeah. try to reconstruct the stacks as well as they could, the ones that got knocked over. They do have cameras there, and everything played on. It did end up being a three-day event, the closer, instead of two because of this interruption. But it might have anyway, because I thought two was kind of aggressive given the size of the field. So it may have been three days even if it had not occurred. But I, I understand the decision to keep playing. Now, of course, uh, there were side controversies, controversy that spawned from this as always happens in poker. So I was going to say, I, my wife was telling me, please come home, you know, cause she was shaken up by the whole thing, but I had to like reinsure, no, it's fine. But I actually, I told her, I'm like, come on. I, cause at that point I had like three times a starting stack. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to leave the stack. Right. You know? I'm not coming to go. A small stack I might've considered, but yeah. There's, so there's no shooter here. I ain't coming yeah. home. I'm uh, sitting back to my big stack here. Yeah, because even if even if they give me a refund, it's still a really shitty deal for me. Yeah, that is. So. By the way, here's some comments from other people who were there. Michael Trivet posted on Twitter: "Got home and could barely put any pressure on my leg, and knee skimmed up really bad. A chance I tore something. Got to ice it and see if swelling goes down." And he had said earlier that he fell and got trampled. That's what caused this. Vanessa Cade. She released a video where she described what happened. Now, I don't know if everything she says there in this video is correct because there was no independent verification of the second part, which I'm going to play and uh, discuss there. So listen to this. There's no audio on the last video because uh, on the way out, my headphones got caught on the door and I realized they were still plugged in, so the microphone didn't work. But um, 
we were sitting at the table and uh, we were just talking about how there were reports of an active shooter over at MGM and Aria. Uh, and I had literally just finished saying the sentence that I was trying not to think about it very much because it would be a super fucked up thing to happen for us because we have so many people gathered in such a small area and just as I finished that sentence there was a loud noise at the other end of the Paris ballroom and everybody stood up and just started running all at once. Um, I was at the far corner close to the door so I got out the door and then I was heading out towards um, the exit to outside and I tripped and fell in the doorway. I think somebody maybe pushed me by accident or something but then I couldn't get up and uh, people Luckily, somebody saw and came back and said, like, let her get up and kind of stop everybody around and, like, lifted me up or I wasn't going to be able to get up. And then we all ran outside to the parking garage in this direction. And as we got there, there was, like, a truck that peeled out really quickly and um, everybody kind of didn't know where to go. We scattered a little bit and then just stood out there pretty far from the inside of the Paris ballroom here. And after about 15 minutes, um, someone from the floor came out and said that some kids have been going around to like MGM and Aria and went in and like threw in a bunch of firecrackers to heavily populated areas which make everybody think that there's an active shooter and then peeled out of here so the truck that we saw was probably them basically peeling out of the parking lot so they brought everyone back in like I don't even want to be in here none of the dealers want to be in here they're like people crying super fucked up my knee my knee is like all fucked up so yeah, I'm not really sure what they're going to do. Half the players aren't going to come back, for sure. Like, it's a mess in there. The tables are all jostled and, like, chips are all over the place. People are partway through hands and stuff. I don't know if they just ICM chop what's left or give everybody refunds or what, but, you know, I feel like all the tournaments that are going on in there, including the 10K Day 2 and all this other stuff, feel like they're fucked down. So, uh, not sure what's... I've fallen, and I can't get up! That was Vanessa Cade there in the hallway of the Rio. She fell and she could not get up, but a good Samaritan blocked everybody from trampling her and then got her up. And it turned out that was Eddie Sabat. It wasn't even an unknown player. It was Eddie Sabat who did this, she later revealed. That was pretty brave of Eddie to do this for Vanessa. I don't know if they're friends or he just saw a woman on the ground or saw Vanessa and uh, just said, oh, I know Vanessa. I'm not going to let them trample her. So... Uh, he somehow stopped the running crowd. And, no, 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 don't don't step on Vanessa. Don't do it. Don't do it, guys. Just because you're jealous she keeps uh, winning big tournaments, don't don't step on her face. Just because she annoys you on Twitter, don't step on her face. So he blocked everybody and picked her up. So she ended up not getting hurt. And uh, I don't know about this thing she said at the end. She said that something about a truck of, of teenagers throwing firecrackers to scare people. I mean, it would kind of make sense, right? That would kind of make sense why everybody thought something was happening. But as I will explain, there was someone caught and arrested for breaking that window at MGM. And it was not a teenager. The guy wasn't anywhere near a teenager. So what was the chances that this guy smashed a window at MGM and then some teenagers separately were all ready with firecrackers to go to other casinos and make people think that uh, shootings were going on. These would have had to be some pretty on-the-ball and quick teenagers who could travel the strip very quickly. So I don't think that's true. I think it's one of these things where either a story just kind of went around where people thought they saw something that they didn't 
or you know there happened to be teenagers there but they weren't throwing any firecrackers it's just one of these things where you think you see something and it ends up not being true i don't think vanessa's making this up i'm just saying that i don't think that is what was really happening though i kind of believed it when it was said but then later on i said no it's not that likely jason did and she heard a, a big sound. Did you hear any of that or nothing? Yeah, that's. Are we in the same hotel as you were, though? Do you know? Yeah, she was in the same ballroom, but it it sounded like she probably went to another area. She said the parking garage. I I never. I wasn't anywhere. I wasn't in the parking garage when I had that. So it's possible she heard something. Space. Your ears are probably. Yeah, you probably start hearing things or whatever, exactly. And then, um, are you, like, have you been playing since? Like, do you find yourself, like, a little more sensitive to things or with everything going on? No, I no, guess, no. No, as a matter of fact, yeah. as a matter of fact, we played that night, and I, it, it never even, uh, it didn't bother me one bit. I mean, I knew that it was just a freak event. And, uh, right, right, right. No, um, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's that, crazy. You know, some people like they do have all those armed, uh, those armed security guys all over the place. So there, there is a legitimate case to be made when people say that it's actually a pretty safe place to be, even though they say those guys are there to guard the money or something like that. I can't imagine that somebody would try to open fire in one of those rooms with, with all the security, armed security all over the place. So. Uh, the controversy that happened regarding people's reaction on Twitter was kind of interesting. And I'll tell you, I was kind of in the middle on this whole thing. Uh, there were some Twitter tough guys who were acting like, this is no big deal. That, so what? So, you know, if there was no actual shooter. So, you know, had I been there, I wouldn't have worried for a second, they would say. Or, you know, you're a pussy for even thinking for a second that you were in any kind of danger. Stuff like that was being said, and people who were claiming they were scared were being mocked by certain individuals on Twitter. Some were trolls, and some, I think, really believed what they were saying, which is easy to say when you're not actually there and watching people run away from what they believe at the moment is an active shooter, and you don't know at the time is an active shooter. So Christian Harder, Real Charter 30 on Twitter, Real C-H-A-R-D-E-R 30. He used to be on Never Win Poker. He wrote, happy to be alive, scariest moment of my life. And I believe this was the scariest moment of his life because he thought that maybe there really is an active shooter and everyone's running from it. So sure, when the whole thing was over, he realized there wasn't. But at the time, he was scared because he believed there was. And that's all you have to do is believe there is to be scared. There doesn't actually have to be one. Now, if you see someone with a gun firing, yes, it's a lot more scary than if you're just seeing people running and you think there's one. But still, I can understand why he was scared there. He said, obviously, we ended up in no real danger, but that doesn't stop the fear we all had. I guess you had to be there. And a lot of people were coming after him and saying nasty things. So I defended Charter here. I said nobody should be mocking him here. The entire room believed there was a shooter, and they were all rushing the exit trying to get out, fearing this was the end for them. The fact that there turned out not to be a shooter doesn't change how it must have felt at the moment. And that's really all there is to say. You can't say that 
nobody should be scared just because there turned out not to be a shooter. If the entire room thinks there's a shooter, then yeah, there's a good reason to be scared. So I defended him there. But Justin Bonomo took this one step further. Justin Bonomo loves to be dramatic. Justin Bonomo loves to virtue signal. He loves to have all the attention on him, and he likes to be seen as the not only smartest guy in the room, but the most uh, in touch with his emotions guy in the room. So while I do believe that Justin Bonomo was scared when this was happening, he was in the room too, probably playing that 5K, and rightfully so. Here's what he wrote. Trapped in our confined hiding spot with the walls literally squeezing us in. What was he, like the Star Wars trash compactor? I tried to be quiet, but I couldn't stop breathing heavily. On top of everything else, I was worried that Yuri, I'm not sure who Yuri's supposed to be, believed my heavy breathing was going to get us all killed. What? So, so who's Yuri? And what was Yuri really like concerned that Justin Bonomo's heavy breathing was going to get them killed? Every ounce of my willpower was going into controlling my breathing, but I just couldn't. I recently learned that I had a form of asthma called EIB, but of course, I had left my inhaler bag at the table. Come on. It's okay to say that you were scared. It's okay to say you were breathing heavily. It's even okay to say that you were wondering as you were breathing heavily if this was going to attract any shooter that might be there. But to talk about how he was worried that Yuri or that his, believed that his heavy breathing was going to get you all killed, and then he goes on to tell us about his asthma called EIB, and he was controlling his breathing with every ounce of his willpower, but he just couldn't. <gasps> I gotta stop. I gotta stop. <gasps> Sorry, Yuri. <gasps> Yuri. <gasps> I apologize. <gasps> if you get shot. <gasps> I'm sorry. This is too much. This is too overdramatic for me. First of all, who knows if this is even all true? I believe Justin was scared, but I don't know how much beyond that. I don't know if he was really worried that Yuri was going to believe that his heavy breathing was getting him killed or that he was putting every ounce of his being into stopping the breathing so heavily, but he couldn't. He just had to keep heavily breathing. Damn my EIB. I, I wish I had brought my damn inhaler. Oh, if only I brought my inhaler, I would live through this. I think this is stuff that maybe quickly rushed through his head at worst, and then he decides to tweet about. This is one of these cases where you don't tweet every single thing you're thinking, because it looks ridiculous. It looks like like he's trying to seize the moment. Keep in mind, he's not like Negranu who got his hand trampled where you could see the bone. He's not like Cherish Andrews who could barely walk afterwards and, and couldn't go back to the tournament. He did not get injured. So it's fine to have been scared and to be shaken from the whole thing. But there's no, you don't hijack the whole story about how your breathing was going to get everybody killed. Or you thought so. This is like a scene out of an action movie. Can you picture like a Justin Bonomo character there sitting there with his pink hair? And uh, and then he's like, <sighs> and Yuri's like, stop it. You're going to get us all killed. He's like, I can't help it. I'm sorry. My, my inhaler. You stop it. You stop it. Now we're going to get killed. Hey, heavy breather. Looks like your breathing's going to end. Like, what? 
I just thought that was lame. It, it looked like a tweet for attention, is what it looked like. Especially with Bonomo's history. Bonomo always tweets for attention. He, he always wants you to look at him and think he's the most sensitive guy in the room. So once again, he's the most sensitive guy in the room here, even though he didn't get hurt. Others actually got hurt. He didn't get hurt. And again, it's fine if he wants to say he was scared. It's fine if he wants to say that he was breathing heavily and he has asthma, whatever. But like, say what Charter says and leave it at that. This was just... <laughs> and, and people didn't respond well to this. There, There's a lot of... Uh, laughter at this and criticism and uh, there were a few social justice warriors who defended him and he went on to tweet I'm still in an incredibly shook state after what went down tonight I'm writing about I'm writing about it while my thoughts are still fresh and will share my story in the days to come your story what I'm safe and I'm very grateful for that by far the scariest 15 minutes of my life and then once again it gets dramatic no one should have to experience this. No one should have to experience this. No one should have to experience this. He wrote that three times. Well, yeah, there's a lot of bad things nobody should have to experience. But you did. And the point he's trying to make, he's trying to slip in a political point about that too. Oh, it's, yeah, nobody should have to experience this. Uh, it's our problem with gun violence. Okay, but there's no easy solution to this. So, uh, I, I don't even know why he's writing no one should have to experience this three times I mean, it's it's unfortunate this happened and it is weird the way it all went down and uh, phil galfine actually defended him though from some of the haters saying sorry you went through this justin some of the comments here are a new low even for twitter and i'm sorry you have to deal with that too so phil galfond uh, standing up there for him but anyway i i think this was more bonomo trying again to virtue signal and get attention the whole story of the asthma and Yuri and the heavy breathing. Someone wrote, please tell me you're trolling. I mean, it kind of looked like a parody. You read that, you th- you, you, it, it really seems like he's, he stole this scene from a movie where someone's trying to control their breathing when there's a shooter and they have asthma and they can't stop and then they get shot. But nope, just Justin Bonomo. Dan Smith, he tweeted something that uh, people were wondering if it was... Uh, Eh, a little bit too much. He wrote, Hi, fam. Okay, first of all, I, I don't like that opening. I, I hate when people say fam. I hate when people say fam. It's stupid. Especially just white dudes saying, hey, hi, fam. It's just, it's lame. But okay, we'll get past the hi, fam. Hi, fam. If you're shaken up after yesterday, I think talking to a therapist could be a useful thing. Finding a new therapist can be a pain in the ass, especially with a timely and pertinent issue like this. I bought a handful of virtual sessions, someone who I think is great. Then he goes and tries to steer people towards uh, this therapist that he bought virtual sessions with. You can email my assistant and she will coordinate details. Wow, he has an assistant? Wow. So he's doing well in poker. I don't have an assistant. I got to do everything myself. I don't even have an assistant with this show. Everything's just me. He's got a freaking assistant. Wow. It will be anonymous to me. She's in the poker world, but very trustworthy. DanSmithAssist at gmail.com, or DanSmithAsst, I guess. I wasn't there, and even I was rattled. I'm sure it was quite traumatic. I hope you all are taking care of yourselves. And he puts a heart. Well, okay. It, it, 
you were rattled. I mean, I was rattled at first when I thought there was a real shooter. And once I found out what really happened, I thought this was a little bit strange and it was unfortunate and I felt very bad for those that were there. I wasn't rattled because I was not there. I, once I found out nobody was actually shot or killed and there were some injuries from trampling, I felt bad for those that were there. I was happy I was not part of it. I was happy I busted at that point. But I wasn't rattled. I wasn't shook up from it. So wait a minute. He actually booked like he booked uh, virtual sessions with a therapist? Why? He wasn't even there. I, I, at first, when he wrote that tweet, I thought, okay, well, yeah, I guess if he needs a therapist after thinking for 15 minutes that maybe there's a shooter and he's going to die, okay, I could, I could see needing a therapist for that. But he wasn't even there. What? <laughs> and Dan Smith isn't usually like a Justin Bonomo type. He, is, he isn't someone that really is dramatic like this. I, I don't get what he's doing here. There's nothing wrong with it. He can recommend therapists or whatever. And I, I see he's trying to help. He's trying to say if you were there and you were traumatized and I found a therapist who I think can help. So if you want this person's name too, let me know. That's fine. He's trying to be helpful and sympathetic to those that were there. But why is he getting a therapist when he wasn't present for it? Unless it's over other matters that he's getting the therapist for. But I I think he's over-dramatizing about this too. He wasn't there. You don't have to say you were rattled. You could say I have empathy for those that were there and that went through this and may have even gotten physically injured. That's perfectly fine to say. Or I have friends that were there and I feel really bad for them. He was rattled. I mean, I, I got the text right when it was happening, like everybody else. I was very interested in the story, and I was concerned for what was happening, but I was never rattled. And then I quickly found out there was no shooter, and I especially wasn't rattled. Then it was kind of like, I want to know more about this. I want to figure out what happened here. It's kind of a mystery. You're probably wondering, if you haven't been following this, or even if you have, what did happen? Now, I asked Jason if there was a loud noise, because Vanessa Cade said in her video there was a loud noise. But he didn't hear a loud noise, and... Most people didn't hear a loud noise, but then some people claim they heard a loud noise. However, I will say that there have been times I've been in a casino and I hear a loud noise of some sort and I get startled for a second, but then I realize it's nothing and go on. I don't remember it happening. So it's possible it's something like that. Maybe someone uh, threw a case case of something down on the floor, whatever it was, something that was trivial that people were very jumpy about because they were hearing about a shooter at the Cosmopolitan or the Aria or wherever, and then all it took was one noise like that for everyone to run. So maybe where Vanessa Cade was sitting or where somebody else was sitting that was closer to that, maybe that sound is what triggered everybody to get up and start running, whereas if there was no report of a shooter, then no one would have run at all. So it probably was something like that. A woman on Twitter named Malia Miranda believes that there's kind of a cover-up going on as to what really happened. Now, for sure there were rocks thrown through the glass door near the valet at the MGM Grand. There are pictures of that on the web, and there was even someone arrested for it, which I will explain shortly. So that happened for sure. But what about the rest of this? How did all these other casinos go into panic? So Malia Miranda believes there's some sort of weird cover-up about what really was occurring. 
She said, what Vanessa Cade says makes sense about the rippling panic across the strip Saturday night. She heard a loud noise, ran, saw a truck speed off from a garage, told, uh, was told that kids were going around with fireworks to casinos, saw a post that timeline from the rocks to Bally's panic was about 30 minutes. So she's trying to say that uh, 30 minutes from the time the rocks hit the window to when the other casinos were going nuts so that this could have been someone going around. This is surely enough time to drive to each casino, she wrote. I saw panic running on video at MGM, Aria, Caesars, Bally's in Paris. Piece of timeline when panic started in each casino. Note when each casinos had no panic. Check garage video. Las Vegas police. I bet Cade's info is correct. So she's trying to say if the police check each of these casinos and the timeline of when everyone started running, you'll see that these all started a few minutes from each other as whoever was doing this was going from casino to casino to make a loud noise. She wrote, Further, were areas affected nearest to garages? Aria video was near the garage of the escalators. Caesar's video was in a poker room, garage nearby through food court. WSOP ballroom was near garage. Check the truck she saw and garage video. Now seeing people say they heard a shooter, WSOP stampede video claims a lady burst in screaming, Mix of pops and shooter from various props and also props meaning properties and also including Excalibur Flamingo Bellagio. Actual shootings on strip in last few years didn't cause anything like this. Okay, so that last line is a good point that there were actual shootings on the strip, a number of them, especially in 2020. And people are like, oh, you know, someone got shot outside the casino, whatever. Kind of sucks, but whatever, it doesn't involve me. Like, the, they never shut any casinos down for actual shootings that took place. Not mass shootings, but, like, where people would get in an argument outside a casino and one person would shoot the other. That happened a number of times in 2020, and it didn't shut down anything. So here, nobody got shot, and everyone was in a panic. That's a good point. But that doesn't mean there's some conspiracy to make everyone think there's a shooter. A person named uh, Mathis Jonkers, that's M A T H I J S. J-O-N-K-E-R-S, Mathis Jonkers, wrote, It was really strange. At 10.02 p.m., a lot of police cars passed us at the Bellagio Fountain. We were watching and filming the show, then walked to Bellagio. We were watching another show at 10.15. The panic at Bellagio started at 10.18. That was 15 minutes after the police passed. Okay, but that could make sense because people were texting each other and getting each other riled up and paranoid. Tim Riley wrote, there's more cameras in that square mile than anywhere on Earth, not to mention the 200,000 camera phones and not one video of these kids with fireworks. If there is, that makes sense, but I haven't seen any yet. Hard to believe anything when there's no surveillance video in Vegas. And Malia said, right. My only hope is there's an active and transparent investigation. There have been plenty of actual shootings on the Strip last year. None of them had this effect. Then a guy named Brian B. That's... B-R-Y-B-R-U-423 on Twitter. He wrote, Unfounded? I know what I heard and what I was running from. That was an AR, referring to an AR-15. Scariest moment of my life. Las Vegas PD checked the Caesars Palace food court video around 10.25 p.m. So there's some people who are insisting they heard shots. Now, is it possible that there may have actually been shots or someone trying to make people think there were shots at around the same time the thing at the MGM Grand happened? Yes. It is possible that someone heard the MGM Grand story and very quickly thought, let's go around and make some loud noise that sounds like shots at other casinos and make everyone panic. 
Maybe people even saw the panic at MGM Grand and quickly said, hey, let's go elsewhere and do this too. But that's some pretty quick thinking. If you hear about this, your first thought, even if you're someone who likes to cause trouble, is not, hey, let's run over to another casino and make a loud noise and see if everyone runs there. Because you have to assume that everyone's going to text each other by then. There's a lot to assume that even if you're looking to wreak havoc, I would think this wouldn't be what would come to your mind so quickly. It's not like this happened two hours later. This was within like 15 minutes at these properties. So I think people just got on edge and every little thing like a car backfiring or something dropping or anything like that sounded like gunshots and then people started running. That would be my guess. I don't think there was a coordinated attempt here. However, with that said, keep in mind we never got a full financial picture of Stephen Paddock, who was the October 2017 shooter at Mandalay Bay. We never found out was he broke? Did he lose all his money at casinos? What did he have when he died? We never got a full profile of the guy. Why? It's like they kept his privacy to some degree, and it doesn't make any sense. There's a lot about that whole investigation that never made a lot of sense to me. And I'm not a conspiracy guy. There were just some questions that were never answered, and I could not figure out why. So I think in Las Vegas, sometimes you just don't get the full story. So it is possible that there is more to this story, and we don't have it. However... We do have a little more to the story. There was an arrest. A guy named Bradley Thomas, or Bradley Thompson, who strangely looks a lot like Bradley Cooper. So I, I guess he could be Bradley Cooper's double, and he's even named Bradley. He's around the same age, too. But he was banned and trespassed from MGM Grand earlier that day, July 16th, and felt that he was, quote, disrespected by security in the process. So... He came back around 10 p.m. to the MGM Grand and threw rocks at the glass valet area door and broke it. And he was arrested for it. He was chased down. He was uh, tackled. And he even complained that he got uh, glass in his mouth. I guess the glass that he broke, uh, he claimed got in his mouth when he got tackled. So he was taken briefly to the hospital to treat some minor wounds. And I see a picture of him right here. And that really happened. So this guy was not a teenager, anywhere close to a teenager. This is a middle-aged guy. And he definitely broke the window there at MGM Grand out of a personal vendetta over being banned earlier that day. So that has nothing to do with teens running around the strip causing problems, nor did it seem like he had a problem with Las Vegas in general. He just hated the MGM Grand for the moment. So I don't think that this guy's lone action to break that window, which probably was all he was going to go do. He just was like, you know what? They banned me. They were assholes to me. They were disrespecting me. I'm going to throw a rock through their window. And he went and did so. So that probably was all he thought would happen. He didn't think it was going to incite this type of panic. I don't think he even believed that the rock through the window was going to make people think there was a shooter. I think he was just pissed and threw a rock through the glass window because he, or the glass door because he was mad and he thought, I want to break something, and he did. So I don't see how that would kick off any kind of conspiracy of other people to cause panic at other casinos. I think it was just a lot of paranoia given what everybody's been worried about in recent times with mass shootings. And then everybody's panic took over, and that's what happened. So the good news is there was no shooter on the Strip, and nobody was shot, and nobody was killed. 
the bad news is that some people got injured, especially poker players, and this really scared a lot of people on the Las Vegas Strip that night, all because of probably one guy throwing rocks through a window because he had been banned earlier. It's a very bizarre story. Anyway, Jason, uh, thank you for coming on. Are you still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, do you have anything to add over anything else I said? Uh, No. Okay, well... Thank you for coming on. It was very interesting Thanks to get the, Thanks for having me. the the first person report from someone there. That's a lot more valuable than just reading about it on the news. So uh, since I was not there for it, fortunately, I, I got to hear from you, and I'm glad you're okay. And uh, did you get new glasses? Uh, actually, I had a pair, but I I needed to get a, I had an older pair, but I, I needed to get a new script anyway so i went to the optometrist today. okay well so I, I guess your optometrist so. uh at least he got something out of this all right well thank you for coming yeah. on and uh, thanks for telling your story all right thanks todd Take good care. night all right so I, i've met jason before nice guy so we are going to talk about a very interesting and weird situation involving a player named scotter clark that's s-c-o-t-t-e-r Clark, Scotter Clark, you can Google him. He's been playing poker for several years now. He actually made it fairly deep in this year's main event. I think finished like 190-something out of 8,000-whatever. So he did well this year. But the thing that is most recognizable about Scotter Clark, who I believe is like a little older than me, so he's not a young guy, but not really old, and the thing that's most recognizable about him is that he wears a pirate outfit. If you see a pirate around the World Series or you've seen a pirate at other poker series, that's Scotter Clark. He's like Jack Sparrow of the poker world. And apparently we're going to ask him about it because that's who I've been talking to to have on for an interview. We're going to ask him about uh, why he wears that outfit and Apparently, the World Series even paid him to come out and wear that outfit. But he also played the main event, and he got banned from all Caesars properties as a result of that outfit. And it's a very weird story. And from what I can tell, unless there's something that I don't know, it looks like he's in the right. It looks like he should not have been banned, and this looks pretty ridiculous. I don't know him personally. I did see him around during the World Series, and we do have a person we both know, so I saw him hanging out with that person. Uh, and when I went up to them to talk to them during the break, I saw that with him, And but we didn't really talk, and then I walked back away to go back and play my event. But uh, I did see him around there. I kind of wondered, you know, what's the deal with this pirate guy? But now we're going to have the pirate guy on the show here, and going to have him call in and explain what happened. It's a very odd story. His phone's having some issues, so he has to call here when I call him. For whatever reason, it goes to first ring voicemail. So I let him know to call in. Here he is. Scotter Clark, hello. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Uh, welcome. Thank you. I hope that your evening is well. Yeah, thank you for coming on here. This is a very uh, bizarre and uh, interesting story. So... Before we get going here, you know, I want to congratulate you. You did well in the main event. I saw you cashed 53K. It's very good. I know it's uh, not quite $10 million, but it's a lot better than what I got, which was a big zero. 
And uh, thanks, I appreciate. It. So, I noticed you a little bit earlier in the series before you cashed. Uh, I saw a guy in a pirate outfit. I didn't understand that whole thing, but uh, can you explain why you wear a pirate outfit at uh, the World Series of Poker and uh, what you did for the World Series in that pirate outfit? Um, well, the pirate outfit actually started last year in, in 2021 for Halloween, and it uh, for the WFOP because it was Halloween time and we just happened to be wearing costumes one night. And we came into the Rio dressed as this, and people recognized me and started taking pictures. And that's how this all started. So this year, I went to the WSOP, and I played uh, an event that I won't say the name of because it kind of dates what, how old I am. But uh, I, I went very well deep into the seniors and played the tag team, didn't do good at that at all. Bolted out. So, and while I was there, one of the uh, tournament directors, who is a very good friend of mine, um, had come up to me and asked me if I was going to be playing uh, as Captain Jack. You know, everybody was asking if I was going to be Captain Jack. And I said, I hadn't decided to do it. I didn't know if I wanted to do it. I hadn't decided. And I didn't want to do it. I certainly wasn't going to do it for the attention. And he said, well, I think that they're doing some sort of mystery bounty with a treasure chest. And I think that they were looking for a pirate. Oh, and interesting. So he put me in he put me in touch with Greg Throne, who, uh, I, with Greg, and uh, they asked me if I would come and work the little podcast for the bounty, which actually was a fabulous tournament. Yeah, it was. And I was talking about bounty, that earlier, that this is the mystery bounty where uh, people, they, they win anything from a, a very little bit of money all the way up to a million, and uh, the people who are going to win 25000 or more go up and pick... Uh, uh, something out of a chest and they are hoping to get the million, which Matt Glance ended up getting. So they hired you <laughs> to, to be uh, there with a treasure chest. Did you actually uh, help them pick things out or were you just there kind of as a decoration as a pirate by the treasure chest? <laughs> Not Vanna White. No Vanna White. No, I um, was actually hired to do Jeff Plant, uh, the announcer for TV was up there. And he was doing the mic, and I was supposed to be there four hours earlier, but they had booked the wrong flight, and I ended up on a flight that was on fire in Denver. So hmm. um, when I got there at 4.30, I took over the microphone, and we, you know, players came up. It was a great tournament. It was an excellent structure. They, were built for, they had over 14,000 entrants, and they'll for surely do it again. And it was computer-generated. About one every 17 person would get a chance at the gold chest. Uh, the rest of them all, I believe, got 500 or $1,000 for the uh, bounty. And then people that came up to the gold chest came up on a podium, and we had pictures taken, and they would pull in the chest. It was kind of unique. You know, you'd get in there, and they'd pull these envelopes ahead, and then they'd open them up in front of the camera, which is down on top of the treasure chest. And, uh, yeah, some of them, there was one guy, and I'm not going to mention any names, but it was his first WSOP ever, first summer. And this was his first WSOP event. And he hadn't played anything else in the world. And this guy won a bounty and came up and he won $25,000 and thought it was the greatest day of his life. And he was so happy. And he, and so then um, he goes back, sits down, and as you know, it was the, if you knocked anybody out after the money bubble, they would, uh, you would be able to get a chance to get a, you would get a bounty, a mystery bounty. And this guy pulled it again, and he can't come up again, and he got another 25. And he was he was so grateful to be at the WSOP. 
And and that's what that tournament did. We got fourteen thousand for it, and I'll be willing to bet that that, that number goes to twenty thousand at least by next year. Yeah, and they actually pay, they paid for your flight and they paid you something to be there as a pirate in that event. Correct. There was uh, uh, I was taken care of financially, and um, yeah, and so I worked the event from four thirty in the afternoon until three thirty that morning. And it went on forever. And they still had some left, um, but they knew that I was playing the main the next day. It was uh, July 6th. July 5th is when they did the bounty. July 6th, so I was going to play the main. And, uh, I, you know, obviously, Captain Jack played day one. No problems, everything. And, you know, the, the entire time, if you see the earlier pictures when I was on the stadium, you can see that I had prop guns on. And they don't, there's no barrel, they don't fire. Um, I don't want to make any jokes on that because it's not funny, but uh, they're fake. They're props. They're, I bought this costume from the man that made uh, Johnny's down in Disney. So, and I bought it directly from the, the costume designer. So, Let me just clarify, I'm just going to clarify for the, uh, for the audience here. The costume he was wearing had fake guns on the side. He was saying they. They're non-functional and they're not real guns. They're not anywhere close to real guns. They're just prop guns on the side for this pirate costume is what he was describing. And it was not something he added himself. He's saying this came with a costume, correct? Correct. And, and, and so day one, when I awarded this thing, day one, they didn't have a problem with it. Day two, um, the tournament director, who I know is a very good friend of mine, came up to me during day two of the main and then said, security wants to talk to you. And when I was walking back, he just said, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing as last year. And, you know, it's the guns. And I'm like, oh, I don't care. And they were super nice and said, you know, you just can't. You know, in today's, their, their exact language was, you know, in today's world, we just have to be more cautious. And, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, and that was it. Sweet and sound. And I went back to playing day two. Now, question becomes, if I was an intimate threat at that point, <laughs> So then I played three days or day three and accumulated chips had a very good time, great tables. And then, uh, of course we got into day four, um, played. So accumulated chips day five was a great time. We had a great time. I sat next to, uh, Aspen, uh, Norway and he's a great player. Oh, that's Aspen really funny. You know, what's funny. Community. You know, what's funny. I sat Pardon? directly next to Hossein Ensan three years ago when I had a pretty similar finish to what you had this year. He was the one directly to my really? left who busted me. Yes. Yeah, he, he didn't bust me. Epson didn't, but I sat with him all day five, and I think I was there until the 10th hour. So I sat with him for 10 hours, and uh, he played it perfectly. Let me tell you, on, on day five, he came in, and he I think he came in uh, mid-stack, and he lost a little bit right away and got down short. And uh, he played it perfectly. He was, of all day fives that I played, and I said this before. I mean, when I got up, I told him, you were the toughest opponent that I've had. So he, he was really good. I mean, there's no question about it. He shined in, as a main event. He's humble. He's a great kid um, from Norway. Uh, really nice guy. I, I really, uh, he's a great ambassador for the sport. So he will be a really good spokesperson. It's real, he was, yeah, that'll be real good. So I bust out in the 10th hour. As a matter of fact, it was like 7.30. And as anybody can imagine, when you bust out of the main and you run that deep, you're kind of in shell shock. I mean, it doesn't matter what happened in the hand. And uh, 
and I don't know if, if you know, I don't know that I want to get into strategy or anything, but um, you just, you're kind of shell shock. I mean, it's like, you know, I really, I got 195th and I really wanted 194th and I thought I was going to get 194th, but um, they, uh, I wasn't short. I wasn't jamming. I was, I was just, it happened. So then I bust and immediately after I bust, okay, so now it's time to go home, time to get the airplane ride, you know, check out. And I thought, well, I'll go get those guns. So I went straight to the security office, didn't know where the security office was. So I asked the security officer and he said, I'll walk you down there. So he walks me in, gets me in the office and right away, the office had one person right away. All of a sudden there's like 10 people flying around the office, you know, and I get these two guys, they're Caesar's security guards. And, uh, he's like, Oh yeah, we got your guns. We got your guns right here. Here's your guns. And they made me sign for him. Here's your receipt property. And he says, well, and he's got a badge on his shoulder nameplate or something. And he says, I need to read you a trespass warning. And I said, trespass against what? And he says, uh, he says, trespassing, uh, it's a trespass warning. Let me read it to you. And he was actually was very ambiguous about what he was talking about. And then finally, after me asking, what are you talking about? Like the fourth time he says, well, you can't be on Caesar's property anymore. Um, or we're going to arrest you for trespassing. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, you can't be. On. I said, for what? And he said, well, you can't wear a costume like that and bring guns into the casino. And I said, uh, these are props, and, and I was hired by the WSOP to be here. How can this be happening, you know? And, they, and I said, well, let me talk to a supervisor. Said, you know, I'm still in shell shock. I just busted out of the main at 195. And uh, um, I said, may I speak to a supervisor, please? May I speak to a supervisor? No, a supervisor would not talk to me. And I said, look, I was brought here by the WSOP. This is kind of like entrapment. I mean, you, you basically paid me to come and then say, you can't, I can't play anymore. I mean, you know, what, what happened here? What's going on? And he said, well, you're going to have to talk to, I said, who do I talk to about this? And he says, you're going to have to talk to your WSOP and they'll have to talk to us. And I said, all right. So I, what would I do? If anybody was at, if anybody was at uh, Bally's this year, you know, there's a long hallway from the Bally's elevators to go back. Not as long as the real, obviously, but it, and it was just a shorter distance with a nice food court. But, so I went back that way. I wasn't going to my room. I had a room um, uh, up in that chamber right there. I turned around and went back to the WSOP. Because, I mean, how can you – I just I just got done doing TV interviews, and I, I just did something for Poker Go, and I was like, how are you throwing me out? What did I do? So I went back, and the tournament director, Jason, who I thank very much for taking the time to help me on that um, – uh, got one of the vice presidents who came over and I was sitting in the middle of the, where they were playing the main and he came over and said, what's going on? I said, they're telling me I'm kicked out because of the guns. This is what you guys want. And they shook my hand. Right. The one Jason, you know, they said I did a great job and it was fantastic. And, you know, and then I've had other uh, WSOP people come up or the officials. So he, he says, let me go talk to the security. Well, at that point you look over and here comes SWAT team, not running or anything, but just walking casually up. And you could see that they wow. were looking for me. I didn't know. This. And, I didn't know SWAT and, was called in. Wow! I, I just thought security escorted yeah. you out, trespassed you. I didn't know SWAT came in. What? No, no, no. So when I ran, I didn't run. 
when I walked over the WSOP area, they actually, I didn't, I mean, they came up, they were about two minutes behind me, but yeah, here comes the, the emergency response team. And, um, so they went over and talked to the security officer who was new security officer. Now he just showed up and he was a nice guy. Very nice. They were very professional. Um, they were not rude, curt, or uh, they were very good officers. And they talked to them, and they said uh, that they would get it all figured out to go with the security guards. So I'm going with the security guards. I have a room at Valley's, and I have to go get my booty, the pirate's booty, from the cage after winning, you know, being knocked out of the main event. And uh, so the guys are saying, after we leave the WSOP area, I said, look, I, you know, are you going to your room? I said, no, I need to go get my booty from the, you know, my loot from the, from my earnings. They said, oh, we'll walk you. And of course, that's the famous picture of the security guards walking me over to the cage. Um, and they walked me to the cage. They said that I was on door to door restriction is how they put it. And they said, since I had a room there and I was a diamond that I could leave the facility and go out, but I couldn't do any gaming or eating or anything within the facility. So I, I just went straight to my room anyhow, and that was fine. And I was there until the next day. Well, that, well, that, that one, morning, one second, let me stop you here. So it looks like it went from a trespass to downgraded to where you were on restriction to trespass just means you're booted out of here. If you come back, we arrest you. Now it sounds like, all you can do is stay in your room and and, and leave, but uh, we're going to let you stay in your room. Well, I paid for it. Or I, it was paid for. Well, I know, but they can still kick you. They can still kick you completely and they say tough luck. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and if you thought it was an intimate danger, why didn't you take them on day two when you took the gun? I mean, if you're being real about it, what, you know, yeah, so, and let me furthermore, I'm not going to say that. Uh, furthermore, it, it, it wasn't done properly in any way, any regards. Um, according to their protocol, but that's neither here nor there. That's just conjecture. Um, so the next day I wake up to a knock on the door about nine o'clock in the morning and I look out the door and it's Caesar's salespeople and it's a hallway. There's six women that are going up and down, knocking on doors at Bally's, getting surveys about your customer service. <laughs> they, they chose the wrong door. So they come. So I said, wait a minute, I need to talk to you guys because I look out and I poke my head and I go out and I just woke up. So, I mean, I was just, this is what it is. I explained the entire situation. They got somebody on the phone. They said, we'll go back to our office right now. We will talk to somebody because this is absurd. This shouldn't be happening. I never, ever did hear anything from those ladies now in recollection. So, Later that day, I go out to get something to eat outside the outside valleys, and I walked out on a Tropicana and was walking back, and my keys would not work at my door. And I had the room uh, taken care of until Wednesday, and this was Tuesday, but I had also gotten a plane ticket change so I could leave on Tuesday regardless just because I didn't want to be there any longer. Um, when I got back, the keys didn't work. So I had to go down to the diamond where they gave me a key and they said, they said that I had two hours and I had to leave after two hours. So I went out and packed my bags and it didn't matter. I was catching a plane anyhow. Now that's 
that's exactly what happened up to that, up to there. And for, what was that, a week, maybe six days, we had absolutely no contact with anybody. We, you know, I reached out to a lot of people. But I heard from over 2,000 people, too. And I've, I've had nothing but a support. And let me tell you, I want to I thank uh, everybody that has said kind words that I didn't get a chance to say thank you to. Because um, it's been, there's been an outpouring. It's been great. And I appreciate that. And even so much that uh, I played as Captain Jack tonight at Riverside Casino for the MSPT. And it was fantastic. And, of course, I called their security before. And they said, sure, don't bring the guns or a sword or the flask. And you know, we want you here. And it's been, we've had the most fun tonight. Um, we've got fun to the poker tables. Uh, everybody was laughing and giggling and having a good time. And, you know, only the bad beats left grumpy. So it was, it was a good night. We had a lot of fun down there. Of course, I bagged. So, of course, it's a lot more fun when you bag. I mean, let's not, let's not pretend. But we had a good time. Yeah. What questions do you have for me, Todd? Well, uh, so I want to ask, uh, where does this stand now? We've we've had a, a few weeks since that occurred, so uh, or about, about two weeks, I'd say. So, uh, where does it stand right now with you and uh, Caesar's property? Are you still uh, are you trespassed from there at the moment? What's the what's the story with them? What's your status there right now? Um, so as as it stands right now, I can't be at any Caesar's property nationwide or worldwide, if you want. Um, something to do with the Eldoro, I understand, just purchased that uh, recently. Yeah, Eldorado. Something yeah. to do with that. Yeah. Eldorado is what it was. Excuse me, apologize. Um, my legal staff is in contact with their legal staff, and I believe that things, um, I'm very hopeful that things will get worked out. In the interim, of course, I can go to any WSOP um, like Tulsa that is not at a Caesars property because Tulsa's in the Hard Rock. Yeah. So, um, so hey, let's go. Uh, let's go have some fun today. Was uh, that's as far as we know. Um, that's as far as I can say. Okay. And something else here, from what I could tell, just from before even communicating with you, just reading the story, I had guessed that this looked like security just kind of freaking out on their own and deciding those guns worry them. The fake guns, of course, they're not uh, real guns, but worried that those fake guns worried them and that they got rid of you for that reason without any input from the WSOP, that this wasn't, this did not appear to me to be a WSOP ban. This appeared to be security acting kind of on its own, and the WSOP was kind of left in the dark, and uh, all of a sudden the guy that they hired to be the pirate for their mystery bounty event is getting banned from all Caesar's properties. Is that uh, fairly close to what uh, is the case? That's very accurate. Yes. Yeah. That, that and, was... and I will say, I want, I, I do want to thank all the, uh, the WSOP people that have reached out, the officials and people that work for them. And, uh, and I greatly appreciate, you know, their kind words and such. So it, I, I want to make sure that they understand that I have appreciation for that. It's been overwhelming the last six days. I'll tell you that. Yeah, and most of the bans that happen at the WSOP are actually WSOP bans, where the WSOP itself is is uh, responsible for banning the person, whether from the tournament or from all Caesar's property. So this one is different, that uh, this one has nothing to do with the WSOP, and uh, the WSOP is not a hostile party in this one. So that's that's some, a distinction that should be made here, and that was the impression I got right away. And, you know, it's good that they seem to, uh, you yeah, know, that, that they are 
on your side on this one as, as much as they can be uh, because that, that will work in your favor when security ultimately makes its uh, decision. Unfortunately, uh, security probably can decide uh, ultimately what it's going to do unless someone way above them commands them to do otherwise. But I, I know you said you have some uh, uh, your legal people uh, in contact with theirs. So hopefully this works out here because t- to me this just is so absurd if they had warned you, do not bring these guns back here because uh, it, it can disturb people. Don't do it. You're going to get in trouble. Then you just said F you and do it anyway. I would understand. But it looks to me like uh, there was no warning that just uh, they just showed up and said you're, you're banned. Isn't that correct? There was no warning. Uh, to clarify, there was absolutely no warning at valleys or pairs in that period of time that there was a problem. They, they gave me no And in fact, I was with security. We had a security when I was at the podium for all the prizes that were in the treasure box, we had security assigned to me. Bally's security was assigned to the podium for all this. And in fact, they, they were very well aware of the cop guns at that time. And I took pictures with several of them. Um, and they were good people. They didn't have it. There was no problems. There was no issues. But they knew the day that I walked in that I had this wasn't like, oh, look, there's a picture of a pirate. He's got guns. You know, this wasn't that. This was, why, you know, why did, the, why did all of a sudden, two days later, it was a problem? First of all, did somebody complain, which could explain. I don't, it's very hot over here. There's no snow, so I don't want to cause that. But what caused this? What, could, what started, you know, what happened here? Because I wasn't, all I was trying to do was promote the sport and bring people out. And I was there to actually bring more people to Bally's and, and to have fun at the table and to show that. It's yeah. It's a bunch of small, small I, If I had to guess, there, there's no way to know what actually made this occur. But if I had to guess, you probably walked by some security guard who just wasn't aware of this and just sees a guy in a pirate costume with these prop guns and says, "Uh Oh, this, this isn't good. We can't just have a guy walking around with these guns on his hips, even real or not. When it reported it to a superior who then said, Oh yeah, this is bad. We got to get rid of this guy. And then they just did it without really thinking about what they were doing. And it's one thing to do this, like kind of as a knee jerk reaction. But once, once they were informed that you were there, uh, to at the invited the WSOP to be part of an event in that costume, and that uh, nobody had warned you previously about those prop guns, and those prop guns had had no capability of hurting anybody. At that point, it should have just been a warning. It should have just just been put those away. Don't let us see you again with this on the property, and uh, everything will be cool. That that should have been it. There is the the fact that it went beyond that is crazy to me, and that's what everybody in poker seems to be saying. Is everybody in poker seems to be very confused by this story that it happened this way. And I, you know, I, I think I, I believe your account of this here. And I think this is just kind of fighting the Caesar's bureaucracy and, and getting to the right people who can overrule this, uh, this decision. And I've known of other weird and stupid bands before, not quite as much as this one, but I've, I've, I've also seen some other weird and stupid bands over time where I'm just kind of left scratching my head going, this, this shouldn't have happened. Sure. Sure. Well, I, again, appreciate all the public support, and I would appreciate any kind of uh, understanding by these people that you can, because poker is my livelihood. This is what I've done professionally for uh, a while now, eight years, 
and it you know it's a grind and I, I want to come back and play the main event. Uh, I I uh, I've I want to I want to go further in the main event. That's all there is to it. I know that I picked up enough, and I I know that I felt something different, and it carried over into this tournament. And uh, this is my livelihood. Well, let's have fun. Let's have fun. We had great fun tonight. Anybody wants to have fun tomorrow? We'll be at Riverside at the MSPT. <laughs> let's have. It's a blast. We have a good time. We don't. We. This is what poker's supposed to be about. If you can't have fun at a poker table, you shouldn't be at a poker table. That's all there is to it. And, and everybody that's around us, we always have a great time. We have a great, great time. So come on out. Let's play poker. Yeah, well, uh, good luck with this whole situation. I hope it works out for you. To me, this really looks like a bad ban, and uh, hopefully some logical person will discover this on Caesar's end and say, what are we doing here? And put this guy, put you back, and then uh, hopefully you'll be competing again in the uh, 2023 World Series of Poker in this whole uh, – ridiculousness will be behind you so thank you thanks. for coming on here and uh telling your story thank you so much thanks todd i appreciate having me all right good night and good luck tomorrow on your day too hey thanks appreciate it Take care. all right yeah isn't that an interesting story so weird huh i mean clearly if they warned the guy and he kept wearing those prop guns then i'd be on their side but i believe him i believe this just struck him out of nowhere and, you know, it can be a pain in the ass. I mean, I was wrongfully banned from the Venetian. It's still not solved for something I didn't do. And I gave them a way to verify that what they were accusing me of doing was not me. I put it right out there for them. And they didn't unban me. So I know. I know how security can be. It can be very frustrating to deal with. Anyway, good luck to him. Anytime somebody gets a ban that I don't think is deserved, I advocate for them to be unbanned. Because it's stupid. They should not be banned when they did not do something that is ban-worthy. That's why I was uh, on Luke Vrabel's side, which is a totally different type of situation. But that was another one where he shouldn't have been banned. That one, I more understood why it happened. I just didn't agree with it. This one, I don't even understand why it happened. <laughs> this one's even more bizarre. That one wasn't bizarre. It was just wrong. This this was bizarre and wrong. Unless there's something I don't know, but... I don't think there is. I think we're probably getting an accurate story from him. So good luck to Scotter. I'll give you any updates if he gets let back in. Okay, so moving on. I want to talk about how I feel about the World Series of Poker now that it's all over for 2022. Because I was there on four different trips. I was there for the majority of it. I didn't count days, but I was there for a long time. Some of it I was hiding in my room with COVID, but still, I was present in Las Vegas, and I played a number of events. I got to experience everything. I got to play in Bally's. I got to play in Paris. I got to pretty much do everything I needed to do to get a feel for the new venue. Now, overall, I will say that the poker community was happy with this year at the World Series. Overall, people thought this was a big improvement over the Rio. People thought that Jack Effel and his staff did a good job. A lot of people tweeted that they were impressed, that they thought that the World Series of Poker 
did an especially good job considering that they were moving to a new place and there were going to be new things to figure out. So the overall reaction from poker has been very positive about this past World Series. And I want to open with that because I am going to complain about some things. But I will say that the general consensus is that it was well-liked. But how do I feel? Well, I do see how a lot of the community feels that this was a great World Series as far as how it was run. And you do have to give them credit when they're moving to a new place where they have to establish a lot of new things. It's not just repeating the same thing over and over that you had going at the Rio. Now you've got a whole new venue and a whole new set of challenges. And there's a lot of different potential points of failure. And there's no way to get everything right. If someone said, okay, Todd, you're in charge. Let's say they said that to me at the end of 2021, or at least the middle of 2021, whatever. And they said, you're in charge to move the World Series over from Rio to Paris and Bally's. We'll give you a budget. We'll give you access to whatever you need, but you're going to be the one making the decisions and directing the whole thing. Would I have been able to do it without any fail, without any kind of mistake that people would complain about that would have valid complaints? No, I would have made some mistakes, I'm sure. So I can't expect that Jack Effel and Ty Stewart could do it without making mistakes. And I do keep that in mind. And if they did this with the poker community mostly approving of the job that was done, that shows that they did a lot of things right. Where I do have some issue is with anything that I call an avoidable mistake, because there's mistakes and there's avoidable mistakes. Mistakes are just where you make the wrong decision, and then when everything plays out, it doesn't go the way you expected, and then you look back and go, ah, I should have done this differently. Or there's an oversight in some way. Ah, I should have done this differently. Okay, that's going to happen. There's so many different elements of the World Series, there's going to be some mistakes. But avoidable mistakes are ones where they really should have known not to make them. They should have seen it coming, and they aren't. And that's where, when I see things like that occur, I scratch my head and I say, why is this still happening? Why are they still letting these avoidable mistakes occur? And some of these didn't have to do with a new venue. The first problem I want to discuss is the late registration problem. And this was bringing on a new issue that wasn't there before. And I thought maybe I'm just crazy and maybe I just didn't register late as much as I did in the past. And maybe this is not a new thing, but I asked around and yeah, it's a new thing. People agreed with me that this was weird and they don't quite understand why it's happening either or happened. I guess it's over now, so it's not happening anymore, but it happened. The late registration process has become a clusterfuck, and it doesn't need to be, and it has nothing to do with the Rio or Bally's in Paris. What happened this year with the late registration could have easily happened at the Rio. They just changed something. It was worse. When you used to register late at tournaments, you would typically get a seat assigned to you. Now, sometimes you would be assigned to a table that didn't exist, and then you'd have to go over to the late reg table, and they'd give you a seat card, and they'd give you chips, and you'd move over. I, I did do that occasionally at the Rio, but that didn't seem to be mainly what happened. And when it did, 
you would go there and there would be almost no line. There was no such thing as a long, late reg line. And I don't mean the line to register for the tournament. Yeah, that existed in the past, and it still existed in 2022, and that's inevitable, and I'm not talking about the late that line to register late. I'm talking about once you have paid your money and registered and you have a ticket, then you have to go to a second place, which is a poker table where nobody's playing poker, but it just has one employee sitting there distributing chips and checking IDs. You're basically going there to get your chips and seat assignment. So the seat assignment that's printed on your registration slip is phony. That's just basically telling you to go to the late reg table. You're actually not sitting at that table to play poker. And what we saw during the World Series was sometimes late reg lines that were hundreds of people long and would take hours to go through. And even when it wasn't hours, you could stand on them for 15 or 20 minutes. And that was fairly common. I, I did, in fact, on the first late reg line I ever stood in was about 15 or 20 minutes. So this was very dumb. And I don't know what happened here because it wasn't like this before. And it has nothing to do with it being a new venue. They just changed something this year and made a mistake in the way they were executing. I'm not even sure specifically what they changed because sometimes I would go register late and I would actually get a real seat assignment. But most of the time, I got sent to one of these late reg tables with a big line. But whatever way they were doing it, if you have a tremendously long line for people to get chips and a seat assignment that can take well over an hour or sometimes two hours in some cases or sometimes more than two hours, then you have a big issue. You have done something wrong. You need to modify the procedure. So they really broke late registration this year. That's a big problem they had that was not there previously, and I don't understand it. Another thing that I felt was an avoidable mistake was the scheduling of certain events back-to-back. For example, there are three Limit Hold'em events this year, as there have been for many years now. A 1,500, a 3,000, and a 10,000. They put the 3,000 and the 10,000 on back-to-back days, and the 3,000 event, which came first was at 3 p.m. So a lot of the people making day two, which restarts at 2 p.m., are not going to cash and aren't that deep. I didn't look, but probably about a third of the field, or maybe 40% of the field, makes it to day two. So you have a lot of people making day two that are not going to cash and not going to run particularly deep. And yet these people are not going to be there for the start of the 10K event. Now, yeah, I guess they can late reg if they bust early enough, or even if they want a day too late reg for the 10K, but why force people to do that? There's only a relatively small pool of people willing to play Limit Hold'em at 3K and above, so why have the events actually back-to-back on back-to-back days, 3 p.m., 3 p.m.? Why not put a day in between? That's just a stupid move. I don't know why they would have done that. All they did was make it to where people had to choose which one they're going to play. Along the same lines, but not the same type of event, the Seniors event, as I mentioned on a previous show, because I played the Seniors event, it interfered with the Colossus event to where day two of the Seniors, which was going to have a tremendous number of people because the Seniors had over 7,000 entries, there were so many who made day two of the Seniors, which was very foreseeable, 
that there was not room for Colossus to start. And Colossus, of course, being the cheapest event to enter at $400, was going to get a very big field, and did. So they didn't have room for it. And as an extra kick in the ass, the late reg line was probably like 500 people long, I'm not even exaggerating, and took hours to go through. The entire event was a complete disaster, and I was a first-hand witness to it because I was in day two of the seniors watching the whole thing happen and hearing all the announcements and looking at that line. I was right there for the whole thing. So without having played in the event, I got a great view of what was going on, and it was terrible. So it was avoidable because they knew that the seniors would get a bigger field than the prior year. It always does. It's the fastest-growing event in poker. So they knew day two would be big. They knew Colossus would be big on day one. They should have known that putting them together was not a good idea, and they did anyway. So that was another boneheaded scheduling mistake that I've discussed before. The WSOP kitchen was a fiasco. It was sometimes open, sometimes closed. I reported it was closed, but it opened back up after I said it was closed. But it's open and closed seemingly willy-nilly. The food was ridiculously expensive. It wasn't good. People were unhappy with it. A lot of people were going off-site to get food. But in some cases, they didn't have much time to go off-site to get food or any because there's no dinner break in events that start at 3 p.m. So you only have 15-minute breaks and that's it. So some people were forced into the poker kitchen if it was open. Otherwise, they really had nothing to eat. So they really need some fast options that are at least semi-good, even if they're going to be expensive. I hate to say it, but they need to take a page out of the All-American Dave playbook minus the mismanagement of the money. All-American Dave at least was providing fast food that tasted good and was nutritious and that people liked. I wasn't a big fan of the food personally, but there were a lot of people who really liked it. And I give Dave credit for identifying the need for that and running that truck successfully for many years. What ultimately happened is a separate story, but there's no denying that this was a successful business when it was going and that he identified a need. So why should All-American Dave have even been a need over there? The Rio should have done this. The Rio should have had something equivalent. They shouldn't have needed an outsider to come in and fix this. Well, now he isn't allowed there, which is partly what led to the whole uh, collapse of All-American Dave and the money that no one's ever getting back. And we've discussed that a lot here. But since he's not allowed there anymore, why don't they pick up the ball and make something similar Why don't they understand that people obviously want that sort of thing? And even if you're not going to just do all healthy food like he was doing, just make some good and fast options. And they're still not. They're still just serving mostly crap for a lot of money at the WSOP Cafe, and it just gets everybody angry. So they blew that, and even though there were more nearby food options, because the Rio was far more isolated than Bally's in Paris, so there's just a lot more options around, That doesn't mean that the food options immediately next to the World Series, something you can get to quickly and grab quickly, were good. They were not. There was, in fact, very little you could order very quickly on those short breaks. They still did not have enough registration lines open. This was very disappointing. Now, maybe you can say it's because of the worker shortage, but every year they seem to have this problem, so I can't necessarily say it's the worker shortage because there wasn't a worker shortage in 2019 or 18 or 17, and this kept happening then too. 
It's just very frustrating when you go to register for events. There's a tremendous line, even in the Diamond Line, and you see that not every station is opened. They should have every station open at what is projected to be peak times of registration. If they want to have a bunch of them closed at 3 in the morning, that totally makes sense. But they need to have every possible station open when there's going to be a lot of people registering, and often they did not. And this is something that I see year after year. I just don't understand it. Also, since they were designing everything new, I don't see why they could not have made some more places you could register. And in fact, I found it frustrating that some of the cages, you simply could not register for bracelet events, such as over at Bally's, that you just couldn't register. You had to go all the way to Paris. So if you wanted to rebuy in something, you had to walk all the way back to Paris to rebuy instead of doing over there at Bally's. And I thought that was a mistake. They had a cage there at Bally's. Why not let it do everything? And why not make a bigger cage? It just seems like they always build this with less capacity than it needs, even when they're starting from scratch. It's just they they can't get it through their head. They need more capacity for registration. And it costs them money, too, because a lot of times people don't rebuy because they're avoiding the line. And I know this because not only do I sometimes not rebuy because of the line, but I've talked to others at the table who say, I'd like to rebuy in this, but the line is so bad I'm not going to. I heard this a lot of times this year. So they didn't do a great job with that. The whole process of registering online, I'm not talking about for online events, but online registration through the app or whatever, it was very confusing. It had too many points where you had to actually interact with human beings. And what was perhaps most maddening, there was no way to load the account at a regular cashier's cage. So even if you had an account established, to where you could register through the Bravo app into tournaments. And even if you got that all approved, to get money in there, you can't just go to any cage in Bally's or Paris and have them do it. You have to go to a special cage, which has a huge line, which is dumb. They should have had this open for every cage so you can add money at any time at any of these cages and then made it far easier for people to use that app and get themselves out of line. So the whole, the whole registration process, I wasn't impressed with. So, okay, that's a lot of complaints on my part. Now, what things did I like? I liked the fact that it was center strip, so you weren't isolated out on the Rio. I thought the Paris room was nicer than any of the rooms we played at the Rio, and the Bally's room uh, pretty much as well. I didn't like how on day 1C of the main event they were doing major construction and they couldn't get that stopped in some way to have uh, a 10K major event like that going with loud construction noise in the background is terrible. Fortunately, it did stop after lunchtime, but I don't know why they were doing tremendous construction work in the morning. That was kind of tilting. But the rooms themselves were nice. They were large. The tables were not as crammed together as they were at the Rio. At least that's what it seemed like. I didn't love how the Bally's air conditioner was a constant problem. It kept breaking seemingly. It was always hot over there. Uh, Paris was a nicer temperature. Remember, the Rio was always cold, especially at night. Paris ranged from nice to cold. It usually was not hot there, but uh, uh, in the daytime, it would be nice, and the nighttime, it would get a little bit cold, but not like Rio cold. I, I liked the Paris room. I thought that was a, a nice room. It was, it was very large. It was good for the World Series. And it was also right next to the parking garage, which if you drove there is very nice because if you want to run up to get something at your car, it's it's not a long walk like it is at the Rio. If you want to go back to your car, forget it. It was a long walk. You're going to miss hands. But uh, the parking garage was very close 
to the tournament area, which was quite convenient. It wasn't super close to the rooms, especially if you were staying at Bally's and you're playing at Paris or vice versa. But if you're parked, the self-park garage was quite close to the tournament area, and that was nice to have. It's also nice if you're running late, you can get down there pretty quickly. I thought as far as the way the tournaments themselves were run, they did a pretty good job. Uh, There were a few hiccups, like that stupidity when there were the double three of spades dealt on the flop and they tried to cover it up and threaten people with bans, but that looked like one idiotic employee who was trying to do a cover-up and failed miserably. But for the most part, I thought that the tournaments themselves were run pretty well and efficiently. There were a few idiotic mistakes, like in the main event where people figured out the loophole that if you register and then show up there and you have a tough table, you can just not sit down for two hours and then you get reassigned to a different table. I thought that was uh, a huge loophole they should have thought of. What they were trying to do is encourage early registration and not penalize people for showing up late, which I'm a big supporter of doing that. I think it's good to not penalize people for showing up late if they register early. It shouldn't just be the late registrants who don't blind off. But there's better ways to do it. And as I suggested when I described this in the last show, what they should have done is just not blind out your stack and just leave it there. And that uh, if you don't show up within two hours that they take it out of play and you'll have to come back a different day. And that should have been what they do. So this way, at least you have to come back an entirely different day rather than uh, getting to get back in the late player pool and just get a different table. They just made it too easy. I understand why they don't want to leave the seat open all day. That was They were doing this because they didn't want to blind people off and they also didn't want a seat to remain open the entire day if someone just decides to show up eight hours late. But what they should do is they should just make it clear. You can, uh, you have two hours to show up. If you're more than two hours late, then we pick you up and you either get a refund or you can switch to a different day at that point. And if it's day 1D, then you can buy in on day two at that point. And if it's day two, then too late. Something like that. It, it should never be that you can wait two hours and get reassigned to a different table or have your friend walk by there and take a look and tell you if it's tough and then you just don't show up for two hours. That was a big loophole they should never have allowed, and they need to rethink that. That, by the way, is another kind of avoidable mistake. I don't know why they didn't think about that. That's the sort of thing they shouldn't have. Uh, Another thing that I want to praise was the Mystery Bounty event that was won by Poker Fraud Alert listener Matt Glantz, who, by the way, texted me and said, yes, he listens to every episode. He still listens to every episode, so I appreciate having him as a listener. Congratulations again to him for the million-dollar win, which I am a bit jealous of, but glad he won it rather than a uh, non-listener. As, I, as I've said before, if it's not going to be me, then I'm glad it's a Poker Fraud Alert listener. I prefer it's me, but if not, then I'm happy it's you. But that was a very successful event. Everybody loved it. It was well-run. It was fun. I didn't play it, but everyone had great things to say about that event. So that's definitely one that's going to come back, and that was, even though not a World Series of Poker innovation, it's nice that they brought this to the World Series and executed it well, and I think those type of events are good for poker, and that's the type of thing which 
can help revitalize poker in general, even though the World Series itself is doing very well. So that was a nice thing they added that I thought was a good idea and was executed successfully. I would like to see some more events added that are badly needed at the World Series. They they have so many now. They just have so many events these days. They have like 90 events. I don't see why they can't throw in a few that seem pretty obvious that should be running. Why is there no $1,500 short deck? Everybody wants to try short deck, but they don't want to put a 10K for it. I think a short deck event for 1500 or or 1000 would be very fun and get a good turnout. But I'm not, I, I'll play it. You know, I, I would play the short deck event. I really would. I'm not going to do it for 10K, though. I'm not going to go sit down with a short deck wizard at 10K and be dead money. But I'll sit down at 1000 or 1500 and take a shot at a bunch of people like me who haven't played it that much. So they really need a short deck event for 1000 or 1500 and, and I'm sure they can squeeze it in somewhere. Same with a Big O event. Big O is rocketing in popularity. Why don't they have a pot limit Big O event? Or even a limit Big O event. But, you know, pot limit's fine. Do a pot limit Big O event. It'll get a nice attendance. There's no such event at the World Series right now. They only have it as part of the Mixed Omaha, which I think is a mistake. I think they should bring back the Limit Hold'em Shootout. That was something that ends very quickly each day. It's easy for them to run. It gets a good turnout. People like it. Bring that back, too. As strange as that sounds. Now, these, of course, are just my opinion, but I think some of these should be obvious. Maybe not the limit hold'em thing, but I know a lot of people want to see a big O tournament. A lot of people want to see a a cheaper short deck tournament that's not 10K. So I don't know why these are not added to the World Series when they already have 90 events going. So anyway, uh, I, I don't want to get too far out there talking all about different things I'd like to see differently at the World Series, but overall, yeah, it was mostly a successful move. And... Hopefully, they'll correct some of the mistakes from next year. One other thing I wanted to mention is it seems like they were really not wanting to ban people this year. And I think they should have been doing more bans. I think they should have banned Scotty Wynn, or at least disqualified him for that whole thing with the chips in his pocket. I think they should have banned that uh, Juliana woman who is in the ladies' event who... uh, had different chips into the tournament. Instead, she ended up uh, cashing in the bubble spot and splitting it with somebody because she bubbled at the same time as somebody else. Again, I don't have 100% confirmation that was this Juliana woman, but uh, from what I'm hearing, yes, that was the same person. So I think we solved the identity thing there. And if she really did what was accused, which kind of looked like it, then she should have been not just disqualified, but banned. But it really looks like they're just not banning people. really looks like they're going out of their way not to ban people, and it's kind of weird. I was glad to see that they unbanned someone who should never have been banned in the first place, and that was uh, Luke Vrabel, a.k.a. Slay. I thought that that was a bad ban in the first place. That was kind of an ego ban, and they should have not done it. They should have undone it when he complained about it, and they didn't. So it was a nice story to see that he was unbanned in time for the main, and he even cashed the main, so good for him. And I don't know. That's about all I have to say for now. As far as what happened with all the trampling, that's not really their fault. I can't blame the World Series for that one. And I saw a lot of complaints from people saying, oh, how can they go on playing after this? Look, uh, you know, I understand. People are there to play the tournament. If you got hurt, if your leg 
was really hurt and you couldn't walk afterwards and it's going to take a while to get back to normal, I feel for you. I really do. And I'm glad I wasn't there for it. But if the vast majority of people were just kind of shaken by it but not physically injured, they should be able to come back the next day and finish the tournament. Remember, people have big stacks. People have designs on winning a bracelet. You can't just say tough luck, the tournament's over because people got shaken by this. Now, if there's that actual shooter who opened fire on people, yeah, then cancel the tournament. But that didn't happen. It was uh, an incorrect belief there was a shooter, and there was some trampling, and it wasn't good, but you don't cancel the tournament over this. So I, I agree with the World Series on that one not to have done this, though I hope they did something for the people who really were injured physically who could not come back and return. I hope they did something for them. At least, uh, at the very least, refund their buy-in and maybe even give them a bit more if they had chips, whatever. Like I, I think doing something for the people who were truly injured and can prove it, I think that would have been a nice gesture. I don't know if they did or not, but as far as continuing the tournaments the next day, I think that was fine. I think the deep stack should have waited to the next day. They shouldn't have continued them. It's kind of surprising to me. But aside from that, I don't blame the World Series for that whole thing. So those are my feelings. Hopefully I didn't leave anything out. Oh, yeah, there's one other tournament that uh, also had a back-to-back issue. It was the uh, 2,500 mixed triple draw with the 1,500 triple draw. That's another one, like... Obviously, it's the same crowd playing both, just like Limit Hold'em. If you're playing uh, 2,500 mixed triple draw, you're probably probably playing a 1,500 triple draw, right? <laughs> the same concept. You just don't do that. You've, you've got to schedule better. And these are avoidable mistakes. It's not even about the new venue. You can't even say, well, it's a new venue. I can't uh, get everything right. No, this has nothing to do with the venue. All right, we're going to move on here. We have a new main event champion. He's from Norway. There's never been a Norwegian main event champion, but now there is. His name is Espen Jorstad. He won the main event. And one of the most notable things about his win, aside from being the first Norwegian to win the main event, was the tanking, not by Espen, but by the runner-up. The runner-up had uh, two jack forehands where he was tanking for a very, very long time, heads up. Now, you can say, all right, this makes sense. This makes sense. If you were heads up to win the WSOP main event bracelet, not only is it a $4 million difference, is it $6 million for second, $10 million for first, but also nobody remembers the second-place guy. The main event winner is forever enshrined in poker history and also may have endorsement opportunities down the line, etc. The second place finisher is someone that maybe some poker enthusiasts remember. But aside from that, you really don't have the same opportunities and you get $4 million less. So it's not trivial to just call off light in the main event heads up. So I understand taking a while to think. And, of course, there's a lot of pressure. It's easy to sit there at home saying, oh, if I was here, I would call that fast or I'd fold that fast. Yeah, well, you're not sitting there playing heads up for the main event bracelet. In fact, nobody listening to this show, to my knowledge, has ever been heads up for the main event bracelet, nor have I. Closest I've been is 88th place. So I have to understand, you must understand, that anyone's tanking for a long time, obviously they're in a very big spot there and 
it's somewhat understandable, but how long is too long? And that's a good question. There were two Jack Forehands, which were uh, controversial, and uh, I'm going to play you clips of each of them. And it's not going to have the long, long, long tanking. They're edited. But uh, there was a very, very, very long tanking on both of them. One of them was the final hand where, uh, of course, Attenborough called and lost. And then uh, the other one was uh, a little bit earlier, but not that much earlier. And that was an even longer tank. So the the question came up of how long should they allow tanking, especially because this is being broadcast live and it makes for terrible viewing when someone is taking 18 minutes to tank, as Attenborough did on one of these hands. So here is uh, one of them. This was called The Tank Hurt Around the World by Poker Go. So in this hand, Attenborough has Jack-4 suited, and uh, Yorstad has King-Queen. Very real hand. Also suited. Two and a half X's from the button. A different suit. So yeah, we're gonna we probably just this hand. There's they they've been playing kind of slowly. One point five three million. I think your side's okay with that. Yeah, your side is not gonna be folding a hand this good, but I think. Yeah, this is one where you don't want to four bet it because if you face a five bet, you end up folding out a ton of equity. So what happened here was that uh, Attenborough decided to three bet with his Jack Four diamonds. And your stab with King Queen suited, he just called. They're saying he doesn't want to four bet because then he really bloats the pot. And what if he gets five bet? Then he obviously can't call with King Queen suited because that doesn't run out well, heads up against a lot of uh, premium hands. So he's going to just take a flop in position with a really good hand. Oh, just a little 55 milli in the pot pre flop. So there the flop was King 10 8. Neither of them got their suit. It, it does have two hearts, but neither of them have heart. And the third card is the king of spades. So there's no chance either can get a flush. And, of course, your stat is the one who's hit top pair, and uh, Edinburgh has basically nothing at the moment. <laughs> With two, but he's still, fi- uh, he's still firing the flop. Players, we may have some pause for concern oh, as well. Concern? Absolutely. <laughs> so now here's the four. That makes it a bit more interesting. So now Attenborough, who has put in all the action so far from behind, first he three bets the jack-four suited, then he c-bets the flop of king high, then the turn hits, and he, now he actually hits a pair, which isn't a very exciting pair. 8-10, King-4 is the board. He's got Jack-4 against King-Queen. <laughs> Putting together a lot of chips. And I got to say, I am extremely used to looking at this posture as your stud was in the tank for a very long time before shutting down my uh, tag team partners. Oh, yeah. That bluff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he finally pulled the trigger and five vet jammed east. So it was uh, a bet and call. And that was moving pretty fast up to this point. Pot already getting pretty big here. Attenborough's just firing away first with nothing and then with a bottom pair of fours. Ace Jack and took it down, but he was, he tanked 15 minutes. I think I had an entire beer on the rail before he... So an eight hit the river. So there's no flush possible no matter what. Board is eight, ten, king, four, eight. Eight hits the river. So all Attenborough has is the four and then... Your stat has had king with the queen kicker. He had that at the whole way and was ahead of the whole way. He made his decision. Did you sit much across the way from him, not just in heads up, but leading up to the... And scoop a 200 million chip pot and have my opponent absolutely dominated. Your stat, though, very good player. And like if he can squeak mm-hmm. out value, he goes all in. He's trying to end it in one hand. So it got checked to him here. Attenborough decided that... Attenborough decided... Jorstad must have something here. 
and he checks, and then Yorstad just says, all in. And he's got more chips, so Attenborough has to decide for his tournament life. Now, you may think this is a pretty obvious fold, because you've been firing the whole way, your opponent is calling, call, call, and then finally River, the board even pairs, and not with your card, so all you have is bottom pair, and you check and the guy goes all in. Now, is there a chance your opponent had hearts and missed? Yes. Is there a chance your opponent has jack-queen and missed? You know, missed straight draw. Yes. So that's what Attenborough was thinking about. Is he, am I going to let him run me off the hand? Now, keep in mind, he has a jack, so that makes jack-queen a little less likely, but there are still three other jacks in the deck, and he knows it, so that doesn't rule that much out. So he has to sit there thinking, am I being bluffed? Am I being bluffed by a missed draw? And maybe is he going all in because that second eight hit and it can be scary. So is Jorstad reasoning that Attenborough would not have checked if he had the eight? So even if Attenborough had like, let's say Attenborough had had him out kicked with ace king, he might still be afraid to call for his tournament life with that eight hitting because it's possible that Jorstad could have been calling down with an eight. So there's a lot for him to think about here. But really all he's doing with the four is catching a bluff. And is it worth his tournament life to catch a bluff? So is this worth thought? Yes, because it is a draw-heavy board. King, ten, eight with two hearts. So yes, it is worth thinking about because Jorstad did not put out any kind of aggression until the river. Until he got checked to, then he put the aggression. So as much as Attenborough would have loved the free showdown, he's not getting it, and he has to decide whether he calls for his tournament life. So he tanked for... 18 minutes on this one. It's only 18 seconds on this video, but it's 18 minutes. Espen did have a, uh, I know he had a couple of sessions with a mental game coach before he made the online main event GGP final table a couple years back that Lon and I broadcast. Oh, oh, there is the muck. The clock. Never called. Jorstadt wakes up from the nap and finds himself now with almost 500 million chips. So Jorstadt actually stretched at the end of his, as if he was waking from a nap. I don't know if that was a real stretch or if it was mocking Edinburgh for taking so long, but uh, he tanked 18 minutes for that all-in. And some people were pretty outraged to see this. It was brutal to watch on the stream. People are watching this live, and they're seeing a guy tank 18 minutes, and they're saying this is ridiculous. They, this shouldn't be allowed. And Jorstad did not call the clock. He may say, why didn't he call the clock? Because he doesn't want to give anything away. He's probably afraid that if he calls the clock, this is going to give something away to Attenborough that he's trying to force him into a fast decision. And he may think, okay, I don't. Want, I must have the best hand. Because when you go all in, the guy takes 18 minutes to tank. He probably doesn't have ace-king. So he probably just has something that is showdownable but not very good which is what the case was here. So Jorstad knows this. He wants a call here. He wants the whole thing to be over. And if he calls the clock, he's afraid that Attenborough's going to think, hey, he's calling the clock to put pressure on me to make a dumb call, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to fold. So that's why he's like, you know, I'll just wait the 18 minutes. I'll, I'll just wait out however long it takes. Jorstad said, how long was he tanking? It felt like an eternity. I was trying to focus on my breathing, did some meditation. I've been meditating on and off for an eternity. You focus on different body parts, focusing on each finger, just chilling in my zone. So he said it felt like an eternity, and he actually was trying to 
call back on his medic- meditation on how to concentrate on other things rather than what was happening. It was unnerving for him to sit there for 18 minutes waiting for a decision to be made. However, that was not the only Jack forehand which saw a long tank. There was also a board of 4-2-2 where Attenborough had, again, Jack 4, and Jorstad had Queen 2 for flop trips, and then on the river, for good measure, got a full house with a queen. But, of course, he was good the whole way. He went all in on the river, and there was a very long tank again, not 18 minutes, but a very long tank again, whether he calls with a jack four, which was top pair until the queen hit, which then became second pair, or third pair, I guess. I think it was four two two eight queen, I think was the board. I don't have that one in front of me. Attenborough finally called, and when he did call, the first thing he yelled at was fuck when he saw the hand that was beating him and that he lost. He wasn't negative. He did say afterwards that he was super proud. He said, I ran really good and definitely don't deserve to win $6 million. I was just along for the ride, and it sucks. Such a big mistake at the end, but it's okay. I'm super proud. So the fuck was because he was thinking he should probably fold that to that all-in against the Queen 2, and he didn't. That ended his World Series. Attenborough did put in some big bluffs. He had... 6-5, and the board was king 3-3 three, three against Matija Dobrik. This is at the uh, final table. And uh, he was able to run him off of it, even though Dobrik had top pair with a bad kicker. Attenborough had nothing, just 6-5 with no pair, no draw, and he, he ran him off of it. He fired all the way. Not only did he bet the uh, the turn, he also bet the river when a potential flush was uh, completed and he fired another bluff and it got through. And had he lost, he would have been left with one of the shortest stacks. He also caught a bluff where he flopped top pair with King-Queen and he was against uh, Dobrik who had ace-four on a board of 10-3 King. He ended up uh, calling down even though there was a uh, very large bet that was Dobrik made that actually put them all in. So uh, Dobrik fired all three streets, including a big one on the river, and Attenborough wasn't having it. He just called down with a top pair, good kicker, and he won. So he got praise for both of these plays for one putting through that ballsy bluff and the other one not being run off of the top pair kings himself against the same opponent. So he played well there, Attenborough. And you can't blame him for the last hand, but the the tanking got a lot of people angry. But hey, you know, it's it's the main event, it's heads up for four million dollars basically, and the main event championship, so very, very, very big spot. I think what they should do is they should just put some kind of limit on this where nobody has to call the clock, but just where nobody can tank more than X amount of time. They could even have a time bank sort of thing that kicks in maybe on the final table. But they've got to do something. I agree it's something that makes for horrible TV. And even if it wasn't on TV or even not being streamed or whatever it is, even if it was not being watched by people, it's still not good. You shouldn't have 18-minute tanks. I understand why he did it, 
but you shouldn't have it. This shouldn't be something that's allowed. So what they should do is they should have some sort of upper limit on the amount of tanking in one hand, and also, as I said, some sort of overall count in tanking so people can't tank you know, three minutes each time, some sort of uh, time bank where you have a certain amount of time to tank and maybe a one-hand limit plus an overall limit, and then you get so much time back after every hand that passes. You know, they've done this online for a long time. It's not rocket science. Okay, so moving on, let's go on to a much lighter topic. Mason Malmuth is no longer the owner of 2 Plus 2. He has kind of a weird status on there where he is allowed to ban people, but it's not actually in their contract, but they're just allowing him to do it. But then he doesn't do it much, apparently. But he is still a mod there, kind of. He just doesn't quite have the same power as before. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there anymore. So I think they're leaving him to ban people if he needs to, if there's like outright trolls that are just really, really out of line, but not allowed to just ban people like me that he doesn't care for. I think that's kind of the status he has there. But he does not own the place anymore. And the rumor is that he sold it for a lot of money. I was hearing, I don't know if this is true, but I was hearing rumors that he sold the rapidly declining in traffic 2 plus 2 site for $1 million. Which, if true, is a tremendous overpayment, but it was bought by two guys from Ukraine who seemed to be like crypto rich or something, so maybe to them that wasn't that much money. But present day 2 plus 2 was not worth anywhere near that. The activity level on there had really, really declined. In fact, there's some days where Poker Fraud Alert's Flying Stupidity Forum gets more posts than their News Views Gossip Forum, which is pretty amazing. I never thought I'd see that day. So Mason still posts there. And now that he's not someone that they have to fear, he really gets uh, bashed by people who either just didn't like him from before or have wanted to be able to speak up about him acting ridiculous but were afraid before because he had such a quick trigger figure with uh, banning people. But he started a really, really ridiculous and hilarious thread, which didn't have to be ridiculous or hilarious. But of course, when you're dealing with Mason Malmuth, that's what happens. So the backstory to this, and this started on July 4th. I only noticed it recently. But the backstory to this, and the thread is still going on. It's called It's Not Us on the News Views Gossip portion of their forum on 2 Plus 2. He noticed that a book called Getting Started with Horse Poker by Chris Wallace, Mike Mizraki, and Robert Mizraki had a forward in it that he didn't like. So this is what he wrote. Hi, everyone. I was looking at the Amazon page for the book Getting Started with Horse Poker by Chris Wallace, Michael Mizraki, and Robert Mizraki, and immediately noticed this statement. And here's the statement. Quote, they had offers from poker publishers, but she wasn't happy with the terms. And they're referring to someone who was involved, a woman they had involved with uh, putting together the book and and trying to make deals with the publisher that, that this woman wasn't happy with the terms that were being offered to them by the publishers that they had offers from. That's all it said. So why would that bother Mason? He said, I have a problem with this. 
Anyone who reads it is going to think that they're talking about 2 plus 2 publishing. And I never heard from these people. The reason I bring this up is now I've seen similar language in a couple of other books. And again, we never heard from those people either. Perhaps I'm too sensitive, but I wish stuff like this wouldn't be written. Also, I haven't read any of the book, thus I have no comment on it. Mason. Well, that's a weird first post because it's okay to come out and say, hey, I saw this in the foreword just to let everybody know they never came to us. So in case you think that they weren't happy with our terms, we were not the ones who ever dealt with them. So they must be talking about other publishers. That's all he has to say. And it's fine to say that if he wants to clarify because – You would think that maybe 2 Plus 2 could have been one of the other poker publishers that was being discussed. And it's fine if he wants to clarify that was not his company. But why does he have a problem with them saying this? Even if people will assume it's 2 Plus 2, they weren't trying to imply it was 2 Plus 2. It's not like they're saying, we had offers from from other poker publishers, including one with a curmudgeonly owner, like, that doesn't say Mason, but you know who you're going to think of if you hear about a curmudgeonly owner. But they didn't say that. They didn't. They weren't pulling any tricks to make it sound like that 2 plus 2 made an offer they didn't like. And even if 2 plus 2 did make an offer they didn't like, who cares? Does everybody have to like 2 plus 2's offers? It's not even an insult to 2 plus 2. They, d- they just didn't like it. It's not like they said, we dealt with a real asshole at this one publishing company. You might have an idea who it is. It's run by a real jerk. And... Uh, We hated dealing with him, and that's why we're self-publishing. That's not what they wrote. They just wrote they had offers from poker publishers, but she wasn't happy with the terms. That's all they wrote. Nothing about Mason, nothing about 2 plus 2, nothing was implied. So why is Mason angry about this? If he wants to clarify, that's fine, but why is he angry about this? So people right away were asking him, what's the problem here? He said, also, I just noticed the book said independently published, which means it probably went through Amazon. And for someone who is known, going through Amazon should cost very little and produce a good royalty. I've also told a couple of inquiring authors that they should look at what Amazon offers. Now, it is true that Amazon really changed the publishing game to where you get a pretty large percentage of the sale of the book, whereas before you would not. Some authors get a very small percentage of the, of the sale. Some publishers take almost everything. Some of them take like 95% of the money of the sale, and the author would get a 5% royalty. Mason claimed in this thread that 2 plus 2 gave a 25% royalty, which he claimed was uh, better than all the other poker publishing companies, but he also conceded that Amazon gives something like 60%, so it's very hard to compete with them. And in fact, he was claiming that people who came to them, he would actually refer them to Amazon. Now, I think he probably referred them to Amazon when they were unhappy what he was offering. Like he'd say, well, we're offering industry best 25%. And they go, what? 25%, man, that sucks. He's like, well, you know, we're the best of the bunch here. So if you don't like this, uh, Amazon does offer 60%. Maybe that's who you're looking for. So maybe he said that. I don't know. But let's get back to his issue with this book by Chris Fox Wallace and the Mizrakis. So he said, uh, so someone said, uh, who is she? This makes little sense in this context. So this person was confused with this woman that was being talked about since uh, Chris Wallace and the Mizrahi brothers are not she, unless they went through a sex change that I don't know about. So Mason said, apparently it was someone who shopped the book around and, quote, they had offers from poker publishers, but she wasn't happy with the terms. Obviously, in my opinion, she didn't know what she was doing. Mason. What? 
It does sound like she knows what she was doing. It sounds like that the that they got lousy offers from other publishers and they decided to self-publish on Amazon and get a healthy share of the sale. That sounds like she did know what she was doing. So then Mason said, 2 plus 2 has always paid the highest royalties by far of any poker publisher. During the poker boom, our authors made four to five times with us more than what they would have made with our competitors, and they still make a lot more today than they would what they would make with our major competitor. Also, we have a lot of expertise and work closely with our authors and often make the book much better, which is good for sales. I don't know Chris Fox, but he needs to change what he wrote and apologize to us. Perhaps someone could show him this thread. Ho oh. ho! Mason throwing down the gauntlet, saying that Chris Fox needs to change what he wrote and apologize to Mason. He needs to apologize to Mason for not publishing with him and not mentioning him and not mentioning his company and not implying anything about his company. (laughs) Yep, makes loads of sense because someone may assume it's two plus two. So I mean, assume it. They may say, ah, that's two plus two. That's what they're talking about. And I'm never going to have two plus two publish my poker book that I'm writing right now because of what they wrote there that doesn't even mention two plus two. But I think they might. I think they might mean them. So I'm never going to publish with them. That's what Mason's thinking. He thinks that Chris Fox Wallace needs to change this immediately and apologize. He needs to apologize for not mentioning Mason in a bad light. What? So this went on and on for several pages on 2 plus 2. And he was just getting destroyed there. He could not understand why people were having an issue with his demand for this apology when he was not wronged. How was Mason wronged here? What did Chris Fox, Wallace, and the rest do wrong? Nothing. They made a factual statement that other poker publishers were giving them terms they didn't like, and they decided to self-publish. Okay, that's the fa- that appears to be the truth, right? It didn't say or imply anything about Mason, so what's the issue here? What's the problem? Mason would not back down. He just kept repeating over and over that this is going to make them look bad and that he's owed an apology. Well, indeed, Chris Fox Wallace learned about this thread, as you might imagine, and he showed up. By the way, he did show up once on Poker Fraud Alert also to post about an issue that had to do with him that wasn't about this book, of course. But he showed up on 2 Plus 2. He did have an account there that dated back about 14 years, but he had only made uh, 37 posts since 2008, so he definitely was not an active poster there. But he quoted what Mason wrote. I don't know Chris Fox, but he needs to change what he wrote and apologize to us. And this was Chris Fox Wallace's response. This is laughably absurd. The words I wrote indicated that Tatiana and the Mizrakis approached me because they didn't like offers that they had received when compared to the potential income of self-publishing. Because my self-published books had done fairly well, and I earned more with my last book than the best offer they got as an advance, they thought it would be better to bring me on board and self-publish. They're choosing to go with Amazon royalty fees. Instead, it doesn't even mean the offers weren't fair, just that they weren't happy with them. No one is talking about you in relation to our book, nor did I even think about you at all when I wrote the introduction. The words of the introduction are intended to tell people how I ended up as part of this project. 
They had nothing to do with you. I haven't thought about you in years, Mason. Sometimes things just aren't about you at all. I do appreciate you getting some eyes on the book by making this post. We got a few extra sales today, but the idea that I owe you an apology is ridiculous. (laughs) That is true. All Mason did here was bring attention to the fact that Chris Fox, Wallace, and the Mizrakis wrote this book about how to beat horse. I didn't know that book existed. I would not have known that book existed. I would not have thought about that book. I would not have thought about, hey, I wonder what book Chris Fox Wallace is writing today. I wonder if the Mizrakis are putting out any books. No, I wouldn't even have thought of this. I'm aware of this book now because of this whole controversy. And if I am thinking of buying a book about horse, I will consider this one. I'm not even kidding. So this put my eyes on it. It put Everybody else's eyes on it. So the funny thing is that Mason, in demanding this apology, actually gave free advertising to a book that was not really promoting itself very well. Then Chris Fox Wallace wrote, if I write I was going to buy an electric car, but I couldn't find a deal I liked, do I owe Elon Musk an apology? I propose that we settle this with a heads-up challenge. PokerGo will probably set it up for us, but we can do it somewhere else in Vegas if they don't want it. You can pick the game or a mix of games and the stakes. This seems to be the way to resolve disputes in poker these days, so let's do it. If you win, I'll change the introduction to remove the, the, the part that got your panties in a wad. If I win, you post a public apology. You are correct in one thing. As far as I know, 2 Plus 2 was never approached to publish his book. I was not in charge of that, so I don't know why, though this post might give me some indicator. If anything, you've hurt your own business by taking offense at a tiny perceived slight that had nothing to do with you. I think a potential author is much more likely to be turned off by this post than any line in my introduction. Ouch. He's right, though. If you're going to publish your poker book, if you want to see who is out there to publish it or if you want to possibly publish it yourself and you're going around looking at the options and then you run into this thread and see how Mason's acting. Is there a possibility this will turn you off from working with him? Definitely. If you read that one line in Chris Fox Wallace's book that they went to some poker publishers without naming them and that they didn't like the terms so they published themselves, would that make you not want to go to 2 plus 2? Obviously not. Obviously, that would have no effect on you going to 2 plus 2. It might make you think, hey, maybe I should self-publish rather than go to any of these. But even Mason himself admits that he directs people who come to him to go to Amazon if they don't like his terms or if they're looking for a pretty high percentage payout without any kind of uh, promotion through their publishing company. So Mason admits he directs people to Amazon. So he can't even complain about that. So everybody was pretty much on Chris Fox Wallace's side and saying that this was a mic-dropping post by Chris Fox Wallace, and Mason came out looking pretty terrible. But hold on, it's not over. It's not over. I got drawn into this. And when I say I got drawn into this, I didn't throw myself into it. In fact, I considered responding to all of this and telling Mason how foolish he was being, but I decided not to. I decided I'm going to take the high road here. Mason's taken enough of a beat down here. I'm not going to just jump in because it's easy to jump in and join the Mason hate train. I'm not going to do it. I said, 
everything that needs to be said has already been said. I can't add anything here. So I didn't notice this until about 10 days after it was happening. So, okay, I'm just not going to say anything. That was my plan. But I did want to bring this to the attention of Poker Fraud Alert. So I figured I would make a post on the forum and direct people to this thread on 2 Plus 2. And I would also do a radio show segment about it as I am doing right now. So I did the post on Poker Fraud Alert and I explained what was going on and I linked that thread. But I also mentioned something in the thread which got someone over there to basically relay what I had said about Mason. So this is what I said. On a side note, I played with him a few days ago at 2040 Limit Hold'em at Bellagio while waiting to get into 8160. We didn't say a word to one another. The last time we played, in April of 2022, when I left to go to the bathroom, he told someone on the phone, quote, Todd Wittellis is here in the game, but didn't elaborate. Someone else in the game reported this to me. I was hoping some shit would have been talked, but nothing more was said. I don't know who he was talking to. It's not clear if he called this person to tell him I was there, or if they called him and he just mentioned it separately. Now, these are two very different things. If, while I was in the bathroom, someone happened to call him who was aware of me and my beefs with him over the years, or more of his beefs with me, but whatever. The fact that we don't get along. If someone was aware of that who happened to call him at the time that I was at the table with him in a session, but presently in the bathroom, and he mentioned, oh, Todd Wattellis is in the game. Okay, fine. He's telling a friend that someone that he doesn't care for very much that he's battled with online is in his game right now. Okay, that's worth mentioning. That's fine. I'm not going to be offended by that. But if he actually picked up the phone to call someone and waited till I went to the bathroom to do it to inform them I was in the game, that's very weird. So I wasn't sure which one it was, and the person who told me about it didn't clarify to me whether Mason had made the call to inform someone of this or if he just got a call and in the middle of talking mentioned I was in the game. Two very different things. And I didn't bother to press this or ask about it because it wasn't that important. You know, whatever. I I didn't think Mason was uh, telling someone to come down there to beat me up or something. I just thought he was uh, telling someone I was there, which was weird, but that, that was about it. So anyway, that was back in April. And I really haven't thought about it much. The first time I thought about it again was when I saw him at the 2040 game again with me. I was there first, and then he came in a little bit after. And I wasn't there that long with him because I was waiting to get to 8160. There was no 4080 for whatever reason. So when they called me to 80, I moved over to 80. And that was the end of my time with Mason there. We did not talk. When I do play with him, I don't talk to him. I don't try to create any kind of disruption in the poker room. Like, I, I don't uh, see need to do that. I did it once with uh, Howard Lederer a little bit at the World Series because I felt something needed to be said. But aside from that, if I'm with someone I don't like at the table, I usually do not start up with them because that's just not the environment to do it. And it just makes everybody there uncomfortable who's a captive audience. So that that's why I don't do it. I'm not afraid of Mason. I just don't see a need to talk shit to him at the table there. I just don't talk to him and he doesn't talk to me. And that's the way it's always been. And that's why that whole thing with saying Todd Wittellis is here in the game. Like, what the hell's the point? It's not It's not like I'm abusive to him there. I don't ever do anything to him. So that was weird. Anyway, I offhandedly mentioned this because I was talking about a Mason thread and I just thought it was kind of a funny little story from back in April. Well, someone brought this over there to 2 plus 2 and mentioned 
that Mason had done this. Now, they didn't just bring my name up out of nowhere. Someone else in the thread, and this was uh, about two weeks ago, someone else in the thread brought up that Mason is beefing with various people, uh, including uh, me and Daniel Negreanu and Jonathan Little. The list is actually a lot longer than that, but those are the three that uh, were mentioned there. I I wasn't even entirely sure of the context. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. But Mason responded in a bizarre way, saying that he doesn't know any of us, that he knows Jonathan Little uh, somewhat because they talked a little bit about possibly having a book published with uh, 2 plus 2, and then it all fell through. But uh, as far as me and Negreanu, he barely knows us, which is a weird thing to say. Yeah, it's true that Mason and I haven't hung out socially or gone to dinner or anything like that, but he can't say he doesn't know me. He's been very aware of me in poker for now, what, almost uh, 20 years, and he uh, he's played with me a few times. And we've gone back and forth on the forum a whole lot. He once had his lawyer threaten to sue me, so he can't say he barely knows me. And same with Negranu. I mean, basically, same situation with him and Negranu. He can say he hasn't spent much time with us. He can say he doesn't know a lot about my personal life. That's probably true. But he can't say he hardly knows me. When you say you hardly know someone, it's someone that you may have played with once or twice, but you never uh, had much interaction with them. But you have enough interaction with someone online, and then you see them in person. That counts as knowing them. It even counts as knowing them if you don't see them in person. So anyway, he was trying to convince people he didn't know me or Negranu, which is a weird line to take. But then someone brought up to him, if you don't know Todd Wittellis, why are you calling people when he's at the poker table? Why did you do this back in April? And tell them he was there, which is a good question. You know, like, if I'm someone he barely knows, why is he picking up the phone to call people? But remember, I didn't have confirmation that he picked up the phone to call people. All I knew is he was on the phone with someone and said that I was in the game. Well, Mason clarified it, and it was very bizarre. This was really, really bizarre. This is how he explained what happened back in April. A friend of mine who plays a lot of limit poker was on Wittellis' website This person read a lot of his Limit Poker stuff and liked what he read. So he asked me who this person was and if he ever played in Las Vegas. I told my friend next time I saw Wittellis, I would give him, my friend, a call in case he wanted to come down and see what he looked like. Again, I hardly know Wittellis. What? (laughs) What? This whole thing makes no sense. This whole thing makes no sense. First of all, he's admitting that he actually picked up the phone and called someone to tell them I was there. So it wasn't even like a phone call that came in while he was at the table. He actually picked up the phone and called someone to tell them I was there. That was the purpose of the phone call. He's admitting this right there on a post he made on uh, July 21st, just uh, a day and a half ago. But the story is that this is someone who lurks, I assume lurks, on, on Poker Fraud Alert has never met me and in fact doesn't know what I look like, which is really weird. But yet they've read my limit poker stuff on Poker Fraud Alert, which I posted some, but it's not like I'm posting tons of limit poker strategy. I do it occasionally. Now, at least Mason gave a compliment there that his friend liked what he read. 
So at least he's not saying, oh, this person was reading Wattellis' poker content and thought he was a big fish and didn't know what he was doing. At least he's saying that his friend liked what I put out there. So at least uh, Mason is giving me a compliment for giving good uh, limit poker advice on Poker Fraud Alert, or at least according to his friend. But he claims that his friend didn't know who I was, yet somehow was on my site, and wondered if I ever played in Las Vegas, and uh, wanted to see what I looked like. Well, wait a minute. If you want to see what I look like, you just Google Todd Wittellis, and there's a whole lot of pictures of me, both recent and not so recent, where you can see very well what I look like. That's not a mystery. It is not difficult for someone to find out what I look like. In fact, I bet if you're a listener to this show, you've either seen me in person, seen pictures of me, or Googled me to see what I look like. I don't think a single person listening to this show has wondered what I look like and does not know. Now, it's possible some listeners to the show listen and don't really care what I look like, which is fine, and you've never tried to look it up, but I assume most of you know what I look like, and I assume all of you who wonder what I look like very quickly got that answer because that's what Google does for you. But instead, supposedly Mason's friend wanted a phone call from him when I showed up in the game so he could show up there and see what I look like. <laughs> like what, did this guy want to date with me? <laughs> What's going on here? What is going on here? I, this is really what Mason wrote. July 21st, 2022, 10.52 p.m. It's right here. Right here on 2 plus 2. So finally I had to get involved. Finally I had to say something. Because now this thread turned to be about me somehow. I hadn't posted yet in the thread. But my name was mentioned several times. And after that weird explanation, I had to say something back. So I said to Mason, very nice of you to give your limit playing friends a heads up regarding my whereabouts. However, next time a reader of my site is interested in meeting me or showing up when I'm at the casino, tell them they can just text me and, and I will give them that info myself. My text number is publicly available. It's the same one to call into my radio show. No need to call people when I go to the bathroom. And by the way, that is a good point. He, he called when I went to the bathroom. He made sure I wasn't there when he made the call. He waited for me to be away from the table. <laughs> he didn't just pick up the phone in front of me and say, yeah, Todd Wattellis is here. He waited for me to go to the bathroom and then call the person. I don't even know what the real story is here. Like, Is there really some friend that wants to know when I'm there so he can see what I look like? Does this friend even exist? Or was Mason just like so unnerved him at the table with him he had to call and say, oh, Todd Wattellis is at the table. I I don't even understand why he would call someone to say this because I don't ever create any trouble for him and he knows it. He's not even say I create trouble for him. I'm sure if you ask Mason, has Todd ever created trouble for you at the poker table? He would say no. At least that's what I think he'd say. I guess he could lie, but I've never caused a bit of trouble. I've never talked one iota of trash to Mason Malmuth. Never. I've never been difficult with him in any way. I haven't played a ton with him because I don't play a whole lot of 2040. I'm usually playing 2040 if I'm looking to move to 4080, and Mason tends to stick to 2040. Sometimes he plays 4080, but he he is mainly a 2040. This is just really weird, though. So I figured I'd throw that into this show just for some lighthearted stuff. Next topic, we have an update for you on the Adele situation, which we have been covering ever since the initial fail that occurred with her initial residency at Caesars. If you remember, earlier in the year, there was a big controversy over Adele's very abrupt cancellation 
of her residency at Caesars, where she's going to be performing two days a week, every weekend. And her inaugural show was canceled with less than 48 hours notice. So everybody who had bought plane tickets, they were on the way there to Vegas, all the way from uh, England, a lot of them. She's has a lot of fans over there where she's from. Only to land and to find out that the show wasn't happening and they came all the way to Vegas for nothing. And people were rightfully pissed about this. She blamed that at the time on COVID, which since then we figured out that is not the truth, or at least that's not most of the truth. I'm going to play you again her statement about this. This is just to remind you we've played it before in this show. I'm so sorry, but... um my show ain't ready. We've tried absolutely everything that we can to put it together in time and for it to be good enough for you, but we've been absolutely destroyed by delivery delays and COVID. Half my crew, half my team are down with COVID, they still are. And it's been impossible to finish the show. And I can't give you what I have right now. Um, and I'm gutted, I'm gutted and I'm sorry it's so last minute. We've been awake for over 30 hours now trying to figure it out and we've run out of time and I'm so upset and I'm really embarrassed and I'm so sorry to everyone that's travelled again. I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, we're on it. We're going to reschedule all of the dates. We're on it right now. Um, and I'm going to finish my show and I'm going to get it to where it's supposed to be now for you. I'm so, I'm so sorry. It's been impossible. We've been up against so much and it just ain't ready. I've got it. I'm got it. I'm got it. That was on January 20th. And this was not the truth. Turned out that there are a few things going on at once. She was having loads of fights with Caesars and with her own set designer about the set. She wanted a very minimalized show where she's just singing. They wanted a spectacular with very, very advanced sets and a lot going on. And uh, she was not happy about that. And they were fighting back and forth. She did not like the plans they had for her to rise out of the water. She called it a baggy old pond. I'm not going to rise out of a baggy old pond. A baggy old pond. She didn't like that. And she was also having man troubles. She was dating Rich Paul, Agent Rich Paul, and uh, having big problems in the relationship with him. Now, she's still with him, but uh, they were reporting that she kept getting on the phone with him and crying and just could not concentrate on preparing for the show because of all her problems with Rich Paul. And then what she did as soon as she canceled her residency, she flew back to L.A. to go be with him again. So she was trying to save her relationship with him. She canceled the whole residency, which was to last all the way through April. And that's why the COVID excuse made no sense, because if they 
were delayed because of delivery problems or people being out with COVID, okay, that explains missing the first few weeks. But how do, why would they cancel all the way through April when obviously anyone who's out sick with COVID would be better and the deliveries would be there by then? So the fact that she canceled the entire residency rather than just postponing a few weeks made it look obvious a lot more was going on. And as more and more stories came out, clearly it was. Another big problem was that Adele hates performing. She does not like live performances. She likes singing. She likes recording. She does not like performing for large crowds. It gets her nervous. It gives her tremendous anxiety. It gets her physically ill. This has been reported in the past. She's admitted to this in interviews, and she has missed many past concerts where she had various excuses at the last minute why she couldn't make it. She was a chronic canceller of concert dates, even back when she wasn't all that well-known. So she just has a major psychological hurdle she can't clear to get herself up for performing, And it was amazing to me that Caesars would have signed her up for a residency where she has to do 12 weeks of shows two nights a week when it's so hard for her to even get up to do one show. So the whole thing seemed really, really foolhardy to me. And they claimed she's eventually going to make it up and that she may come back in the summer, which didn't happen. I thought it was just never going to happen. Well, guess what? You've heard the phrase, fool me once shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Well, I think shame on Caesars here because they're trying again with her. Adele's residency is now set for November 18th, again at the Coliseum at Caesars Palace. It was not clear if she was going to come back to Caesars. It was thought that maybe she'd go take residency elsewhere, but no, she's coming back to the same spot. I don't know if the baggy old pond's going to be there, but she's going to come back to the same spot November 18th, which is 10 months after she was to begin earlier this year. And she's going to have this residency run all the way through February 24th, 2023, with a holiday break. But other than that, she will be performing every week. They have not yet made a formal announcement. This was breaking news today. So it is believed that they will be making a formal announcement on July 25th about this. At the moment, it's just a very strong rumor. But when I say a very strong rumor, it's strong enough to have been reported in the Las Vegas Review Journal. It seems fairly likely that this is the truth. The only point she will not be performing will be between Christmas and January 20th. So they've changed the set designer, the one she was fighting with, known as uh, S., S. Devlin, they've kicked her out, and uh, Kim Gavin is now the set designer. Even though S. has worked with Adele before, and it was fine, she couldn't get along with S. this time, and this time she is now working with Kim Gavin, who she's not worked with in the past, but uh, Kim Gavin has worked with Take That, which is a British pop group, and also has uh, helped out with the Rolling Stones 60th anniversary tour. Since they ended up postponing in what could have been a postponement that never ended, it could have been a permanent postponement, but uh, since that postponement, they took out pretty much the entire set and they laid off the stagehands all the way through September. 
However, um, some of the stagehands may be returning because they did leave it up in the air that this could come back, but they were laid off through September of 2022. There's apparently a documentary coming regarding Adele's relationship with Rich Paul and about this show. Adele told BBC Radio in early July that she, quote, definitely felt everyone's disappointment after postponing that Vegas series. And she said she was devastated. She didn't say gutted or gutted. She said devastated. She said, I was frightened about letting them down and I thought I could pull it together and make it work, but I couldn't. I stand by that decision. I don't think any other artist would have done what I did. And that's what is, that's why I think it was such a massive, massive story. See, she still isn't getting it. She's bragging that she did something that other artists would not have done. What? Well, I guess in a way I agree. It is true a lot of artists would not have pulled out of a major, major residency worth a ton of money and would harm their own reputation because they're having troubles with their boyfriend. It's true that a lot of artists would not have pulled out of a major residency because they want them to rise out of water. So I guess that part's true. But what does she mean that she thought she could pull it together and make it work and she couldn't? Unless she means pull herself together about her relationship problems. I don't know. Like She's still sticking to this whole thing like it was really affected by COVID and deliveries, which it wasn't. Or at least that wasn't the main reason the problems were occurring. And I can't see where any other artist would have, like, behaved this way at all. I guess in that way she's correct, but not the way she thinks. She's trying to brag about how she postponed something and was brave to do so because the thing wasn't ready, and the other artist would have just toughed it out and done a crappy show. In reality, she postponed it for weird reasons under weird circumstances that other artists don't go through. There's not much more known about this at the moment. I guess we'll see on Monday when there is a a formal announcement about this. Now, should you run out and buy Adele tickets for November 18th? Well, only if you're in Vegas and you're not going to be setting aside money for hotels or flights because there's a pretty damn good chance she's going to cancel again. She has a lot of trouble keeping these dates. It's always something different. Oh, my throat's hurting. Oh, I need surgery now. Oh, my show's not ready because of COVID. Oh, I'm sick. It's it's always something. It's always something. And it's just because she doesn't like performing. She likes the money for performing. And that's why she's signing up for these things, because the money's big. But she doesn't like performing. She hates it. And... When you're already doing something you don't like, then anything can set you off. You're in a bad mood to start. You're very difficult to work with. And anything that seems suboptimal to you just seems like a bigger and bigger deal. That's human nature. Think about if you were forced to do something you really don't want to do, you really don't like. And then you psych yourself out to do it, and then more details come out that make the whole thing seem even worse you're going to get in a worse and worse mood and become more and more difficult to work with. And that's basically what was happening with her and then throw relationship problems on top of it and you see what happens there. It'll be interesting to see, even if in absence of these problems and if she does manage to 
do the first show on November 18th, how long will she last? Will she be able to do the entire residency through February 24th? I have my doubts. Remember, she gets physically ill from doing these shows. She feels like she's got to go throw up after doing one of these shows. She said that just having people applaud for her makes her feel uncomfortable and nervous. She doesn't know what to do. Now, to you, that may sound strange. To you, you may think, okay, well, she's a famous singer. She sings. People clap. That's natural. You say, okay, they're clapping for my singing. Great. They're enjoying my show. Great. Well, that's not how it works for her. She feels really, really awkward. Like, okay, what do I do? They're clapping for me. How do I react to this? This is very stressful. I wish they weren't clapping. Why, why won't they stop clapping? I hate this. I hate them clapping for me. Why can't they just let me sing? Like, that's what she thinks. And she gets herself all worked up. So it's some kind of psychological disorder. But the bottom line is, she's just not a performer. She's not a live performer. She never will be. She hates it. And I don't see how she's going to get through this residency. This will be interesting to see where they go. Because this really has fail written all over it. All the problems that were there early this year will be there late this year, except maybe a different set designer and maybe Caesars has backed off as far as the baggy old pond and other things that she doesn't want in the show. Maybe they've agreed that just Adele's singing. Like, if I were Caesars, that's what I would do. I would say, you know what, I'd, I'd prefer a show with more stuff going on in the background, but all right, fine. Adele, how do you want it? We'll do it your way. Because the truth is, most people are coming to see her. If they come and she sings songs they like and she does a good job singing, that's really all everybody cares about. The other stuff is just kind of background. Like, this isn't O. Oh, this isn't uh, one of those other shows where you're supposed to be dazzled with what's going on. This is a singer. So while you might like to have the supplementary performances in the background, the, if it's going to disturb the star to no end, just do away with it. So that's what I would do if I were in charge here and I were insisting this were going on. Now, honestly, if I was in charge here, I would just say, goodbye, Adele, we're not finishing this. <laughs> that's what I would do because I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to end and fail all over again and they're going to feel really foolish. It's going to make Caesars look really bad that this has happened twice. It's one thing if the first time you schedule it, she acts weird and you have to cancel it. But to bring her back a second time, if there's fail all over again, people are going to ask, Caesars, why didn't you see this coming? It, it, it just happened earlier this year. So why did you put us through this again? And I'm sure people will fly out again from the UK. And I'm sure they will make all the same mistakes as last time and then possibly be disappointed. Now, maybe she will cancel not two days beforehand. Maybe it'll be much more in advance where people at least can cancel their flights. But otherwise, uh, this is pretty bad. Let's go on to the next topic. A woman claiming she is a professional poker player had a tragedy occur, and I'm, I'm doubtful that she's a real professional poker player, but a professional poker player identifying mom bought fentanyl left it sitting out in her room in the Orleans Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, and her child unfortunately took it and died. But there's more to this story than just that. Very tragic story, but it's more complicated than what I just said. Amber Mitchell, who is 34, she identifies herself as a pro poker player for a decade. 
I couldn't find any kind of real tournament results for her. I found about $1,000 worth of caches in Hendon Mob for an Amber Mitchell. I don't even know if it's the same Amber Mitchell, but even if it is, uh, playing for a decade and caching $1,000 is not going to get you very far. I'm not aware of her from the Vegas cash scene, nor from poker Twitter or any other poker social media groups. That doesn't mean that she isn't a poker player. She probably plays poker, but I don't think she does it for a living. I even wonder if she wins. I have a feeling she does not. That is the profession a lot of people claim to have in Las Vegas when they are doing illegal things to make money, because... What's something you can say if you're just coming up with cash from other sources that you shouldn't be getting cash from? Well, I wanted to play in poker. And it's especially easy to say when you really do also play poker, even if you don't win. Regardless of whether she wins or loses, the tragic story that occurred does involve drugs. And unfortunately, uh, it involves poker, too. And sadly, the poker figured into the death of her child. So she bought a number of pills that were fentanyl, but were labeled as oxycodone for sale on the black market. A lot of these oxys that you buy on the black market are really fentanyl. So keep that in mind. If you're going to buy oxys that were not manufactured by a pharmaceutical company, often they are actually fentanyl. So that is something you should be aware of before you think you're buying oxys on the cheap. Anyway, she bought these and believed that she's going to sell them for a profit. And for whatever reason, she laid them out in plain sight in her hotel room in the Orleans. I don't even know why she's staying in the Orleans, because I believe she's from Las Vegas. But she was staying in the Orleans and laid these all out in her hotel room and she had her four-year-old son there with her, who she uh, left in the room while he was sleeping so she could go downstairs and play poker in the Orleans poker room. Unfortunately, the four-year-old woke up and discovered the pills and took some of them. Now, did she come back and find her four-year-old dead? Actually, no. She came back and found her four-year-old very sick. So what would any even moderately responsible adult do once they see that has occurred? You would rush your child to the hospital, right? You you would freak out that your son took these pills and looks very sick. And then you'd rush him to the hospital and you would try to save him. That's not what she did. She felt that uh, oxycodone was not that dangerous to a kid. So, uh, yeah, it made sense he was kind of out of it because he's not used to taking it. But eh, we'll just put him back to bed and go back down and play poker. That's what she did. In fact, she went back down to play poker, she claimed, because she hadn't cashed out yet. She was just coming back up to the room to take a little break, and her chips were still on the table. So she kind of felt like they were expecting her to come back. She didn't want to be picked up and and, uh, be thrown out of the game. So she figured her son would be okay. She doesn't want to just leave and take him to the hospital and have her chips picked up and lose her seat. So she went back down and played poker, came back up, and her son was dead. So as you might guess, she was arrested. I'm looking at a picture of her here. And let me tell you, she looks much more like a drug addict than a pro poker player. 
She very much has the druggy look, and I would be shocked if she is supporting herself with poker, especially, you know, the whole story is about her buying drugs to sell. I think she was using drugs too, but these drugs that her son took, she was buying to sell. So that seemed to be what her real income was. She had actually two sons with with her there. I don't know how old the older was, the older boy was, but uh, it was the younger son, the four year old, who took the pills. She actually went upstairs to check on them at one a.m. So strangely enough, she goes to check on them and sees that her four year old is sick and knew that he took one of the pills, at least one of the pills, and that uh, well, you know what. It's okay. He's just not used to it. I'll go back down and play poker. Unbelievable. The boy's name was Sikori Cayetano. When uh, she had come up at 1 a.m. was when she first found him uh, drowsy and just seeming like he was kind of sick. Went back down, came back up at 3 a.m. and he had blood coming out of his mouth. And uh, at that point, she took him for medical help, but by that point it was too late and he died. A very uh, tragic story. They tested the pills themselves and they tested positive for for, uh, fentanyl, so this was not just a theory that it was really fentanyl. It really was fentanyl. Detectives wrote, there has been a national campaign to bring awareness to the fact that these counterfeit pills are likely to contain fentanyl and one single pill could kill you the first time you take it. It's likely... Amber Mitchell would have been aware of this as it was obvious the pills she was selling were not from a pharmacy. She said that she was bouncing from hotels to friends' homes while playing poker at night to earn money. More like selling fake oxys to earn money. I didn't know oxy could kill him. I don't know about fentanyl, she told police. She's currently being held for $200,000 bail, which I doubt she's going to come up with. That occurred at the Orleans, and this happened about a week ago, a little more than a week ago. She was booked on three counts of child abuse and one count of possession with intent to sell drugs. I'm wondering if they're going to add charges here. Child neglect. I wonder if even manslaughter is possible here. Wouldn't be murder, but possibly manslaughter. Very bad. Very, very bad. It's one thing to leave the pills out, but it's another thing to not take the kid for help because you're playing poker. Hmm. But beware of these stories that talk about professional poker this, professional poker that, and they've done something bad. A lot of times that's just a cover profession when the actual profession is drug dealer or whatever else. Three Las Vegas casinos are going to be permanently closing And none of these are on the Strip, so your head may be running to which one of these Strip casinos is closing. No, it's nothing on the Strip, but three Las Vegas casinos are indeed closing. And Brandon actually posed this question to me when we were at dinner, and I got uh, two of them right, which I was proud of myself because I had not heard anything about this. And then I was able to guess two of them. The only hint he gave is these were not strip casinos. So the three that are going to be closing, and by the way, they have been closed since they were forcefully shut down in March of 2020. 
So they're they don't have a closing date because they've already been shut down, but they're never coming back. The decision has been made to never reopen them and to demolish them. The three are Fiesta Rancho, Texas Station, and Fiesta Henderson. These are all station casinos, and Station has decided that it's just not worth reopening these. Station's casino president, Scott Krieger, told the Las Vegas Review-Journal, even before the pandemic, they were our worst performing properties. Post-pandemic, at least where we are today, we don't see that it's valuable to reopen these properties for a couple of reasons. The majority of our loyal customers migrated to our other facilities, and we captured about 90% of that overall play. So these properties, to some degree, became duplicative. So I understand what he's saying here, that people just kind of moved to other station casinos once these closed and didn't reopen, when everything else reopened after the forced closures stopped in June of 2020. Apparently, Fiesta Rancho and Texas Station's customers moved over to Santa Fe Station, and uh, Fiesta Henderson moved over to Green Valley Ranch and Sunset Station. So they really didn't lose that many customers, and it doesn't matter to them where people play as long as they show up and play the same way they did before. Station is going to sell the land that these properties were on and then possibly open up a new casino in North Las Vegas, but they have not uh, revealed or maybe even decided on a new site for that casino. North Las Vegas is not just the northern part of Las Vegas. It's actually a different city. It's a different incorporated city called North Las Vegas, and it's exactly where it sounds. It's north of Las Vegas. If you drive north on the 15, eventually you will get there before you leave the greater Las Vegas area. It is not a very good neighborhood. It's not something you'd really want to go to as a tourist. They have very few tourists in North Las Vegas. And if you ever want to come to Vegas and you see some cheap rooms in North Las Vegas, don't be tempted. You will be far from anything you want to go to in Vegas, and the area is lousy. But nevertheless, there is potential to make money by opening a casino in North Las Vegas because it isn't served by that many casinos. And a new Stations casino might be appealing to the locals over there. Keep in mind that Stations has always served the locals' market. Stations does not go after tourists for the most part. They are counting on locals to give them their business there. So this would be along those same lines. They're also in the process of building a new hotel in uh, southwest Las Vegas, which will have a casino. It's going to be called uh, Durango Hotel and Casino. And there's also a shortage of uh, casinos in that area. Stations says that uh, they're preferring that whoever buys the land does not open another casino. Now, they're going to wreck their existing buildings there partially to make it more difficult for anyone who purchases the land to open a casino. They don't want to just leave a casino right there for them. It's not clear if they're going to put this contractually in the sale that they can't operate a casino on the land or if they're just hoping that it won't be done and are looking to sell it to a company that uh, doesn't have a casino history and doesn't seem interested in operating casino. They are afraid that if they sell this to another casino operator, then 
they will have new competition that they don't want. They also claim that putting a non-casino property in the former sites of these uh, three casinos will benefit the community, quote, diversifying the area. Now, do you believe that the owners of Stations Casinos really care about diversifying the area? (laughs) No, they don't care. That's just uh, corporate speak. They're trying to make up excuses for why there should not be another casino at the sites where they had a casino because they don't want the competition, which they admit, but uh, you know, we would want to see the area diversified. We think it's great for the community if there's anything but a casino. And yeah, it kind of helps us not have competition. What about employees? Well, as you might guess, this really doesn't impact very much because the three casinos were not open. So the casinos didn't have zero employees because they're not abandoned completely. They have to do some very minimal upkeep to make sure that these casinos don't completely fall apart when they are closed. But there's not much to do, obviously. There's no uh, customers. There's no food to serve. There's nobody to clean after. There's no hotel to deal with. There's just nothing. They just got to make sure the property basically doesn't fall apart, which now doesn't matter. Now it can fall apart because they're going to wreck it. So there will be very few employees who will be losing their job over this, and I have to imagine they are going to move them to other stations' casinos, of which they have plenty. So overall, this is not going to have a major impact on Las Vegas. These have not been open for two and a half years anyway. But if you were expecting one of these three to come back, don't, because it's simply not. So we're going to move on and do our third interview. We actually have three interviews scheduled for tonight. This is the third of three. And this one is a bit different than anything we've done recently on this show. We're going to hear an interesting story about uh, Virginia Poker. This is actually someone who's a manager of a poker room there. And this is a uh, fairly longtime listener to the show who's a director of operations at something called Pops Poker in Virginia, which I hadn't heard of before. But we're going to have him tell uh, the story of what's happening. Thought it would give him a a chance to give the listeners a, a, a look into poker in a place that you don't normally think about when it comes to poker, and that is Virginia. Hello. Hello. Is this Rich? This is Rich. Hello. Welcome to the show. I know we've uh, talked about this for a few weeks now about uh, you appearing on here. You actually uh, emailed me. Well, you actually emailed me around the time we had our last show on uh, July 11th. And uh, you said that you've never called into the show or posted on the forum, but you have a story and case you think I will be interested in and that you are the director of operations at Pops Poker, which is a charitable gaming poker operations company in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, can you explain to me what charitable gaming is in Virginia? Well, uh, charitable gaming is one of the forms of gaming that they do allow in the state of Virginia. So there are a few different ways that you can game in Virginia. One is the lottery, and we have a thriving lottery in the state of Virginia. Um, 
The second one would be horse racing. We have Colonial Downs and legal horse racing in the state of Virginia. And dovetailing off of that is a place called Rosie's, which opened up a few years ago that um, actually did a little workaround for uh, slot machines and were able to make slot machines that you bet on historical horse racing results. So we have that. And we have uh, charitable gaming. And charitable gaming largely was just bingo for decades. And if you grew up in Virginia, you might have, you know, if you went to a private school or something like that, you know, you may have had to work bingo. It's all volunteer-based. Um, and, you know, that's, that's been around a very long time, bingo. And it was pretty thriving, actually. And uh, when Rosie's came out, it really affected uh, charitable gaming in general. And, you know, charitable gaming requires that you have a, a charity of some kind of 501c organization that uh, is licensed to, typically licensed in bingo to run bingo. Um, but when Rosie's came in, it really affected the charitable gaming industry. And they started to search for other ways to supplant that income. Uh, I think it went down about 50%. So the idea was floated around for poker, and they brought, brought it up for several years. And finally, in 2020, they passed a bill allowing us to play charitable poker in the state of Virginia. Okay, interesting. Now, one quick question about Rosie's. You said that there were slot machines where there's betting on actual historical horse racing results. Now, how can you bet on historical horse racing when you know what happened already? Well, it, I think I, I'm not an expert on how Rosie's does their slot machines, but it's my understanding that it picks like a random horse race and and that's how it, it does the randomization of wins or, and losses. And uh, it was a workaround. In the, in I see. So you're not actually betting on the that. results. It's more like just a slot that is kind of based on that. Right, exactly. You, it's not like you know what horse race that you're betting on, I, I don't believe. I mean, okay. You, you click a button and – things spin and then it tells you which horse race it was based on you know oh i see i see okay well, that's interesting all right so so rosie's was eating to, into the uh, charitable gaming so they they added poker in uh in mid 2020 and uh so so then what happened well and then since then they've also uh voted in virginia to have five casinos in the state of virginia and so they approved five casinos uh one in bristol virginia to, uh, to in Tidewater area, which is near Virginia Beach. Uh, I think it was Norfolk and Portsmouth were the two locations. One in Northern Virginia, which is up near D.C., and one in Richmond. Um, each locality had to vote whether to accept this casino proposal or not, and all of them were accepted except Richmond. In fact, they turned it down. And you know now there's somewhat of a push to uh, move that opportunity to Petersburg, which is about... 30 to 40 minutes away uh, south of Richmond. And so you have casino gaming as well now, in addition to charitable gaming and, and horse racing and, and the lottery. So this Pops Poker you worked for, did that start, in, uh, did that start up in mid-2020 when the poker was allowed? Well, the idea started up. So the history is that the General Assembly, which is the Virginia State Legislature, passed a bill in 2020, it was signed into law by the governor and went into effect on July 1st, 
2020. Any bills that are passed and the General Assembly meets in January, those bills are passed and then they're put into effect on July 1st of that year. So 2020 was the year for Senate Bill 936, which is the one that basically decriminalizes poker and allows for poker and charitable gaming. Um, the answer is no, we didn't start it right away. Um, it would have been nice to have started July 1st, 2020, but, and, and keep in mind, I'm not a uh, political expert. I'm not a uh, law expert, but I'm you know deep enough into it to know the basics of it. But, you know, it was my understanding that the board, uh, the charitable gaming board, which is represented by lay people and people that are in the industry of charitable gaming from around the state were charged with promulgating regulations surrounding how poker would run under charitable gaming. And the board met 13 times, I believe, in 2020. And on December 31st of 2020, finalized and adopted these regulations, submitted them to the Office of Charitable Gaming, which interestingly enough, falls under what they call VDACS, V-D-A-C-S, which is an acronym for the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. So VDACS, that office was, uh, you know, they're the ones that usually do regulations. I think believe they're the ones that do the regulations for bingo and things like raffles and duck races, which are all uh, allowed under uh, charitable gaming. I think duck races, when you like have your name on a duck and you put it in a pond and then you're like, whichever one goes the farthest or whatever. I don't know how, you know, it's one of those interesting type of raffle events. And so these were the types of things that they were regulating. But interestingly, the, the bill allowed for the board to promulgate these regulations. And so they did. And they got these regulations all put together by December 31st of 2020. And they submitted those regulations to the Office of Charitable Gaming, VDAX. In late January, applications for licenses came out, and the charity would have to get licensed, and the operations company would also have to get licensed. Uh, an operations company cannot run poker without a licensed charity. So, you know, of course, I was working with uh, some people that had a licensed charity uh, for bingo, and we just added Pops Poker as the operations company to assist. Uh, I don't know that you can really run a poker room with volunteers that are just going to come out day after day to volunteer their time uh, when it really requires a full-time job of lots of people. So those that application came out in late January. We filled it out and gave them a thousand dollar check, which they cashed. And then we waited for our license, which never came. And so we didn't hear anything from them for 98 days, sometime in the middle of uh, April. And what we found out was that there was some kind of budget amendment that was slipped into the Virginia state budget at the last second. On February 28th, um, that budget amendment was slipped in, which stated that any regulations, specifically poker regulations, that are not in effect by March 1st are not in effect for the entire year, meaning through June 30th of 2022. So, and they say, you know, if you pass this bill on February 28th and you're saying March 1st, you really mean in like six to eight hours. So there's no time to refute it or fight it or do anything like that. And that was in the state law. 
And VDAX kind of hung their hat on that and said, well, you know, no regulations, then I don't think we have to issue licenses or anything. So they didn't issue a license, and they didn't even get back to us. So the charity sued the state for losses. And in that particular lawsuit, we won attorney's fees. And uh, But the, the judge stopped short of actually saying, okay, you have to issue these licenses. But once they lost the case, there really wasn't a whole lot that you could do to these charities, including ours, that wanted to run poker. So on September 9th, which was, you know, it just takes a long time to get a poker room ready. You know, <laughs> it's not like you can snap your fingers and then the room is ready for everybody. There's a lot of work to be done with personnel and chairs, chips, cards, tables, you know, all of that systems, poker atlas, back office systems, all that. So it took a lot of time to get this working and up and running. But on September 9th, we opened. There were other charities around the state that had already opened and they were involved in charitable poker as well. Um, moving forward in January of 2022, the state, the General Assembly passed some more laws. And one of the laws stated that if you play charitable poker without a license, you're subject to a $25,000 to $50,000 fine per occurrence. They don't define what the occurrence is. It could be one day, it could be one table, it could be per hand, I mean, anything. It could be per person at one table, even, you know. They could come away, with, you deal one hand, and they could charge you $175,000. The second law stated two unusual things. One, that all tournaments would have to, uh, would have, to have predetermined end times. And uh. the second thing they said was that we could not use chips that have any cash value. Yeah. And, well, so so it yeah, looks like here. Let me stop here. So it looks like with these uh, new laws there, that uh, uh, first of all, that anyone who was to run without a license was going to be you know fined so heavily that they basically couldn't do it. And the second one, basically, is uh, not only uh, killing cash games because they can't be chips of the cash value, which is anything in a cash game, but also that uh, a tournament with a predetermined end time, that's not how poker tournaments work, so that really uh, makes it impossible to run uh, a real poker tournament either. Right, exactly. It, I felt that that particular uh, law was utterly ridiculous. I, I even, um, when we sought for an injunction against these laws, um, I should say there's another charity that sought for that injunction, but they used our lawyers and basically our strategy um, to fight this and seek an injunction on these laws. I ended up uh, taking the stand to testify. Uh, they needed somebody with some poker knowledge. And so I testified essentially uh, that, you know, you can have a baseball game with nine innings and three outs per inning, but can you tell me the tournament's going to end at five o'clock <laughs> or the, you know, the, the, baseball game went at five o'clock it might end at five it might end at nine it might end at ten there's no predetermined end time and uh there are also arguments obviously against chips with a cash value uh, even in tournament situations and i mean I should back up and say that the original bill uh carved out a a specific allowance for playing poker tournaments so they 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 said we could play poker tournaments but they defined poker tournaments in such a way 
that it was fairly easy to get around and do our own work around, just like Rosie's did with the historical horse racing results we did with what we call live action tournaments, which allowed us to fall within, I mean, kind of shortening the, you know, the explanation, but they had several bullet points that they were saying, this is what a tournament is. And a live action tournament essentially plays like a cash game, but has a component to it that uh, essentially allows us to fall within the law. And we even ran that idea by the attorney general when we first came up with it, the attorney general, basically approved it, or I should say a representative of the attorney general's office. They said, that sounds like a great idea. I don't see any problem with that. We, they gave us the green light the whole way. So it sounds like you're so, right. you, you were going to run a tournament that is actually a cash game, but it's called a tournament, and you just kind of uh, make a few tweaks to where uh, it, it very much resembles a cash game. Is that basically what uh, you're saying you did here? Correct. Correct. It very much resembles a cash game. You come in and you play 1-2 or 1-3 or 2-5, and uh, you know there's just I mean, without getting all the details of it, it's uh, it plays exactly as they specified it needed to play. Okay, in my opinion, and in the attorney general's opinion, um, when they came out with you know these new laws, uh, of course, no cash chips means uh, <laughs> you know it's much harder to do a cash game. And how do you pay your dealers? Dealers work largely on tips, and if the players aren't paying the dealers, then we have to pay the dealers. And by law, we have to give 50% of our gross to charity. So if we collect, uh, you know, whatever we collect in a given night as quote unquote profit to the overall system, I mean, I'm not talking profit. We're just talking gross positive. Half of that immediately goes to charity, half of it. And then out of our half, the operations half, we pay all the expenses. I pay, you know, the dealers what I'm paying them uh, per hour. I pay them, you know, per hour to deal. They get that plus tips. I, I have to pay them for tournament downs, and that comes straight out of our pocket. And you know, as you know, if you're playing a tournament, basically a house is absorbing all of the, the, the cost of the you know, dealers, uh, cage, floor, etc., security. Um, so there's not a lot of margin in our business to just, you know, do whatever we want to do. We're, we're bound by, you know, certain laws and we follow them. Yeah, it makes sense. So, so what, uh, what happened next then? So these laws were, were going to go into place July 1st of this year. And there's a charity uh, called Billy the Kitten in Virginia beach, which runs, uh, which is a cat rescue shelter. Uh, they play, in the beach and there's a, a poker room called the beach poker room, which supports it. So they're the operations for that charity. And they were the ones that sought this injunction. Um, again, it was really kind of our strategy, but they were, you know, they're every bit the organization that we are and, uh, work just as hard for their charity as we do. Um, the judge listened to the whole thing and then denied the injunction. So at that point, our lawyer, who happens to also be a state senator, his name is Chap Peterson, in his office, uh, immediately said to the judge, uh, we're going to file for an appeal. And in the state of Virginia, when you file for an appeal for something like this, you can fast track it directly to the Supreme Court. So we did that last, I believe, Thursday, and we are now waiting for the Supreme Court to decide 
whether to take the case or not take the case. They could decide not to take it. If they decide to take it, then they'll hear this trial and judge it accordingly. If they don't hear it, we're kind of screwed. Um, at that point, we're at the mercy of VDACs coming out with new regulations, because these laws also state they need to come out with regulations. They drag their feet whenever they can. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about them, and I don't want to necessarily say it on air, but they are extraordinarily slow at what they do. And I imagine they'll take their sweet time coming out with these regs because they'll have to put them out for public comment and all of this other stuff. It's not like you can just sit down and they should be able to just take the regs that were already written and put them in motion, but they're probably not going to do that. And then we have to wait for that. They also stated that we don't have an application. We don't have any, an application for poker. Well, they had an application in January and we filled it out. They said, we don't have a, a, a appropriate license fee. Well, you had an appropriate license fee that you already took from us and didn't refund the money and you didn't issue a license. And, you know, and, and then they're like, well, we also need a process to evaluate these applications. And my, my thought is like, well, isn't that your job? Your job is to evaluate these license applications. So I'm, I'm, I and most people around Virginia are befuddled at why this is taking so long and why they're so incompetent at their job. These regulations should have been written already. This law was passed in January. They've had plenty of time to get the regs out and get them ready for July 1st, but they did not. Yeah, I think um, these are people I, I, who just don't – I think they don't understand poker is the problem. It's a lot of times these type of things are written and these laws are passed by people who really just don't understand poker very well. And, uh, and then things like this occur, and you just see nonsensical rules, and, uh, and then you also see where – they're very inconsistent with what they want to allow or not allow. And, and the whole thing becomes an unnecessary mess when all you want to do is open up uh, a legalized room of some sort where people can go play poker. So I, I can feel your frustration with this. And I would be too, if I was uh, in your shoes here and, and having to do with the deal with the government there, which doesn't even seem to really even understand the problem. I mean, if you want to talk about how much, how little they know, uh, the top regulator at VDAX, I sat down with him in April of 2020 when I first started this project and started to explain this live action tournament process to him. And before I did that, I had to explain what a small and a big blind were to him. He was their top regulator, and he's apparently the one <laughs> that's going to write the new regulations, you know, and this is who we're dealing with. Yeah, th I never understood this. This happened somewhat in Nevada, too, with, with online poker, with the, the, a lot of stupid things they came up with. I don't understand why they don't get someone to consult with them who is an expert in the industry who can help them draft sensible regulations. But it just seems like they go at it alone and they just try to learn it on the fly. And, of course, they get a lot of things wrong. And then not only that, but they, they tend to be difficult with correcting things and, and very slow with correcting things when you can convince them they are wrong if you can convince them at all. So this this really seems like a case of that here. And and now uh, businesses that have tried to start up through these uh, newly passed laws that would seem to allow their existence are, are now very frustrated, especially with all the trouble and expense of getting going. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they just they don't really know what they're doing. Uh, they don't I don't think they realize that this industry has begun based on the law. And we were following law 
And, uh, and, and now we just had to like literally just slam the brakes on it and stop it immediately. Immediately. We played literally until June 30th at midnight. <laughs> Do you think this is so, uh, any attempt to protect either these uh, licensed casinos or Rosies? Do you think that could be something involved here? Absolutely. I, I think uh, what, what I've been told, you know, these five casinos that are coming in, the, the casino gaming license, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion, your, your guess, because I've been asking people, um, but I'm curious to kind of hear what your guess is for a casino gaming license, and I'm, I bet you'll be the closest one out of anyone that has guessed it. But what would you say the, the casino gaming license in the state of Virginia is, is they're charging for that? Uh, let me think here. Would it be? I know you're going to guess. No, I, I'm, I probably won't. I, but is it like a, a million bucks? Well, you're in the right order of it, but it's 15 million per casino. Oh wow, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. So you know, if if you were the proprietor of a casino opening in Bristol, how many charitable poker rooms do you want floating around your state? None. Yeah, obviously. And especially if you're opening poker. Now, I don't know why they even care about us, for, for starters, because we're small. We're a 10-table room. I think uh, the beach poker room has about 8 to 10 tables. And I think there's another one in, in Newport News that uh, they they even have, I think, more tables. Um, but not many more. But, you know, wouldn't you want more poker in Virginia? You would become more of a hub for poker, which is what we're trying to do, is to become a place for people to come. You come to Virginia, and you can play poker. You can play it exactly like you'd want to play it in a casino. It's just a card room. It's a smaller version of a casino, and it only deals with cards. But we do it to the same integrity level as a casino, and we run it with the same professionalism that a casino would run. Well, I think that's so, maybe what's, what threatens the casinos there is they feel like people who may want to gamble in some way and – they have a few different ways they enjoy gambling. Could be poker, could be uh, the slot machines, or whatever else uh, being offered in the casinos. And they say, "No, you know, I'm content to just go to one of these uh, small poker rooms and shoot off there." And then they don't get these people's business. So I think that's why they feel threatened, especially when there's a number of these rooms that all together they feel could harm their business, and they don't like it. So I know I I don't feel sorry for them. That's the way competition works. But uh, right. I think that may be the way some of them feel that they just don't want this headache with having this competition around to take potential gamblers who may shoot off their money there. So it's got to be something along those lines. It also could just be good old-fashioned government incompetence where they aren't trying to do anything nefarious, but they just don't know what they're doing. And then when you try to bring to them, they don't know what they're doing. Then they get insulted and, and try to fight you, which I've seen before as well. It, it's really I, like, I always hate dealing with the government with things, especially when you, you there's anything that's out of just the, something they do every single day. That's, that's very simple. Anything that's, that slightly veers off of that track. I find it's incredibly difficult to deal with them, especially certain people that, you know, some people can, be flexible and, and try to help and others can just try to fight you the whole way. And, and I've, I'm not going to go into any stories, but I I've dealt with it myself in various ways. And I've assisted others dealing with the government in various ways. And, and it can be very frustrating and you just want to tear your hair out and something just absolutely make no sense. You think you have the, the perfect logical case behind you 
where just if they think about it, they'll know you're right and they'll do what they need to do to fix the situation. And and not only is it difficult for them to even do that, they they don't want to and refuse to do it. So it's I, I can see exactly what you're going through here. And I, I hope you guys are successful. I hope you get this. Uh, um, I, I hope you're victorious with everything you're doing here. This really sucks that all this uh, effort was put in to start the room. So right now the room is, uh, is it presently on hold? So presently what we're doing is we, we stopped effective at midnight uh, on July 1st, started that day. And uh, we had to send messages out to, you know, all of our players, um, all of our dealers were well aware of what was going on as it was going on. We, you know, we're as transparent as we possibly could. We always updated them with what was going on. And quite frankly, we never really imagined it would get to this point. Um, there were lots and lots of stop measures along the way. We had lobbyists in the general assembly. We had, uh, people talking to the governor's office. We were talking to the attorney general's office. Um, we had lawyers and lobbyists working on it, uh, nonstop. Um, so we didn't really imagine we'd get to this point, but we ended up having to, you know, basically just not, you know, just lay people off until we could reconvene. And what we're doing now is, uh, we had some war chest money, uh, from jackpot built up that we wanted, you know, we had every intention to run some really nice promotions, which we still will do. Um, when we do reopen at some point, <clears throat> we're going to start giving a lot of money away, you know, and re-promote the business. Uh, for now, what we're doing is free rolls. So we're giving away money in a free roll format, and that does not qualify as gambling because, as you know, you have no compensation. There's no buy-in. You don't actually have any gambling going on. People can show up and play a game of chance, and they can win prizes. Um, and so we're giving away money for these free rolls. We're paying our dealers to deal them, and we're keeping the name and the business alive. That's what we're doing. It's sad, you know, and to answer your question, it is a combination of campaign finance reform. There's no campaign finance reform in Virginia. So a casino can give a bunch of money to a state delegate or a senator uh, to vote in their direction. And, yeah, they are incompetent. We have film that we've gone through, meticulously gone through some of the film from the General Assembly. And you can hear people saying things like, I don't know anything about poker. Uh, I've never played a single poker hand in my entire life, you know, but what they're doing is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's like, what? where do you even get this from? They try to claim that what we're doing is the wild, wild west. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I've invited these people in on several occasions to come in and look at how we handle money, how we collect money, where the money goes, the checks written to charities, our back office software, spreadsheets, database, whatever, audit us, audit us, feel free to come by, but they don't. And they just claim it's the wild, wild west, which, you know, when you have uh, a nice poker room like this and we were really getting popular and people were loving it. And I think the players loved it in general. I think the, the dealers loved it. My floor people were great and, you know, business was good and things was, things were awesome. And, you know, now uh, it's relegated to home games. And, you know, there are a lot of great home games and home games are fun, but it's there. They have their own problems, you know, and you're not necessarily sure if the security is the same. We would have a police officer and a security officer there. So we always had really tight security and protocols in place. 
um, we had no problems. There were just no problems. Everything was great. Um, I had to ban some people, but it's few and far between. Yeah, I'm sure everything's fine there. Like, without even knowing what's going on there, obviously I have no knowledge of the operations of your room, and I'd never heard of it before you emailed me, but I I can tell you that I I believe what you're saying. I believe the room's totally fine, and I believe that you were willing to demonstrate that to them, but that was they weren't even interested in that. They were just uh, trying to stick to their own stupidity from before, and and now you've got your legal fight on your hands, and now you've got to just kind of tread water here until you can uh, get things back open again. So, you know, I will admit I've, I really haven't thought of poker in Virginia ever prior to this, and the truth is in, in states all over the country – there are battles like these where poker is not well established yet. And we, we've talked a lot about what's happened in Texas. This is uh, kind of along the same lines in some ways. And it, it's really too bad mm-hmm. that there just is not uh, regulated poker everywhere with, with intelligently right. written regulations, of course. Uh, and and that, uh, um, that puts an end to all of these problems for, for the most part. They're, they're, now, if the regulation isn't done well, then that can be a whole different story. But it's really too bad that these types of battles have to be fought just for people to be able to show up and play poker. So, And, and as I said, in Texas, when they don't have regulations at all, that's uh, that can be a big problem as well, as we've seen with some of the controversies and issues that have occurred over there, partially because it is unregulated and they can basically do what they want. So uh, I, I want to wish you luck with this whole thing. And, uh, you know, Feel free to give me updates with what's happening with this, and uh, and we will update it on the show to see if uh, Pops Poker can uh, reopen to its uh, former glory and, and have victory over the uh, Virginia legislature. Thank you, Todd. I really I really appreciate you you know having me on and sort of you know acknowledging this issue and all of that. I've been meaning to reach out to you for a while about it, but you know things are heating up with the Supreme Court, and I figured this was probably the best time. Okay, well, thank you for so coming I'll on. Keep, I will keep you updated. Okay, thank you. Good night. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Interesting story. Think of how much effort they had to put in there just to have a place for people to play poker. It's hard enough to just open a room normally, but to have to battle with the government over this, and you think you're gold. <laughs> they pull the rug out from under you. It's pretty bad. So He obviously has a lot of uh, frustration there. All right, finally, an armored truck was burglarized in California, and it might be the biggest haul of all time of any kind of armored truck burglary or robbery. And authorities are very confused as to how this whole thing went down. This is not a poker story. This is not a gambling story. But it was interesting enough to me where I wanted to talk about it on this show, and I think you'll be interested in this story as well. This was an armored truck carrying jewels. It's almost like out of a movie, but it was carrying jewels. And it's still not clear the amount of money that was lost here because it was jewels stolen, but the value of the merchandise that was stolen ranges all the way from... $10 million all the way up to $100 million. It's a pretty big range, but they're still figuring it out. They're still figuring out how much was stolen. 
this heist occurred not in an uh, you know th- this heist occurred not in the way you would picture. This was not a heist where ten armed men jumped out and did something daring to, and and killed the drivers and took over the vehicle. It was nothing like that. It was surprisingly simple. And so far, the thieves have gotten away. This occurred at the Flying J truck stop on Interstate 5 near Fraser Park, California. Fraser Park, in case you're wondering, is in uh, Southern California, but it's north of Los Angeles. It gets snow in the winter. Not a lot of snow, but it gets some snow. It's about 4,000 feet, the elevation of Fraser Park. Near Fraser Park is a mountain called Mount Pinos. Some people pronounce it Pinos. It's P-I-N-O-S. That's actually 9,000 feet elevation at the top. And you can drive to about the 8,600-foot mark, and then you'd have to hike the rest of the way. That gets a fair amount of snow during the winter, as you might guess. So a lot of people go to Mount Pinos from various areas of Southern California. Some go from uh, Lancaster and Palmdale. Some come from uh, Bakersfield. Some come from the San Fernando Valley. Some come from Ventura County. So that's, if you live in those areas, you probably know about Mount Pinos and have gone there to play in the sm- in the snow, especially if you have kids. And you would have to pass through Fraser Park to get there, unless you go the back way. But most people go up the five and get off on Fraser Mountain Park Road and then continue on to Mount Pinos. Now, this story has nothing to do with Mount Pinos, but that's how some of you who live in Southern California might know Fraser Park. Fraser Park is also where sometimes you will get stuck on I-5 at the Grapevine, which is what it's called. You will sometimes get stuck on I-5 when snow falls during the winter and they have to close it. So it's always around Fraser Park where that snow comes down that can close the five and obviously cause uh, a lot of delays with getting to Southern California. The Flying J Travel Center has been around for a long time. It is mainly aimed at truckers. It has a lot of gas pumps. It has showers for truckers. It sells a lot of things that uh, truckers would need for their cab. You don't have to be a trucker to stop there, but it is definitely a truck stop. At these truck stops, there are a lot of cargo thefts from trucks. So it's not uncommon that while a trucker stops at one of these places, that thieves break into trucks they think might have something valuable. They're not going to break in if something's carrying you know, a bunch of milk or candy or something that's uh, not very valuable and bulky but something they think might have value and be easy to cart away, there are break-ins. However, there's never been anything like this. And in fact, there was only one theft between 2012 and 2018 at this particular truck stop. So it's a pretty damn safe truck stop. It's not like it's plagued by thieves. This was a Brinks armored car. This was not a truck. This is a Brinks armored car that was bringing these jewels and this happened at uh, two in the morning 
and uh, this was it was carrying jewels from the International Gem and Jewelry Show in Los Angeles. L.A. County Sheriff's Major Crimes Bureau Sergeant Michael Molesky said, we're talking multi-millions here. It's a huge amount of money. He said the $10 million figure, which is being thrown out right now by Brinks, which is uh, the security company operating the truck, is a, quote, base figure, and he's expecting it will escalate. Authorities believe that it could be all the way up to $100 million. However, how did this happen? Remember, I said it was a burglary, not a robbery. Robberies were uh, the thieves confront in some way the person holding the merchandise and takes it from them forcefully. A burglary is where things are stolen, where people are not present. So it was the latter. It was a burglary. So this is what happened. And this is how the Flying J Travel Center in Fraser Park plays into this. Actually, you know, it was it was a truck. It was a uh, it was a big rig, so it was not just an armored car. It was a a, a big rig. On July eleventh, between one thirty a.m. and two a.m., they stopped at the Flying J, and they were away from the truck for twenty seven minutes while they were at the truck stop. Now, I'm not sure why they stopped there for twenty seven minutes, and you are probably wondering, could these guards be in on it? And the answer is yes, but so far they have not been arrested for this, nor have they been named as suspects. But a team of burglars bypassed the truck's locking mechanism and then used the storage containers that were in the truck to haul away precious gems, gold, and other valuables. And... uh, when these guys came back to the truck, the stuff was gone. There are some questions here, obviously. Uh, how did the thieves know that there were such valuables inside? Remember, this Flying J only had one break-in that was known to trucks in a seven-year span of 2012 to 2018, the last data they had on it. So it's not like there's tons of trucks getting broken into there and they got lucky. It looked like this one was targeted, and no other truck there was targeted. So how was this one known to be one carrying these valuable jewels? How did they get in? How did they breach the security measures that the truck had? How did they bypass the truck's locking mechanism and get in? And that is still not known. They were able to do all of this in 27 minutes because that's the entire time these two guards were away from the truck and they didn't see the thieves. So the thieves got to the truck, got into it and got these jewels out of there and got out of the area before they could be found all in 27 minutes. The investigator who looked into this matter said that the locking mechanism would not be exceedingly difficult to crack. But he also said that outward signs of this truck carrying riches were not obvious. This Sergeant Molesky of L.A. County Sheriff did note that both armed guards were carrying firearms and that anyone who was sitting by looking for trucks to break into 
might have been tipped off by that, that if someone gets out of a truck with a partner and they both walk away with firearms, that there's a reason that they're so heavily armed when they're just driving a truck and that would tip off thieves that there's something valuable in there that's being protected. So it's possible that these thieves just got lucky by waiting for a truck to break into and then they see this and go, okay, this is the one. And maybe they even had some lookouts making sure these dudes didn't come back while they were in the truck stop and they quickly got in and stole what they had. The truck contained many 70 to 100 pound plastic containers filled with jewelry, gems, and watches. And Arnold Duke, the president of the International Gem and Jewelry Store, uh, Jewelry Show, said, we're looking at more than $100 million in documented losses. This was an absolutely huge crime, one of the largest jewelry heists ever. We're talking gold, diamond, rubies, emeralds, and loads of luxury watches. There were 15, 15 exhibitors each with 5 to $10 million in merchandise. These are small businesses with their entire wealth vested in that truck. It has destroyed them financially and affected their health in some cases. Mm. He also said that the thieves didn't get everything from the truck. So they left some things behind, probably because they felt they were running out of time, or maybe they were noticing from their lookout that the two guards were returning and they booked it out of there. Usually, the way this is done when they transport cargo that's valuable is that it's transported in a big rig with a bulletproof cab and it has satellite tracking and elaborate camera systems armed guards and the exact route kept a secret now I'm wondering why these guys would have left the truck for 27 minutes unguarded let me tell you a personal story really quickly before I continue with this but there's a similarity when I was forced to close my win box, I had a lot of cash in there. I put that cash in my jacket, which already looked a little suspicious because uh, it was 100 degrees when I was forced to close the box and I'm walking through the win parking lot with a jacket on. But when I got in my car with this large sum of money, I decided that I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop for the bathroom. I'm not going to stop anywhere, that I'm going to drive straight to another safety deposit box I had and immediately move the funds there. I definitely was not going to leave my car unattended for 27 minutes with the money inside. I had taken off the jacket once I was in the car, and what I did is I put the money in the car. I was actually kind of worried, like, <laughs> what if I get in an accident and I'm, like, unconscious and someone finds it? What I should have worried about was what if civil forfeiture gets me. But people weren't really thinking about that much back then. But what I was uh, really thinking was I, I hope nothing happens. And also, I'm not going to stop anywhere for any reason. I guess if I really, really, really had to go to the bathroom, maybe I'd, like, uh, pull off on the side of the road and quickly piss in a bush or something and then get back in the car. But I was not going to leave this thing unattended. I was not going to leave this money unattended. And we're not talking about anything like this money here. It's a tiny fraction of this money here. So why were these guards allowed 
to leave this money sitting unattended? It's not money, jewels, but why were they allowed to leave these jewels unattended for 27 minutes? Why was, if they were, if they had to stop at a truck stop, why wasn't one guard there with the truck and then the other one will get out and when the first one comes back? In fact, that's even what I did with Benjamin in the car. Let's say me and his mom both had to go to the bathroom and we were on a trip. What we would do is one of us would go to the bathroom and uh, one would sit with Benjamin and then the other one would go to the bathroom. Is that you want to just leave Benjamin sitting by himself in a weird place and have some weirdo break in the car and grab him? So why couldn't they treat the jewels the same way? This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The FBI is involved. They're working with the L.A. Sheriff. They have looked all over this uh, Flying J truck stop in Fraser Park for the clues. They've reviewed security videos. And they're not saying at this moment what they found. They said, obviously, we aren't about to say what we have at this stage. Flying J's corporate parent has a, a web request page for security videos. So apparently uh, Flying J does have security videos on site and uh, law enforcement can request it. So I'm sure they've done that. It is suspected that this was not just a matter of luck. It is suspected, though not for sure, that thieves planned this out and that they watched the truck get loaded and that they very carefully followed the truck and waited for it to be stopped and abandoned somewhere. And then they broke in. It's also possible that this move of these gems was already known and that uh, someone who is an insider was all ready to follow this truck and break into it when it was alone. It was being moved from San Mateo, which is in Northern California, to Pasadena. So they were actually on their way south. They were not on their way north. It was actually going to Southern California when this happened. They think it's very possible that someone who was an insider tipped off this group of thieves. Brinks, which of course is the operator of this truck and this transport of this of these gems... They said, last week, a loss incident involving a Brinks vehicle occurred near Los Angeles. According to information the customers provided to us before they shipped their items, the total value of the missing items is less than $10 million, which, of course, isn't true. We even got that statement from the guy at the International Gems Show. We are working with law enforcement, and we will fully reimburse our customers for the value of their assets that were stolen in accordance with the terms of our contract. But the problem is if they think it's less than $10 million, then maybe they won't. The show in San Mateo ran from July 8th to 10th. The Pasadena show was scheduled for five days after the conclusion of the San Mateo show from the 15th to the 17th. So it's very possible that knowing the show was ending the 10th and moving to Pasadena, that someone knew these jewels would have to be transported from San Mateo all the way to Pasadena, that it was likely the truck would be on I-5 and that they were just going to follow it until it was time to strike. 
I don't know how they knew that it would be left alone, but maybe they took that chance. Maybe they said, hey, there's so much we'll get out of this that it's worth tracking this truck and seeing if there's an opportunity and one came up. But I, I'm still not understanding why both guards left it for 27 minutes. What are they even doing for 27 minutes? San Mateo to Pasadena is not a really, really long drive. It's not short, but it's not like they had to drive 2,000 miles and obviously had to stop for some time to have a meal or to shower or to sleep. San Mateo to Pasadena is only about 370 miles. In a passenger car, you can typically cover that in about five and a half hours or less. A truck's going to be slower, but not that much slower. So you're telling me that these guys couldn't go from San Mateo to Pasadena without stopping for half an hour when they're carrying $100 million worth of jewels? <laughs> I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why is that question not being asked? How could they both go into that truck stop? I mean, they really could have been in on it. These drivers could have been in on it knowing that maybe company policy allows them to do this. I'd really be looking at those drivers. If the drivers were really permitted to stop for 27 minutes and leave $100 million worth of jewels unattended on a five and a half hour drive, maybe a seven hour drive because trucks move slower, but probably not more than that. I mean, really? You can't, you can't just uh, bring some snacks along and quickly go to the bathroom where one sits with the truck and one goes to the bathroom and then you switch off? Why should it ever be abandoned for 27 minutes? I don't get it. If I see any updates with this, I will let you know. It's a pretty interesting story. It is the biggest theft from an armored truck ever in U.S. history. All right, well, that's it. Don't cut anything more. When is the next show? That's a fine question. When is the next show? I don't know. I will let you know. You can check Twitter, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert or... Just PokerFraudAlert.com so you get info for the next show. It'll be at least a week, but maybe a bit more. We will see. Won't be World Series talk, though. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Not sure when we'll be on next, but check the Twitter. It'll be up there. We had three interviews. We usually don't even have one. We had three this time. We had uh, Jason Lippiner, who got uh, somewhat trampled at the World Series of Poker. And then we had uh, Scotter Clark talking about that very weird ban that happened because of his guns on the pirate outfit. They weren't even real guns. And then we had uh, Rich Lehman from Pops Poker battling hard with the Virginia government to be able to run their poker room. We could have had a fourth guest. We could have had Eric Benzamokin to talk about the legality of any liability that many of these casinos could have if anyone got injured in the trampling. Anyway... Don't expect three interviews every week. Don't expect one every interview every week. This is not usually an interview show. It seems like it rains and it 
when it rains, it pours with these interviews because, like, we'll have several on one show and then we'll have none for a while. And I don't plan it that way. It just falls that way. And it's kind of a pain planning these interviews. I, I like having them. I like having people come on here and tell things firsthand. I, I prefer that over me just describing things. Like, I'm happy Scotter came on and talked about what happened rather than me just saying what happened. But it's always a pain in the ass to coordinate, especially just as one guy. I don't have a staff. I don't have an assistant like Dan Smith does. Maybe if I win the main event or something, I can have an assistant. For now, it's just me. Anyway, thank you for listening. And good night. Shalom. Shalom.